Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show, our long-delayed, much-belated top 10 video games of 2019 list. We have been putting this off for a while because the, uh, the end of last year was really crazy busy, where I was out of the country for a month when we normally would have recorded it. We had pre-recorded all of our best of the decade content. If you haven't heard all of that, we did best of the decade for video games, for movies, and for anime. Sean has an entire episode just called Sean's Anime Episode, so you yep. can go listen to all of that. We did all the decade content, but we weren't able to do the top 10 games of 2019. Then I got back to America. We had to do the Japan episode. Some life stuff came up. I was still picking away at a couple of 2019 games I wanted to finish. But we are finally done. I have a top 10 list. You have a top 10 list. And Sean, we are ready to count down the best games from last year. Yes. And we are recording this now on February 16th. So, yes. you know, we're only a month and a half in to 2020. I think that's fine. I think it's fine. You know, the, the Oscars were early this year. They used to be like in fucking March. So, like, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. We're fine. The, the Dice Awards just happened. Those are for last year. So Yeah. We, yeah. we And we are just as prestigious and important to developers uh, in the community as the Dice Awards, certainly. Absolutely. Uh, I will tell you, Sean, I'm excited to do this because I think last year was a really interesting year for games. And I know I have, I think, one of the most weird and interesting top ten lists I've ever done for one of these year-end roundups. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for my list as well. I think my number one game is the least surprising number one game in any list ever. Just because we've already recorded a podcast, maybe that was best games of the decade. And maybe that's already out. Who knows? Yeah, uh, mine too. But it'll also give us a chance to talk about some games I know we have not gotten enough time to talk about. So yes. I'm excited about that. I am very excited to do this episode. Before we get into that, Sean, we have a little bit of stuff. We have a little bit of news. Um, for stuff, I just wanted to start with, I got to see the Sonic the Hedgehog movie this week. Mm-hmm. It was surprisingly good, Sean. That's what I've heard. I've talked to a couple people that have seen it, and everybody... like It's not like people are like, oh, it's an amazing movie, but everyone's like, yeah, that movie was pretty good. I'm like, cool. It is solid. It is fun. Like, like I honestly, I'm still... So I thought, saw it Thursday night. We're recording this on Sunday. And every so often, I'm still just smiling to myself, like, that Sonic movie was really fun. And, like, that's a great feeling. Like, no, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's an A-plus life-changing movie. But it might be a game-changer for Hollywood video game adaptations because it's far and away, like, without the the specter of competition, the best one. I think the best one before this was probably Detective Pikachu, and this is a much more solid movie than that. It is just, it's a very funny movie. It's a very heartfelt movie. It's it's got a really good heart underneath it. I think with with the specific choice they told they made about telling this uh, being this a story about Sonic, kind of being isolated on Earth, not having friends, wanting to like make friends and have an adventure, and he gets to do that over the course of the movie makes it really sweet. They nailed Sonic as a character one hundred percent. It's not exactly like different versions of video game Sonic, but Sonic in the video games has been a different character every couple years so that's totally fine there's lots of room for interpretation ben schwartz is a great sonic voice actor he kind of sounds to me like a combination of a lot of the best different sonic voices like there's a little bit of jaleel white in there there's a little bit of ryan drummond there's a little bit of 
Um, who's doing it right now? Right now, I think, is um, oh, the guy from... Roger Craig Smith. Yes, Roger Craig yeah. Smith. I hear a little bit of that in there, where it's like, he's got this like rebellious, cool spirit, but he's also like a good dude who's kind of sweet. And he also makes Sonic sound a little more like a kid, which reminds me of Jaleel White. So... I really love him. The design of Sonic is perfect. It's amazing. It almost wasn't, but luckily they fixed it. It's it's actually, Sean, it's funny. I was watching the movie. It is hard to imagine this movie with the original design that they showed in that first trailer. Because I even went back and watched that first trailer again. And one, that trailer is awful in so many ways because every scene that's in that trailer, I pretty much liked in the final movie. I, it's just mm-hmm. presented in a context where it doesn't work. Like, you know how that trailer ends with that bit where um, James Marsden has Sonic in the gym bag? Yes. That scene is very funny in the movie, I thought. Like, um, it made me laugh very hard. It, like, fits into um, James Marsden's characterization that he's kind of a low-key weirdo, which James Marsden is very good at. But in the trailer, like, it just, it's not funny. It's out of context. Like, it's not edited particularly well. There's a lot of that in that first trailer. That first trailer using Gangsta's Paradise makes no sense. Um, And then that design of Sonic is just horrifying. And it's like, it's such a true-to-the-video-game version of Sonic, it's amazing that the design wasn't like that. Um, So thank God they changed the design. It really helps the movie. He's He fits into the world so well. Um... I love I loved all the characters. James Marsden, who is, a, you know, James Marsden, I think, is an underrated actor. He's one of those actors who I think was typecast early on because he's very, very handsome. Mm-hmm. But he's also weird and funny, kind of in like a Chris Hemsworth way, where, like, I think when Chris Hemsworth is just being used for his good looks, he's not that interesting. But if you're like, hey, Chris Hemsworth, go be weird and funny, he's weird and funny. And James yeah. Marsden is the same way. And he's really good in this. He has really good chemistry with... A character who was not there when he was filming it, which I think is something people underrate how difficult that must be as an actor. Um, But he's great. There's a lot of good interplay between them. Jim Carrey, I think it is up to how much you like Jim Carrey, but I will say he, he, he comes to play. Like, Jim Carrey is fully engaged. He's doing his 1990s Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber thing. Like, it's, it's full Jim Carrey, but it is not Jim Carrey, like, sleepwalking through this. He's very engaged. Um... And some of it I found funny, some of it I didn't. I'm kind of hot and cold on Jim Carrey, but I know if you love Jim Carrey, you're probably going to love this movie, because it's like prime Jim Carrey. Um, But I also was impressed the movie does not overuse him. Like, the movie does not become Jim Carrey's movie. It's Sonic's movie. And that was probably my biggest worry going in, that this would be sort of like um, a series of unfortunate events, the original movie version. Yeah. Where it just became the Count Olaf movie, which is not what a series of unfortunate events is. Um, And they didn't do that at all. So that's fun. It's, you know, it is, it does follow the template of like the Smurfs and movies like that, where like a character from a cartoon world falls into our world and then they have to go on a road trip, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's a good version of that. And I think it, you know, it's not exactly the Sonic movie I would have made, but I also think Sonic is a pretty versatile character. And I think like if they did this with Mario, it would probably bother me because there's no real justification in like the Mario world to do that. Sonic, I think you can totally do this with. It works. It's a good first step. You know, it's clearly like for Hollywood, a, a lower budget movie. So I understand why they did not do all the other um, Sonic characters because that would add quite a bit to the budget. But there, there is a post credit scene that mm-hmm. that very much got me excited because they they clearly love this video game. 
Um, and there's just lots of loving references throughout. Like, the movie was very clearly made by people who love the, the property. Um, I got my Chili Dog reference. That's really, as a 90s kid who watched Jaleel White Sonic, all I wanted was a Chili Dog reference. We got a Chili Dog reference. Um, Sonic totally rolls up into a ball and fights robots. Uh, there's a scene where he drops all his rings and has to collect them. You know, I think it checks the basic boxes. Um, they do call him Dr. Robotnik. And Sonic mocks him by calling him Eggman, and that's the okay. exact right formulation, right, Sean? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how that's how in an American Sonic the Hedgehog movie, I feel like that's the way to tackle it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious how they handle it, like in the Japanese dub. I wonder if they change that around. Maybe, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they're yeah. like, no, Eggman's his name, and it's a cool, good name, and Robotnik just sounds like some dumb, fake American <laughs> bullshit. Um, so let's have it have it make fun of him, and call him, yeah, you're Robotnik. <sighs> yeah. But, you know, it, it's fun. It is it is a kid's movie, and people need to understand that going in. Like, And I don't say kid's movie as an excuse for poor quality, but like, understand that like some of the jokes might not be for you as an adult. Like, Sonic does like a Fortnite-style flossing dance at one point. And, like, sure. that's not super for me. There are a lot of kids in the audience who, like, in the screening I was at, laugh their asses off at that and that's good sonic should be for kids and sonic is supposed to be kind of hip and with the moment so if he makes a Fortnite reference or if he is he makes a vin diesel fast and furious reference i'm like that's fine that sonic is kind of supposed to be with it a little bit yeah because that is one thing that's nice about sonic as a character is that that does fit more nicely with him rather than trying to transplant that characteristic onto like alvin and the chipmunks or God yes. help you, the fucking Smurfs, which the Smurfs are about as far away from that characterization as you could possibly get. Smurfs are like negative tood. If Sonic is yes. like extreme tood, Smurfs are like the the pit of anti tudeness. Yeah, but I was surprised at how much I liked it, Sean. I really had a smile on my face start to finish. The post credit scenes put a bigger smile on my face, and I just, I laughed. It was fun. It, it made me nostalgic for Sonic, but I also felt like it was a good movie for kids now. And that's what, I, that's what it should be. That's all it needed to do. It's also a tight 90 minutes, in and out, mm. very good three-act structure. Like a teachable, like this movie gets it, there isn't a wasted scene. Um, very happy about that. It's not perfect. The thing that annoyed me by far the most in the movie is that there are two instances of ludicrously egregious Olive Garden product placement. I don't know where that came from. I don't know if, like, when they had to redesign Sonic, they're like, shit, we're out of money. Uh, Who will pay us a couple million for product placement? But, like, it's full-on, like, James Marsden makes a joke about Olive Garden and, like, basically turns to the camera and goes, well, when you're there, you're family, and winks. And I'm like, why? Why are they doing this in the middle of this Sonic movie? And then there's another recurring of the Olive Garden joke at the end, which doesn't even fully make sense because the whole point is that James Marsden lives in a really small town of, like, 200 people. Where there would not be an Olive Garden. Right. I'm just, I'm very confident that there would not be an Olive Garden there. Does not matter. It's also particularly strange because, you know, it's been a very long time since I was at Olive Garden. But I just have to assume that Olive Garden does not have chili dogs. Which makes it an unsuitable restaurant to be inserted into a Sonic the Hedgehog movie, in my opinion. Yeah, it should be, really there should have been a tie-in with Sonic the Restaurant, which serves chili dogs. Yes, there you go. Although that uh, would that... have been too, in like Sonic Inception, it had been too much. <laughs> the movie would have imploded on itself. I think in the next movie, Sonic should like be famous and, and like he's teamed up with the Sonic restaurant chain. And he's like, get, it's all going to his head because now he's like got this multi-million dollar product deal. 
no. But, you know, there's a scene where Sonic gets his cool shoes. It's very sweet. Um, the weirdest thing in the movie, other than the Olive Garden product placement, is that in Sonic's backstory in the film world, he was raised by an owl named Nightclaw. That is by far the weirdest thing in the movie. I don't know where they got the owl named Nightclaw from. It's a cool owl. And in the opening scene, like the people who are hunting Sonic and why Nightclaw sends Sonic to Earth is a group of like bad echidnas. So that's like kind of a cool reference and could be a cool way to like put Knuckles in the next movie. But um, there are so many Sonic the Hedgehog characters. Why did they invent an owl? (laughs) It's very weird seems weird. like that sounds like that's like a leftover from an old script or something like like yes. with what you're saying about the rest of the movie that just doesn't sound like it's from the same movie as everything else you've said so far because it's super weird because on the like island at the beginning where the owl is you also have the echidnas and it's the the island is just green hill zone it's actually very cool like like the the animation there um and you also get the cute baby sonic animation which is fun um but yeah then there's an owl named nightclaw and i'm like you're a cool owl but this is not a thing in the games, <laughs> but it's fine. or or like the cartoons or the comic yeah. books. This I, that's a completely manufactured character, as far as I know. Yes, uh, you know Sonic has had a a uh, storied history, but also a messy history. There are many worse Sonic the Hedgehog things. This movie does not have him like make out with a human woman or anything like that. Damn it. So, but hey, there's it's also it has had the biggest opening weekend of a video game movie ever. Yeah. Uh, so there will be a sequel, and you know maybe he'll get it on with with I don't know who who would be the human woman they cast. I feel like it would be some like Disney Channel star who like is trying to make a break into movies, and Sonic like gets a girlfriend, and that would be bad. I hope they don't do that. Yeah. All right. Um, I also saw Birds of Prey. Birds okay, of Prey yeah, is really... right. Have you seen that yet? No, I have not. Okay, you should see that. We should talk about that at some point. I liked that a lot too. Ewan McGregor choose. So much scenery. It's amazing. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I, I, I love her so much. Um, everyone in that movie. Margot Robbie is like the perfect live action Harley Quinn. Which I didn't necessarily think after Suicide Squad. Because Suicide Squad is so bad. Not her fault. But this movie. Very, very good. People should see it. Um, I'm sad that movie kind of bombed. But it's very good. And uh, yeah. So so those are things I've been doing. What have you, you been up to, Sean? Any stuff for us? Um... So it's been two weeks, so I have to, to reach back into the, the annals of time, the, the deep, distant past. Like, two weeks ago feels like 50 years ago, because it has been a very busy two weeks for me. Um, uh, so I finished Dragon Ball Z Kakarot. That game is very good. Um, it's got a very... Like, like, the one thing with that game is it, at some point, feels a little bit stretched thin, because there's... You can tell early on they had plans for, like the number of, like, really elaborate cutscenes they would have and stuff like that, and then eventually they're making a licensed game, and so it was clear that they're like, well, we are not going to have enough time to put all that stuff into the game. So there are, like, clear spots where there's, like, here's, like, some narration over some still images of characters doing, like, iconic scenes from Dragon Ball Z, but without the, like, CyberConnect 2 ridiculous over-the-top and, like, CG animations that... The game has some of those, but they become more sparse um, the deeper you go in. There's a lot in the Saiyan and Frieza saga, and then the like frequency of them cut down. But then once you get to the end of the Boo saga, the basically everything from like Vegito coming onto the scene to defeating Kid Boo is just the most spectacular fucking bullshit, and it's amazing. Um, it is a great final two hours of that game they do an incredible job of delivering the end of the boo saga 
Um, and there's and there are some ways in which I almost kind of prefer the game's version of it over the anime's version, just because it feels a little bit more like the manga and that it's a little bit more cut down and a little bit more streamlined. Um, because the Boo Saga, the main problem that Saga has for me is that it's just like you hit like go tanks and super boo fighting and it just kind of spins around for a while until it kind of recenters on Goku once he comes back. Um, and some of that stuff, that kind of fluff in the middle gets cut down quite a bit in the game's version of it. And then, yeah, then once Vegito shows up, you get a great boss fight where you play as Vegito and just kick boo's ass. And there's just crazy shit going on. There is an all like time great, it's it's i mean this monologue is from the manga and the original anime but it's the vegeta monologue that he gives at the end of dragon ball z when goku's fighting boo and he's basically saying like you know i he's recounting his history fighting kakarot and then he finally and i feel like this is the actual reason why they named the game dragon ball z kakarot is for when vegeta says kakaroto Omae wa number one da. And it's like, you're the number one fighter in the universe, Kakarot. Yep. Um, and that's, it's it's a, you know, obviously Horikawa gave that speech in the original anime, but his like gravelly old Vegeta voice, this like Dragon Ball Super Vegeta voice, it's like he just goes deep with it and it's so fucking good. It's such a standout moment um, at the end of the game. And then they do a fun thing where they add a little beat um, a very video gamey little beat in there where you get to have like this the ending of the saga is the exact same, but they add in an extra kind of little fight between Goku and Boo so that there's an actual last boss of the game and the way they implement that moment I think works well. Um and then the post game of Dragon Ball Z Kakarot's a lot of fun. So I platinumed it, so I got which is a very easy platinum. Um there's no like you know, you don't have to catch every different kind of fish or whatever in the fishing mini game. There's it's all just kind of play the side quests. Um, level up your characters, do some of the extra bonus material. And there's a lot of fun little pieces like um, at the end of the game where you just get to do a lot of little uh, side quest kind of stuff. Um, Android 21 makes a cameo in the game, which is fun. The original character from Fighters. Um, you have uh, Toa and Mira from the Xenoverse stuff. They're oh, featured nice. in some extra material at the end. So there's just, they kind of dig a little bit deeper um, there's some stuff, some fun stuff where you meet like Android eight and then you go, um, back up to the, the snowy area in the North that where the tower is the muscle tower and all that shit from original dragon ball. Um, you meet snow or whatever her name is, the girl with the red hair from there. Um, and because she's like cam, she's one of the many cameos that are in the original end of dragon ball Z. So they like made models. So they use some of those models of old characters. Um, like Upa and, and people like that. So you get little quests for them. Um, and so it's, it's just, a the whole game is just such an intense love letter to Dragon Ball, um, that, yeah, the, the ending of the game, I think is extremely strong. And I had a lot of fun just kind of flying around and doing bullshit and leveling up all my characters and all that at the end of the game. So if you have not dived into Dragon Ball Z Kakarot and you like Dragon Ball, it gets two thumbs up. I like it a lot. Awesome. Well, if you want to move on to the news, we actually have some Dragon Ball news. It would make a good transition. Sure, I'll, I'll just say very briefly, I'm currently playing Yakuza 3, because um, the Yakuza Remastered Collection, the physical version, finally came out, so I got all those. So I now own every mainline Yakuza game in uh, physical form, and so I'm, I'm like probably five hours into Yakuza 3. It's very good. I'll probably talk about that once I've gotten deeper into it in the future. Nice. Um, and we will have plenty of video game chat later on this episode, so... Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the news. News. All right. Um, we don't actually do jingles. I don't know why I did that. But let's go ahead talk about the news because Sean, we have two pieces of Dragon Ball news actually to start this section. One is that you mentioned Dragon Ball Fighters. Uh, they announced Dragon Ball Fighters season three, so the next yep. season of DLC Fighters Pass two wrapped up recently with uh, Broly from the Super movie. Season 3 was announced in V-Jump over in Japan. It will be five characters total, starting with Kefla on February 28th. So that is the fused um, Kale and... Caulifla. Caulifla, yes. uh, Who was in the the, um, universe uh, survival arc from Dragon Ball Super. That'll come out on February 28th. And then the next one is Ultra Instinct Goku who will be coming this spring. So two characters from the Universe Survival Arc. We Those were the two characters we were most sure were coming in Season 2. They never came. Now we've got Season 3, and there will be three more after that. I think you and I both agree, two thumbs up to this announcement. Yes, um, yeah. And the way they did the announcement was amazing, because they basically had a big Dragon Ball Fighters tournament that's like the world championship for Season 2 of the game. Um, because with this, there's also there were announcements of... Um, an update to Dragon Ball Fighters where they're changing systems, doing balance patches. They're adding in the selectable assists for the characters. So it's going to be more like Marvel vs. Capcom 2 where each character has three different assists that you can pick from. Um, so some characters, if you if you were into the team building element of fighters, some characters like Krillin um, had just like awful assists. Vegeta's assist is not particularly good. Um, that the it'll make more of the cast like kind of useful to have as team members. Um, so that's a cool and like a very significant change because that's a lot of work that goes yeah. into building those different assists for like the entire cast of characters. So that big season three announcement came in, all those kinds of updates. Then you had the tournament after the finals of the tournament, which I watched some of the highlights and it was a pretty cool tournament. And Goichi, who's like a kind of a, one of the, him and Sonic Fox are the two main fighters guys and Goichi took that tournament. Um, and then they had the trailer and they showed, they started with a dramatic finish um, that is the ending of Tournament of Power. So it's uh, Goku and Frieza defeating Jiren and it, that dramatic finish looks fucking awesome. And then it transitions into the Ultra Instinct Goku trailer, which we already knew that he was going to be in the game. And then after that, they show four slots of characters with the Ultra Instinct Goku one coming in. And then in the left side of the roster, Kefla just kind of zooms in. And so it's like, oh no, there's going to be five characters. And the first one's going to be Kefla coming out in like a couple of weeks. And then the Kefla trailer looks fucking amazing. So they 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 milked that announcement they they Nintendoed the shit out of it. It was like nice. what Nintendo does with their like when they do a good job on their Smash Bros. reveals. Um, that's what um, this felt like. It was like, oh my god, they fucking that was a fun night to follow stuff on Dragon Ball Fighters. Awesome! I'm very excited to play as these characters and hopefully get back into fighters because I've played a little bit of all the season two stuff, but I haven't gone into it that heavily, and I really want to get to know some of those fighters because like. I thought Kid Goku was super fun. I really like love uh, Super Broly, and I want to get to know him better because um, you know he's such a beautiful little boy. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, so who do we think the other three characters will be? Because Kefla and Ultra Instinct Goku were very obvious. We already have Jiren. I think they've got to do Topo at some point. Yeah, that would make the most sense if you're like doing more turn of power people. Topo would yeah. be one of the main ones. 
Um, I think there's a chance you get Master Roshi because they still haven't done Roshi. Yeah, yeah, turned into power, and you could if they were going for like a quirky character, um, that would be a good good one for that. I want to know how they work in like his dirty magazines. Yes, yeah, you know they will magazines. Mafuba, there's the you know, and you could just pull a lot of original Dragon Ball bullshit when you use like Jackie Chin. So that oh would be god, fun. that'd be so fun. You could do like an alternate costume. You know how they have Videl has her alternate form. Yeah, they could do that with him and have Jackie Chun as an alternate form. Yes, um, I would love if they d- dug deep into like Dragon Ball. I would love Tao Pai Pai in there or something. You could you could go mm-hmm. crazy with that. They haven't done Mister Satan. Give him his jetpack, you know. <laughs> yep, there's no joke character in the game. So there's usually, you do have a roster this big, you have at least one joke character, and Mr. Satan would definitely be your... Yes. He has a bunch of, like, goofy, weird moves, and is probably not actually a good character, but he's just fun to play as. And then someone will one day win a tournament with him, and it'll be, like, super amazing. Yeah. 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 So I think there's a lot of good possibilities. We'll have to think more about this, but I'm really excited to see what they do with it. Because I've been, I know some people have been annoyed, like, at the number of Gokus, but I think all the Gokus are really good. <laughs> so, like. Yeah, and, be... and they feel very distinct. Um, and yeah. especially Ultra Instinct Goku looks like he's completely different. He doesn't, it's not like base Goku who shared a number of moves with Super Saiyan Goku. It, right. Like, everything looks completely different based on that trailer. Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited about all these, and you know, hopefully it's just the one Goku this time. They they've only done one Goku per pack so far, I think. Right? Yeah, I mean, I it's hard for me to figure. I I don't know what another Goku would even be at this point. The only right. choice would be a standalone Super Saiyan Four Goku, but yes. that's already part of GT Goku's like level three Super. So uh, that's true. That's true. So. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. And they really haven't done any GT-specific characters other than Kid Goku has that costume. Um, So we shall see. But I'm excited to play these. Um, And another piece of Dragon Ball news, Sean. This is kind of sad, but I wanted to talk about it. Uh, Team Four Star announced that Dragon Ball Z Abridged is ending, or really has already ended. Um, If you follow Dragon Ball Z Abridged, it is the YouTube parody show of Dragon Ball Z it hit episode 60 last year, which was the end of the Cell Games saga. Uh, they did the bonus episode, which was Trunks going back to the future, which is also how the Cell saga ends in the anime. And we hadn't heard from them in a while. They had said they were going to do a season four with Boo. And Team Four Star, finally, they, they came out and announced first to Patreon and then to their YouTube channel that they were done. They, they cited quite a few different reasons. Part of it was they just felt like they'd kind of taken it as far as they could go and they didn't want to get burned out. Um, YouTube monetization and copyright stuff has also just gotten more complex and fraught than ever before and I know I follow countless creators who deal with that Um, and yeah but I wanted to just take a moment to celebrate that show Sean because we really haven't talked about it here but I think DBZ Abridged was something really special and I said this on Twitter and I I 100% genuinely believe this I think by the end it had turned into nothing less than the best and most loving dub Dragon Ball has ever had in the English language. And far, far superior to me to anything Funimation has ever done with it. Um, and and especially like that last three-part episode of the Cell Game Saga, where they did a full English cover of Unmei no Hi for when uh, Gohan goes Super Saiyan 2, and they did Cell singing My Way when he dies, and they did a really sweet ending with Goku and Gohan. Um... I'm, you know, I'm a little bummed we're not going to see the Boo arc. I also think the Boo arc would be 100% the hardest one to do a parody of because Boo is so silly. I don't know, like, how you do a parody version of Boo. Yeah, like, um, specifically, like, the idea of them having to do 
Gotenks just seems impossible. I have no idea. Yes. Like, Gotenks would just completely break the concept of DBZ abridged because Gotenks is DBZ abridged. Yes. But I think it was something really special. And, and you know, we'll always have all the movies they did and and the whole show. It's, it's a really great production if you've never seen it. And, um, you know, those guys deserve a round of applause for it because I will say, if nothing else, they are the only group that has done a good English Goku to me, that got, did mm-hmm. an English Goku that actually sounded like Goku to me. Um, and that is hugely worthy of, of acclaim to, from my end. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Like, yeah, DBZ Abridged is great. I think if you're like, if you have no experience with it and you're starting from the beginning, I think some of the early stuff is kind of rough now. Um, it's a little dated. You, yeah, you go back. There's there's like a gay joke or two that you would not make today. Yeah, there's some of that kind of stuff. It's yeah, it's it's from a different era of internet humor. Um, the early DBZ bridge stuff. But once you get to at least like probably about Namek is when it starts getting better. And then especially once you get to some of the later movie ones and the Android to sell stuff, that stuff is like golden. It's so so good. So yeah, if you have if you're a fan of DBZ and you have not seen DBZ abridged, it is a great time. And I. Still, to this day, like, periodically we'll just put on particularly any of the movie episodes they did because they're nice, self-contained ones. And it's a fun way to appreciate, like, the great animation in, like, the legendary Super Saiyan Broly without actually having to watch the, like, 90 minutes or whatever the fucking ridiculous running time it is for that, that, that goddamn film. And I can just be like, yeah, this is, like, look how good this animation looks and here's some funny jokes to laugh at over it. Um, and it's a solid, like, 20 minutes of my life. Um, and that's a way better way to experience most of the dbz films than just actually watching them yes like if they ever want to come back and do more they should just do some of the movies they haven't done like that would be the place to do it like i think they could have fun with like a bio broly or something but um it's great movie six which is the return of cooler which i think they called like the return of cooler's revenge because those movies in english are very confusingly titled um and and that's the one where they're on new namek and it has a couple of my favorite jokes in the whole DBZ abridged, one of which is Piccolo and Gohan and Krillin are fighting all the robots and they can't beat them. And then Piccolo's like, well, what if I just hit them extra hard and it beats them? And he's like, go on, we just have to hit them really fucking hard. And Gohan's like, that sounds like something my dad would say. And it's great. And then there's the joke where they do this loop of Vegeta getting kicked by Cooler across the screen. And then he comes back and gets kicked again. And they loop it for like 30 seconds. Yeah. Oh, so many good memories. Um, such a cool thing they, they pulled off. And yeah, I, I would... It, it makes me wish... You know, I know some people love the Funimation dub. I'm not... I, I don't like... I, like, I love the, the passion behind it often. Um, and I know all the people who do the Funimation dub are, dub are well-meaning. But, like, there's just a lot that that show has never quite nailed for me. And I'm like, DBZ Abridged kind of nailed it in so many different ways. Even though it was a joke series. And that's kind of a special thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some other news, Sean. Um, I wanted to briefly just mention the Oscars last week. Uh, the Oscars had really terrible nominations, but they wound up having really good wins because, among other cool wins, Parasite made history as the first foreign language film to win Best Picture in the Oscars, you know, 100-plus year history, uh, which also, it was the first South Korean film nominated for anything, which is one of those things where it's like, 
How? How was South Korea... South Korea, which if you somehow don't know, has like one of the most vibrant cinemas of the last 30 years. How is it never nominated for anything? But somehow it had never been nominated for anything. So Bong Joon-ho made history. He also... Bong Joon-ho won four awards in one night, which is the most since Walt Disney in the 1950s. Um, so, so many cool things. And just... I had never dared to hope Parasite the actual best film of 2019 could win and it did and then Bong Joon-ho took his Oscars backstage and made them kiss and that picture is amazing if you haven't seen it how cool how cool is that Sean yeah because I think especially you because you're more tuned into this stuff but even me like going into Oscar night is just like seeing the nominations it felt pretty grim I mean you know go listen to the last podcast we did where you had some aside those like how grim the yeah. fucking Oscar nominations were um and there there was we got frighteningly close to a world where Joker won Best Picture. Like we were, we were, we were on the precipice, Jonathan. Um, and we, we were, didn't go, and we didn't go that way. Which you know, maybe, maybe things are just turning around in general. Maybe that's a sign of things to come. That like good things can happen in the world too. Yeah, I mean, there was although a lot of the ones where it's like they had historic wins that night were ones that also just made you cringe, like. It is cringy that that it took this long for a non-English language film to win Best Picture. You know, that's Mm kind of cringy. Um, It's cringy that they had not ever recognized South fucking Korea, which is crazy. Um, The Joker won Best Actor, and it also won Best Score. And Best Score is one where I have no complaints. Joker had a great score, and its composer, I'm forgetting her name right now, but she was the first woman to win that award since 1997. Uh, and back in, in the 90s, uh, original score was actually split into two scores, a comedy score and a drama score. And no woman has ever won the standalone when they, they combined the categories. And that's also that's one that's like, oh, that's so cool. But also, how did you not give this to a woman in 24 years or, or yeah. whatever it's been? Um, or that because Greta Gerwig lost screenplay, well, it went to Taika Waititi, which is cool because Taika Waititi is awesome and Jojo Rabbit is good and he is one of the first um, indigenous peoples to ever win an Academy Award. But also, a woman has not won screenplay in the 2000s yet, either screenplay award, which is unconscionable, you know? Um, So the Oscars have a long way to go, but maybe some signs of hope. And have you seen Parasite yet, Sean? No, I have not. I've not found the time yet. See it? I know the hype is now through the roof, but it is that good. It's just that good. It's 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 funny when a movie is just like so... It, it takes a lot for a movie to be good enough that the entire fucking world can't ignore it, you know? Um, yeah. And that's what's happened. It's That movie has made like 50 million in the U.S., which I know doesn't sound like a lot, but for a foreign language film, I think it's the third highest grossing in U.S. history. It's, it's wild, you know? So anyway, that was cool. Um, let's do some more movie news. Um... Doctor Strange 2. We had not talked about this yet, Sean. Right. But um, the director of Doctor Strange, uh, Scott Derrickson, uh, who directed the first one, he was going to be coming back for the sequel, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. A couple months ago, he dropped out of the movie due to creative differences. Uh, Marvel has not had a big shakeup like that in a while, so it was kind of like, oh, what's going on at Marvel? Um, But he had dropped out. But all's well that ends well, I guess, because Marvel has signed Sam motherfucking Raimi to direct Doctor Strange 2 and that is one of the most exciting sentences I've ever gotten to read on this podcast Sean yeah it's I feel bad that you know I'm like Scott Derrickson did a very very good job with Doctor Strange 1 and it sucks that he doesn't get to make a sequel to that movie um 
but it's Sam Raimi though. And so, yeah, yeah, it was just, I mean, not, you know, this was predicted in the seminal film, Spider-Man two, wherein Sam Raimi made what must surely be the first reference to the character, Dr. Strange in the history of cinema, which is, um, them making kind of trying to come up with the name for Dr. Octopus in the Beagle offices. And like the intern dude with the glasses or whatever says, Dr. Strange in JJ's like, I don't like it, uh, but it's already taken. And yep. you know, there's a good Dr. Strange reference there. I think that's the first time I had ever heard of Dr. Strange because I had not read any of those comics at that point. Um, and, and yeah, so then like what, like 15 years later now, Sam Raimi is signed on to make a Dr. Strange movie. And that is a very good choice. It is, because Sam Raimi is wonderful. He has directed very little in the last 10 years. Um, he made Drag Me to Hell after Spider-Man 3, and then he made Oz the Great and Powerful, which is not good. And I'm not sure it's his fault, but it's very bad. Um, and he hasn't made any movies since then. He did direct the pilot to Ash vs. the Evil Dead, which a lot of people love that show. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I watched the first um, two seasons. It's very good. Okay, cool. So, So he just hasn't done a lot. This is exciting. I hope it is like fully engaged Spider-Man Sam Raimi and not Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh my God, I need a paycheck. Please get me out of here. This movie's awful, Sam Raimi. I, I assume it will be the latter because like 99% of Sam Raimi's stuff is fucking gold. Even Spider-Man 3, rough script. But directorial-wise, there's so much goofy shit in that movie I love. And that's the man we need for Doctor Strange, because Doctor Strange should be goofy and weird. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Strange as a, like, property is just a much, much better fit for Sam Raimi than... It's maybe the best fit for Sam Raimi that any property could possibly have. Um, yes. Compared to Wizard of Oz, which is just like, uh, okay, yeah. sure. I mean, yeah. It's not, it's, there's nothing about Wizard of Oz that stands out to me that's like, yes, yeah, Sam Raimi should make a Wizard of Oz movie. To the extent that I always forget that he made that, because, I mean, I never saw it. Um, This also makes it, Sean, a real likelihood that we will get Bruce Campbell in the MCU now. Yes. Yes. So so I hope we do that. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce Bruce Campbell should just be one of the wizards. You know, I like Benedict Cumberbatch, but (laughs) what what if Bruce Campbell was just... No, that's what they should do in one of the universes. Bruce Campbell is that universe's Doctor Strange in the multiverse. Oh, that'd be so good. Oh, that just can you can you picture in your mind's eye Bruce Campbell wearing that fucking cloak? It's yes, just, mm, yes, give it to me, please. Well, we are definitely looking forward to that. Let's do a little video game news, Sean. Uh, two pieces of video game news. First, there was a Kickstarter last week, which I thought was interesting. Platinum Games launched a Kickstarter for the Wonderful 101 Remastered. Uh, the Wonderful 101 was a game they made for the Wii U back in the Wii U days. It was acclaimed. It's got a real cult following. People love that game, but it sold nothing. Like, in its opening week in Japan, it sold less than 10,000 copies. It sold nothing, because it was on the Wii U. Uh, And they wanted to do a remaster of it. Apparently, they had reached out to Nintendo, and Nintendo did not want to publish it. They couldn't get anyone else to publish it, so they went to Kickstarter. They started out asking for $50,000 on Kickstarter, uh, and that 50000 would get a Switch uh, release of the remaster. And if they made it to, I think, 200000 is when they were going to do a PS4 remaster. And somewhere in the middle was for PC, for Steam. It made a $1 million in 24 hours. As of this recording, uh, 12 days in, it has made $1,654,000. Uh, it has 25,500 backers, which is close to, like, probably the lifetime sales of the Wii U game. <laughs> um 
And it's got 18 days to go. I hope we get to that 1.75 million mark because that's when they're doing a cool remix soundtrack and that sounds fun. Um, So yeah, that was, I have to say, Sean, I was one of the people who donated to that like literally immediately because that was the most no-brainer Kickstarter I've ever seen. Like, oh, this is Platinum Games. Platinum Games makes awesome shit. I have never played this one. Oh, it's going to be on Switch. I just give them my money now and I get a cool copy of this game, probably for cheaper than when it actually comes out. No fucking brainer. I was happy to support that. And an interesting move from Platinum Games to to have to go this route. Yeah. It's kind of weird, just the sense of, like, $50,000 would not get you a port of anything. Like, you could barely port, I don't know, fucking Papers, Please to the Switch for $50,000. Like, that's that's no yeah. money. So I mean, the, the story is that I think the remaster, they've basically made it, and it's for publishing it. Yeah, it's, it's clear that this is, like, almost more probably marketing than anything else like i can't imagine that they actually needed that like if they yeah like the fifty thousand dollars if if they had if they had capped at fifty thousand dollars that fifty thousand dollars would not in any way have affected the development or release of right. a remake of wonderful 101 is such a like pittance of money um in the scale of, of production like that for that kind of studio um so like that's a little bit it's like a weird usage of kickstarter but at the end of the day, like, I mean, mostly what it is is just people pre-ordering Wonderful 101, a Wonderful 101 port, and they're, they're just doing it through Kickstarter rather than through Amazon is, at the end of the day, basically what Platinum did, which is weird and kind of cool. And it's smart. I mean, Platinum, they also said they have wanted to get more into self-publishing, which I think makes sense. Platinum is a big studio, but they've had to have kind of a, a tangled web of different relationships with different, like, like publishers basically and you know a lot of the time these days they're nintendo exclusive but very clearly they would like to be on everything you know they they're doing that thing where um later this month there's a port for ps4 and xbox one of bayonetta and vanquish which is weird because bayonetta will be on ps4 but they absolutely 100 percent will never be able to publish bayonetta 2 or 3 on ps4 because those are fully owned by nintendo um so, you know, I, I think it, it makes sense to try to, like, do this as, yeah, it's probably more publicity than anything, but it's publicity that kind of gets fans motivated. It got a lot of attention. The game clearly is going to do well because of this and hopefully builds them a base for, you know, more independent publishing, which I think is good because Platinum is a really cool developer. So that's yeah. all. Um, finally, Bloomberg News, and I hate that I have to say that name, um, <laughs> had a report this week about Sony struggling to lower the cost of the PS5 uh, ahead of its launch later this year. This is because DRAM and NAND flash memory are in really competitive supply this year because of smartphone manufacturing, and this has raised prices for all the components in the system. Uh, The system also has a really expensive cooling design, more expensive than your standard console. Um, Sony is apparently pretty sensitive to this because the PS4 is famously the loudest machine ever created. Um, the manufacturing right now, Sony has pegged at about $450 per unit, which means to sell it for a profit, they would have to sell for above $450, which would be $500. Um, Sony sold for a loss on the PS3, but that famously did not go very well. So they were kind of bullish on this and, and did not sell for a loss on the PS4. Um, it, it feels like, Sean, we are headed to a world where the Xbox and PS5 will be $500 at launch this fall. Mm-hmm. I really don't see how they get below that. And the Xbox, who knows, could be even more expensive. Um, 
and and it seems like they are both in a game of chicken where Sony and Microsoft are waiting for the other to announce their price before they announce their price. And they might just have to hold hands and jump off the ledge together and both do 500. And we'll see how that goes. What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think I had been kind of preparing for 500 to be the price for these consoles for a while just based on, like, SSD, like, inflation, stuff like that. Like, you know, the PS4 and Xbox One, I think, historically are one of the only consoles to ever have been sold for a profit. Almost every console has been sold at a loss. Um, and that PS4 and Xbox One, partially because relative to the, like, technology available at their release were fairly underpowered devices, like, a lot more powerful than the Xbox 360 and PS3. But, like, compared to a high-end PC in 2013, they were pretty weak. Um, so this, So they're, like, pitching... But Sony and Microsoft are pitching these consoles as being, like... You know, they're never going to be as good as the most high-end of PCs, but much more competitive in that space by implementing stuff like ray tracing, which is brand new, by using um, an SSD as the default, which is something that PC has never had because it's so modular. Um, So they're, like, really kind of pushing these platforms as being, as power being kind of an element that is part of their marketing, more so than PS4 and Xbox One where it felt like they couldn't push that because it just wasn't a reality for those consoles at the time. Um, And so that means $500 kind of just feels like what it would be. Like, it would be nice if they said, yeah, fuck it, well, let's sell it at a loss and sell it for $400 because that's what consoles have been sold for since, like, the beginning of time or whatever. Um, But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Like, price is one of the last things to get set for these consoles. The, The price for the PS4 was basically set that E3 when they announced it because that was one of the the game of chicken where they waited and Xbox had their press conference first. Sony had their press conference later that day. So they saw the Xbox price and were like, okay, yeah, we can go for cheaper than that. So let's make sure we're doing $400 then. That was fine. That works fine for us. And they announced that price that day. So yeah, I'm very curious to see what happens with this because I don't think $500 is out completely outlandish. Um, but I sure would like $400 to be the price. It's, it's definitely not outlandish, but it, there's just not a lot of success stories in recent memory of a console launching for that expensive and being a success. Um, the PS5 was viewed as, or the PS3 was viewed as exorbitant because it launched at like 600, which is admittedly much worse. Well, but... it was, it was like 500 and 600. It okay. had two different SKUs. So like the expensive one was $600. Right, but the cheap one was 500 and yes. either way, the PS3 had a really bad launch. Um, the Xbox One, we all kind of forget this, but it launched at 500 because they had the Kinect bundled in. Very bad launch, and they had to slash the Kinect to try to get it down to 400 like ASA fucking P. Um, if they're both at 500 maybe that kind of is a mutually assured destruction, and, and they both do roughly the same, but I'm just... I think you take that price point combined with the fact that this is going to be a really busy year for games and most of those games are going to be on the current gen platforms which is going to make the current gen platforms look very active and healthy um you add that most games launching will be cross-platform like xbox has basically said for at least two years i don't know what sony's plan for all of that is um you add that the Nintendo Switch is in the middle, like, healthiest portion of its life cycle, and its entry unit is $200, and they will maybe have a Zelda sequel out as these consoles are launching. There's just a lot of headwinds that make me curious how these are going to do 
relative to other successes. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't think the Switch thing is really a factor because if anything, I think probably the Switch has proved that it's in its own market. Like the release of the Switch did not really affect the sales of PS4s. Like PS4 is selling just as well post-Switch, pre-Switch. Like it's, it's yeah. they're clearly like, the Switch has really effectively positioned itself in its own niche in the marketplace. So I, I don't feel like that's going to be a factor. I think more of what I'm curious about just because we haven't really seen it yet other than like a very brief trailer for the Hellblade sequel is what are they pitching in terms of software for launch and and like the launch window or whatever on that classic console term, the launch window for however long you want it to be. Um, So yeah, like that's the thing that I'm most curious about because that's going to be the main thing that you pitch your console on. So when we see Horizon Zero Dawn 2 or whatever it is for the PS5, whatever kind of launch... What I assume will be a launch exclusive for the PS5 that won't have a PS4 version, just based on vaguely what Sony has said. Um, it seems like they're not going to go with the Microsoft strategy. That's going to be, for me, like a big moment just in sort of trying to like feel like new consoles being a thing that's an actual reality, rather than just talking about SSDs and fucking however much RAM they have and teraflops and all that kind of nonsense. Like, we need to actually, like, have a real demo of a video game. We have to have an actual event that is announcing and, like, discussing and demoing these kinds of, uh, the, this hardware and the and the software that's going to come out on it. And until that point, it just feels like, whatever. Like, who knows? It, it could be $600. Maybe it's, it's crazy. They're like, fuck it. We're going to sell it for, like, we're going to lose 150 bucks on every one of these babies. And we're going to sink the company. But we're going to sell it for $300 because fuck it. Who knows? Who knows, indeed. We'll talk about that more in the future. But for now, Sean, let's talk about the past. And let's look over the top 10 games of 2019 as we previewed earlier. Again, we're a little late to this topic, but that's going to make it even better than ever because that gave me, Sean, time to catch up on a couple things I wanted to play. My top 10 list is weird and it is eclectic and it has at least two games we have never even said the name of on this show. Interesting. I, so I, have, have, I have one game on my list at least that I am sure nobody is predicting because it would be – I'd be impressed if you predict. It's not that I've never said the name of this game, but it's been a very long time since I said it. Okay, well, I'm excited. Let's let's find out, Sean. Um, so this is our top 10 games of 2019. I think at this point, you pretty much know our process. We, we play the games and, and, you know, we count them down. And do you have any, like, overall thoughts on 2019 as a year before we dive into the countdown? Um, I mean, because this was the hardest list I've had to make since probably, like, 2015 or 14 yeah. or whatever. Like, it's been a long time. For me personally... Partially because this year was, compared to the last couple of years, which were just ridiculous um, with incredible game releases, this year wasn't a, like, bad year for video games, but it was a much more, it feels like a normal year for video games in the past yeah. couple of years. Um, 2017 and 2018 were, like, absurd outliers. Um, and that coupled with the fact that this is, like, no question, easily by far the busiest I've been in my whole life, like, between student teaching in the spring and and teaching teaching in fall and then all the shit that happened around that like i just did not have nearly as much time to play games this year and like not as much energy to play games this year um as i have in years past so my list was a desperate scramble in some ways to get 10 games together 
Um, and and I probably should have used the extra few weeks that we had to like play some games like Resident Evil Two that I wanted to play. But I was also like, but Dragon Ball Z Kakarot came out, so I said just fucking I'll just play new games and and play old stuff later. Um, so so yeah, so mine is definitely a very thin list. My honorable mentions are almost non-existent. I have a couple, but but almost non-existent. Yeah, my list is thinner in years past, but I can honestly say I really love, um, or at least really deeply admire all 10 games on my list. I was able to make a 10 that felt like a, a good top 10. Like some of these are games that feel like in other years they would be honorable mentions because there just were fewer great games this year. But I really like the 10. I do have a couple honorable mentions. Uh, I played many fewer new games this year than I have in years past. I, I spent a lot of time playing stuff like... Like, I gave myself license to play old stuff. I spent the spring playing old Dragon Quest games. I spent the summer playing Dark Souls. And I played Cuphead. And I played lots of old stuff. I played Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Um... So I gave myself a little more license for that. I missed a couple of the big games that I think are probably on your list. Like, I never played Control. I played a little bit of Outer Wilds, and I I didn't like it. But we can talk about that later. Um, so, yeah. So my list is kind of weird and eclectic, but um, I'm really happy with it. And I'm glad I took some time to play a couple extra things I wanted to check off. Because some of them rose pretty high on my list. Um and, you know, I think you probably can guess what our number one is. I'm pretty sure we have the same number one. Yeah, if and you no- just said the word hour, then yes, they have to do. Yeah. Because, again, you know, don't want to spoil things too hard to make it too obvious for people. But we literally have already released a podcast that if you use some logic. Yes. Yes. Duh. Uh, of course it is. The- this year, Sean, I think was a lot like 2015, where 2015 was kind of a eh year for games. But it had The Witcher 3. <laughs> Yes. And The Witcher 3 was like the biggest, most obvious number one of all time. Uh, 2019 was very, very similar to that. Let's just say that. So let's go ahead and dive in, Sean. Um, why don't you kick us off? Give us, give us your number 10. All right. My number 10, and, and you will, as soon as I say this, you'll know immediately what I mean by I had to scramble to figure out 10 games from my list. My number 10 is the Hideo Kojima masterpiece? Death Stranding. See the sunset. So the the battle for number ten for my list very competitive. Um, it was between Death Stranding and Outer Worlds with like Apex Legends sitting. So Apex Legends is one of my honorable mentions, and it probably should probably actually be my number ten. I just didn't really play enough of it for me to feel confident in having anything to, like substance to say about that game because I only played probably played like eight hours of it total, um, which is nowhere near enough for a multiplayer game like that. Um, Outer Worlds is like dullness personified in video game form basically by the time you get to the end of it and death stranding is many things but dull is very one very very rarely one of them 
Um, Death Stranding is a weird fucking video game. Like, a truly strange video game. And not in the ways that Hideo Kojima games are usually just weird. Like, when I say, like, a Metal Gear game is weird, usually what I mean is that there's, like, inexplicably recurring character whose primary feature is that he has diarrhea. And Metal Gear Solid 4, he marries the heroine of the first Metal Gear Solid. Um, that's how those games are weird, because Metal Gear is a bad franchise. Um, Death Stranding is weird because Hideo Kojima just basically made a video game that's about hiking um, and layered some very deeply, deeply obvious clunky metaphors just like on top of all of it and then just stuffed a bunch of awful boss fights at the end and then called it a day. Um, And so Death Stranding is a game that probably about 90% of it I enjoyed a lot. Um, the, The core gameplay loop and the core kind of gameplay dynamic of moving through this world um, engaging with the terrain, all the different tools and traversal tools available to you, like the ladders and the rope and like the climbing ropes you can make, building bridges, coming together with other people that you're seamlessly connected to in a Dark Souls fashion to make highways um, and stuff like that, and, and encountering abandoned motorcycles on the path that was made by some other um, you know, journeyer in their own Death Stranding world, and that kind of saving you because you're running um, out of stamina or something. Like, all those moments where you're just in that world delivering items and not having to deal with, like, any of the clunky combat that kind of sometimes pops up or the, like, really overbearing story. But the game just lets it be itself and breathe. It's really fun, and it's a really unique, fascinating experience that I hope a lot more video games look at some of the things that Kojima does as a game designer here um, and take some inspiration for how to expand the kind of Dark Souls, um, like, always connected... Uh, sort of like thin uh, online multiplayer elements here where Death Stranding kind of leans a lot harder into that. Um, Looking at the ways they make just the feel of traversal really dynamic and engaging without having to give you superpowers. Like, you know, most games that we think about the traversal being fun is something like Spider-Man, where the traversal is this very exaggerated, ridiculous, over-the-top mechanic of you fling yourself, like, jumping over buildings and shooting webs and fling yourself at incredible speeds. And that's never Death Stranding. Like, the fastest you go in Death Stranding is, like, 40 miles per hour on a bad motorcycle. And that's, and you're like, I'm fucking cooking it, man. Usually in Death Stranding, you're like gingerly stepping over rocks or like you know doing that thing where you're like kind of running down a hill a little bit too fast and feel like you're going to lose your balance and that very tactile feel of the movement in the game is phenomenal and and it's that element is what gets it number 10 on my spot is is when the game just gets to be itself which it is for most of the game it's really really good the other really good thing in the game (laughs) is Mads Mikkelsen so, uh, Death Stranding gets my Mads Mikkelsen is really fucking cool award, which goes to Mads Mikkelsen for being really fucking cool, because the ending of Death Stranding is a goddamn trash fire, but it does end with, like, basically a 90-minute CG movie that stars Mads Mikkelsen primarily, um, and it's the, his whole character's backstory, um, Cliff, his name is Cliff, and if you thought that, oh, in a world where everyone's named Die Hard Man because he's hard to kill, and Dead Man because he's, like sort of like he died and he's kind of you know had to get pieced back together in mama who is a mom and fragile who's fragile but not that fragile um which is her catchphrase because these games characters are suck if you think in like that range of very creative naming that very creative naming scheme and like characterizations that cliff is just a dude named cliff 
Well, unfortunately, the last cutscene of this game, he basically this no, it's it's not the last last cutscene, but one of his last cutscenes. He basically says to Sam, the main character, is like, "I am a cliff, an obstacle for you to overcome." And at that point, I almost threw my controller at the TV because, uh, like, I thought this was just a dude. Like, I want Kojima to challenge himself and like name a character David. In well, no, there's the Bible. You've got Bible on that one. Yep. Think he needs to just come up with the hardest name to make that kind of just ridiculous, obvious metaphor with um, and just keep on upping the ante because I didn't see that cliff thing coming and it caught me by surprise. Um, but the last 90 minutes is basically Cliff's backstory and most of the performances in Death Stranding are good, if not incredible, because I think most of the characters are very thin and there are a couple of good moments like Die Hard Man has a great moment at the end of the game where the actor just nails this scene and it's like this really emotional scene for the character and the actor knocks it out of the park but that character sucks and like doesn't have like much to him like almost all the characters of the game so it doesn't actually affect me that much um Mads Mikkelsen is just so cool and he has such a like complete control over his like facial features the tone of his voice that it's not as if Cliff is actually on like the page a much better character than Sam Porter Bridges or Die Hard Man or Dead Man or Fragile or um, Higgs, who the Troy Baker character who is so called because he's like the Higgs boson, man. He's like the God particle. He can be everywhere because fuck off. Oh my God. Um, Cliff is not a better written character necessarily. It's just Mads Mikkelsen. Mads Mikkelsen is just that good and he is on Kojima's wavelength. Um, and so while most of the story I didn't like that much and like the whole big last twist and everything in the last cutscene, I don't really give a shit. Um, but Matt Mickelson's very good and it is a freakishly perfect digital version of Matt Mickelson. So I don't know what Kojima's going to do next. I don't know if he's going to make a Death Stranding 2. I don't know whatever he's going to do. Whatever he's going to do... Uh, make a game that stars Mads Mikkelsen next time because he should be, I should be controlling him. He should be in every single cutscene because anytime he's on screen, I would have, that was the only time I enjoyed the story just because I was looking at Mads Mikkelsen be Mads Mikkelsen. Well, I can't wait for Hideo Kojima's Hannibal game. I mean, yes, yes, do that, basically. Imagine you're not going to get the license, but you could just, you know, make a fake Hannibal and call him Cannibal. There you go. That's... Can you imagine oh how my God. the fucking game would be in that, yeah. Sean? No, but if Hideo Kojima made Hannibal, he literally would just name the character Cannibal. That's just what he would do. <laughs> He'd just be Cannibal Man. So, yes, I can't wait until Cannibal Man, the hit video game of 2022 starring Mads Mikkelsen. Um, but so those are the good elements of Death Stranding. There's a couple of really bad elements of Death Stranding that I just have to talk about, mostly because we haven't actually talked about it in depth since I beat the game. Um, so there are two other awards I give to Death Stranding. One is the Man, I Was Really Busy This Year award, um, and that goes to a game that is maybe kind of a bad game, but it's still on my list. Um, and it's also known as the Halo 5 distinction for technically making the list because this was 2015 where my number 10 game was Halo 5 because I just didn't play that many new games that year. And it was a thin year, as we already mentioned. And, you know, Witcher 3 was the saving grace. It was like it was a good thing that that was a thin year because I could put 120 hours into fucking Witcher 3 and not really miss out on anything. Um, and so this is the first time since that that I put a game at my number 10 that. Death Stranding normally would never be in my top 10. It would uh, it would be an honorable mention. It would absolutely be an honorable mention any other year because I did enjoy so much of it. Um, but it, it, yeah, you know, 
if it's fun a game to talk about. The other award it gets is the I thought we had gotten over this bullshit award for a game that's like mostly kind of all right, but then it has those fucking boss fights, man. Jesus Christ, the whole ending of this game, Jonathan. It's been so long since I played a video game that had boss fights this bad. It used to be a relatively common thing, right? You'd have like a Bioshock or Arkham Asylum that the game's really good for most of it. Maybe some of the boss fights in the middle are good. Maybe some of them are bad. And then you get to the last boss fight and it's just like a tragedy of game design. It's just like it's, such an awful conclusion and finale to the game. It's it's. I think people forget because like FromSoft came in this decade and like raised the bar for everybody for boss fights. But like... For most of game history, especially 3D video games, yes. like 90s on, boss fights were just horrible. And I, until honestly this year when I played Dark Souls and like learned to love 3D bosses when they're good, I just had a visceral hatred for boss fights in video games because usually they're really bad. Like 2D games, it's a little different, but like definitely in 3D, any kind of action game, anything that's not like a straight up JRPG, boss fights would just be the fucking worst, especially in American designed games. Um, and I guess, I guess Death Stranding is Japanese design, but still, like, it would just, yeah, it would be awful, and you would dread them, and, yeah, I thought we were over that too, Sean. Yeah, because there are lots of, and it's not just Dark Souls, there are lots of games that have great boss fights, um, and there's some games like Monster Hunter that are basically just designed around the concept of boss fights, and those are great, um, but yeah, the last time I was so annoyed at boss fights in a video game was probably Metal Gear Solid Five, which also had some just fucking absolute clunkers um and death stranding has a couple of bad boss fights in the middle sections of the game but they're like not that remarkable anytime you have to fight one of the big bt monsters which are like the big oily whales and there's a couple of other types of them that you have to just throw grenades at those aren't good but they're not that bad um but then at the end of death stranding basically once you get through the main map of the game so you have a tutorial map which is a small section of a map and then once you get through that you get into this big open area um where you start out in this area with all the highways and then eventually you get up into the mountains which is the best section of the game with the zip lines and all of that then once you get through the mountains you go um and you're more or less funneled into a what is probably about eight hours of the game which is a pretty linear um sequence of like action events broken up by very long cutscenes, and it becomes a bad it becomes like metal gear solid 4 basically um just with slightly different mechanics and so once you're in that section you just get boss fight after boss fight after boss fight and all of them are so tedious um all the boss fights against the mads mickelson characters suck they're like these weird pseudo stealth sections but the stealth in this game is awful and all the combat is awful the shooting is awful the melee is awful you get in a big fist fight with higgs which fucking sucks and is boring and and i should note none of the boss fights are hard i don't think i died on any of them this is a very very easy game and i played on the hard difficulty so it's not about like oh, uh, this is bullshit because I keep on getting killed and it's annoying that way. It's just, like, the action of, like, mechanically seeing the boss fight through to its conclusion is dull and tedious. Um, so it's just, like, you punching Troy Baker over and over again and then him teleporting and you throwing a box at him and then punching him over and over again and him teleporting. You just do that, like, a dozen fucking times and it's boring. And there's, like, a fake video game, like, like fighting game Tekken thing that they do with that's, like, Kojima trying to be, like, cute with his genre stuff where like life bars pop up on the screen it's like look it's like a fighting game but it's him just basically redoing the ending metal gear solid 4 only with the characters you don't actually care about um and then you go and you fight a giant fucking space whale and the amount of like rocket launchers you fire at the end of this game is truly shocking because (laughs) i thought for the longest time this would be a rare video game that does not feature a rocket launcher 
Um, not only does it have a rocket launcher, but it has it only has one rocket launcher, which is a rocket launcher that fires four rockets. And there are two boss fights at the end of the game. They're just entirely you running around below a giant fucking monster and you firing a rocket launcher up at them. And it's basically the fucking end of chapter one of Metal Gear Solid Five, where you fight the Solanthropist or the like whatever the Metal Gear weird old metal gear thing is in that game where it's just like i'm just a little dude on the ground shooting a rocket launcher at a giant monster this fucking is boring and sucks and its health bar is way too long and i'm just like running around in circles waiting for like new ammo to spawn in and you don't just do that once you do it fucking twice at the end of this game and it sucks um and so you do all of that and then you sit on a beach for like what feels like three hours while people monologue at you while the credits play um there is a truly truly asinine sequence where the credits play while you're sitting on in like a spectral beach in like the afterlife basically and then about every five minutes the credits stop and then the um uh, amelie character your like sister who's actually your mom or whatever the horse shit that character is um who's actually you're watching neon genesis evangelion right jonathan yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Twitter, like, she's some like. There's some Neon Genesis Evangelion bullshit that happens at the end of this game that we can talk about once we do the, maybe that podcast. So I'll mention it because um, it's it's very rip. It feels like it kind of is ripping off stuff from that series. Um, but then she just like tells you she sits and monologues to you while you're sitting on this beach for another like five to ten minutes about stuff that doesn't even matter because you've already won. You've be- beaten the game at this point, and then the credits start playing for five more minutes, and then it stops again, and she she narrates to you. And it does that, I swear to God, like seven or eight times. Um, And in between those sections, while it's just playing the credits, you're stuck on this beach and you can run around. But if you try to run away too far, it just respawns you back to the beginning. So I was just doing this thing because I was so bored of what this game was just making me sit there and watch the credits and wait for exposition that didn't matter anymore because the game was already over. Is I would just mash on R2 and L2 um, because in Death Stranding, the triggers control your arms and make you grab onto your backpack so if you're like tipping over because you're carrying all this weight on your back you would like hold l2 if you're tipping to the right to balance him um so that makes his arms go up to his chest and so if you press those triggers really fast it just makes it look like he's scratching his chest really fast and it's a very funny animation so it's just sitting on this beach like for 10 minutes at a time either trying to get see how far out i could get before it would teleport me um, then I tried to kill myself by jumping off of this small little rock that they have that would like do a little bit of damage and I could never kill myself because I don't think it's possible. And then I just stood with my like, you know, feet soaking in water, making Sam scratch his chest over and over again because it's a very funny animation to just have cycle very quickly and then wait it for It sounds Lindsay like Wagner. you became fucking Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, like seeing yes. how many different ways you could kill yourself. And, That's like, what it really felt bored. like. It's just I'm sitting on this spectral fucking beach waiting for Lindsay Wagner to say bullshit that doesn't matter to me. Um, and that sucks. And then and then the best part, this is spoilers for the very, very ending of Death Stranding, but you want to hear this because it's so funny. So the whole game you have your bridge baby, your BB, right? Um, about the midpoint of the game, Sam completely inexplicably gives the BB a name Lou. Um, and you never, it doesn't happen in the cutscene. He just starts saying it. Um, and it's very weird because he just starts saying it in incidental dialogue and it makes it feel like they flagged that dialogue to play earlier than it was supposed to. Um, because it basically, he starts calling the BB Lou before you get the cutscene where that name ever comes up. So he just starts talking about Lou all of a sudden when you're just walking around in the world and saying like, Oh, what's up Lou? Uh, you're like, why are you saying this? Norman Reedus, did you get high in the booth? I believe it. 
Um, <laughs> and and so you're talking to you have this BB Lou, um, and then there's all this bullshit about how you were a BB and that all that stuff doesn't matter. Um, but then at the very end of the game, the whole thing is that Norman Reedus is he, he rebuilt the connections of America by building the super internet. That's probably bad, actually, but we're not going to actually dwell on the how the super internet is evil because we're just not going to. And then all of your friends save you um, because this is like the the most dour, fucking dull persona story you'll ever find in a not a persona game. And all your friends save you, and it's your connections with your friends that ultimately pull you out of the spectral beach and save you from the the endless fucking um, exposition that Lindsay Wagner is giving you. And so it made me like all these characters a lot more when it's like, yes, dead man, fake Guillermo del Toro, please rescue me from this endless exposition fucking nightmare. Um, But then at the very end, Sam's like, he keeps on just rejecting everybody and everyone's like trying to be like, hey, but we're all friends now, right? And Fragile's like, hey, like we should probably hook up probably because the closest thing this game has to love interest for you. And Sam's like, I may have rebuilt America, but that doesn't mean I rebuilt myself. Right or bullshit, he says. Um, that's not the actual line, but it might as well be. Um, <laughs> it sounds like it would be. Yeah, it's not that far off. There is, backing up for a second, the best line of this game, the best exchange, is when the, you catch up to your sister, who's actually your mom, who's at the other side of the country. That's your like goal for most of the game, is to get to the West Coast to meet up with her because she's trapped there. You go there, and you find out it was all bullshit, because of course you did like you could see that coming from the like first hour of this game um but but when she announces this news to sam um he's like no what am i mario and your princess beach and it is the worst piece of dialogue in any video game i've ever seen it's so fucking awful it feels like a joke that kojima like just scribbled in the margins of a script and Norman Reedus <laughs> didn't realize that that wasn't an actual piece of dialogue. It was just a joke, and he just said it anyways. Um, and they kept it in the edit. Um, so, yeah. So, the dialogue in this game is awful. Anyways, back to the ending where he's like, I'm for whatever reason, I'm still going to reject all the social connections I made, even though it seems like that's the point of the game. Anyways, my BB is dying, and they say that like your BB is being decommissioned. So, you have to go to the incinerator and throw your BB into the incinerator. Um, because the first thing you do in the game is throw a is take the president's body to the incinerator. So they're kind of there's like a full toll circle things come around kind of feel to it. Obviously though, Lou is not actually dead. You actually break Lou out of the BB pod, um, and and presumably Norman Reedus goes off to you know raise Lou somewhere else, and then it goes to smash cut to black, um, and he he says something like, "Let's go home, Luis." And it turns out, the big shocking twist, Lou was a girl the whole time, I guess? And they play it, they play it like they play it at the end of Metal Gear Solid when Revolver Ocelot has like this weird ominous conversation with someone on the phone and he says, Mr. President. Which in Metal Gear Solid, that works. When all you're doing is saying... This baby, who you vaguely assumed was a guy because that's how it was like a boy... Because that's how characters refer to it, and he got the like the generically masculine name Lou. Actually, that baby has the generically feminine name Luis, which I suppose means that baby is a girl. Okay, and that's how Death Stranding ended. Womp womp. Yep, it's the game with a colossally awful ending. But I played probably about fifty hours of that game in forty hours. I really enjoyed. So 
I don't know how like what that means for recommendation for people who haven't played it. Um, maybe just play through that middle section, get to the zip lines, have some fun with zip lines, and then stop playing. And and maybe watch some of the bullshit that happens at the end of the game with Mads Mikkelsen on on YouTube. And it's probably the best way to experience Hideo Kojima's masterpiece in my number ten game of 2019, Death Stranding. Well, you certainly talked about it more than we're probably going to talk about most games on this list. So yeah, this was this go. was one part talking about it on my list, one part concluding the Death Stranding arc for for the last few episodes of this podcast. So do I do my number ten now? It's time for you to do your number ten, so I don't have to think about Death Stranding ever again. Well, I do not have as much to say about my number ten as you had to say about your number ten, but I'm really happy I could fit my number ten on this list. Uh, because this is a game I had completely forgotten. Came out in 2019. I was dead sure this was a 2018 game. And I checked, and I double-checked, and I triple-checked, and no, it was February 2019. And that game is Tetris 99. So this is the first Battle Royale game I've ever fallen in love with. Because I don't really like the Battle Royale shooters. But one day on a Nintendo Direct, Nintendo announced, Hey, if you've got Nintendo Online, we're going to give you guys a free Tetris game. And it's called Tetris 99. And it's a Tetris Battle Royale. And that sounded like it could be really cool. And it was. And, you know, a year later, because now it's February 2020, I have like 40 hours in Tetris 99. It is a game I that is like always on my Switch home screen of recents because I play it a lot like when I'm just watching TV or I'm listening to a podcast or I just need to relax and it has become my go-to Tetris because there's lots of options for you know go-to Tetrises Uh, my go-to Tetris for many years was just in my old Game Boy uh, Tetris DX from the Game Boy Color had always been my favorite version there was Puyo Puyo Tetris on the Nintendo Switch which is a pretty good version of Tetris we had Tetris Effect last year or in 2018 which was a Obviously a big critical darling and and was on a lot of people's top 10s. It didn't quite make my top 10 because as beautiful as Tetris Effect is, and it's truly beautiful, if you just want to play Tetris, it wasn't my favorite version of playing Tetris. Tetris 99 is one of my favorite versions of playing Tetris because it's just a really rock-solid version of Tetris. But in this big multiplayer arena where you're playing against 98 other people and it's very exciting and it's weirdly strategic, and you kind of have to relearn how to play Tetris in some ways, and so it's very challenging. And I have played Tetris 99 many times. I've won it, like been the number one probably four or five times, and that is always just the most fucking exciting thing in the world. And then on top of that, the reason why it really muscled its way onto this list, because normally I wouldn't consider something like Tetris for this because Tetris has existed for a long time, But the support Nintendo and the developer of Tetris 99, Arika, have given this game has been really cool. It has been this constantly evolving kind of social thing on the Nintendo Switch where they do weekend tournaments and they give you new themes if you play it on the weekends. Um, And a lot of those themes have just been really cool and fun to have. Like, I love the old style Game Boy one. They've done ones for a bunch of different Nintendo games like Fire Emblem and Pokemon and Luigi's Mansion. And those are all cool. So you get to listen to different Nintendo music. And then there was the big update uh, last fall where they added in a whole point system where you can, like, play the game and you earn in-game currency. And then you can buy new themes. And there's all these cool ones. Like, there's an old style Mario and Zelda and Donkey Kong. 
and it's just really fun ways to play Tetris. And on top of all that, they did a small paid DLC. I think it was just like 10 bucks that gets you a full marathon mode, because that's one thing that, weirdly, a lot of modern Tetris games miss, is just an endless marathon. So it finally got that. It got local play. Um, They added a new, this was in the free DLC, Tetris Invictus mode, which is where you play with other people who have also won number one. And so that's a cool mode. And just like that constant support, which has continued to this day, is really, really cool, and has made it a pretty constant of my gaming life this last year. And I'm really happy I could fit it on my top 10 because Tetris 99 is fucking awesome and it's it's just become more awesome with time. And I, I think it's a really cool thing Nintendo has done. It's one of the actually coolest reasons to be a Nintendo Switch Online member um, because it's been, other than that little bit of paid DLC, completely free. And uh, I love this game. So I'm happy we could talk about it for a little bit. Awesome, yeah. Tetris 99 has always seemed very cool and is is like the most inventive of all the battle royales i'm glad that we finally have a game where a hundred tetrises drop onto an island and have to fight each other yeah that's the only thing it's missing is they should do an opening animation where like you have tetraminos falling out of a plane with parachutes yes exactly it'd be very good uh maybe you know maybe they'll do a battle royale crossover where it like plays the most violent scenes from the movie battle royale in the background while you're playing tetris you know it's the you know Anything goes in Tetris 99. You can do whatever you want, as long as yes. it's Tetris. All right. Well, that was my number 10. Sean, let's hear about your number 9. All right. My number 9, Jonathan, is very exciting because it, it is a series of firsts for any list in the history of this podcast, at least for me. I think probably for you as well, though I don't remember. Um, one, this is a game that technically did not come out this year. Um, I am invoking... A like a DLC type rule for including this game because this is the second year running for this game. Um, it is the first game I've ever talked about on this list while I'm also simultaneously playing that game. It is also the first mobile game ever to appear on a list of mine on this podcast. My number nine game of 2019 is year two of Dragon Ball Legends. <laughs> You've talked about this a little bit on the show before, right? It got an honorable mention last year. It came out May 2018. Um, And so the easiest way to talk about this game is to go down some of the awards. My first award being this is the only game I've played literally every single day in the calendar year of 2019 award. So it's maybe not the best game of 2019, but is the most 2019 game on my list because... That's not necessarily I played an hour of the game, but at some point every single day this year, I booted this game up and did something with it. I I ran like a, um, basically the slot machine or whatever to see if I could get a good character for very cheap um, with in-game currency. I would just run a small mission. Like almost every single day, I would get like all the dailies, which you can do in maybe about five minutes um, with like if you've been playing the game consistently and have a lot of resources. So Dragon Ball Legends is a mobile game that's a gotcha game um, that has been running for two years now. So it has accrued a huge amount of characters um, from all over the spectrum. Like it's mostly Dragon Ball Z characters, 
Um, but there are Dragon Ball characters. You've got Goku, like Kid Goku's in there from the Piccolo fight. You've got Demon King Piccolo. Um, there's some old Bulmas. You, there's Chi-Chi from the World Martial Arts Tournament, and she has the Bashosin, the big fan, as her ranged weapon, which is very cool. She's got some good animations. Um, she's got like all these moves that are basically like Akira moves from Virtua Fighter, if you like Virtua Fighter, and that's fun. Um, but then there's also a lot of good Dragon Ball Super stuff and just a little bit of GT. There's just like, here's a li- there's like, they just put Super Saiyan 4 Goku and Vegeta in a couple of months ago. It's like, here's a little bit of GT. Um, that fucking hyper metal Rildo or whatever the fuck that dude is, he's in there. I don't know. There's some GT characters that pop up that I'm like, oh, right. This was a character that was in Dragon Ball GT. I vaguely recall this. Um, so it, it pulls stuff from the whole spectrum of dragon ball as a franchise um more so now than ever because they also just a few days ago included android 21 from dragon ball fighters which is the first character not from any of the series that they've included in the game which is cool um and so the gameplay is basically you um accruing in-game currency to try to get new characters and you going through a whole different series of events there are lots of seasonal events that go through the combat is this sort of like active um, card battle kind of thing where you have melee attacks, um, ranged attacks, a special arts card, which is some sort of buff or maybe a counter for a character. You have a special move, which is like a Kamehameha for most characters, for like a Goku or Gohan or someone like that. And then sometimes each character has a special ability that sometimes activates another very powerful attack they can do, sometimes regenerate their health, that kind of thing. So they do find a lot of really interesting ways to differentiate each of the characters. Um, you go in with a team of three. Each character has an element associated with them. So there's a very, um, it reminds me most of Digimon's story in terms of the complexity of the rock, paper, scissors kind of thing. But there's like this kind of type of character has advantage over other types of characters. So you might have a red Goku versus a purple Goku and those would be good against different kinds of characters. So they, they find, a, they've incorporated a lot of mechanics to make it, the combat is extremely simple, um, although it can get more complicated on harder difficulties, but they found lots of interesting ways to differentiate each character from one another. And as the game goes on and they add more and more characters, it gets more and more fun because you get all this like these interesting new characters that really change up the flow of the game and um, really kind of like allow you to change your gameplay experience as the game goes on. One of the reasons why I've stuck with it also is that the um, currency system has never become predatory, um, which is impressive because we're, we're almost at the full two-year anniversary. It'll be May will be the full two-year anniversary of this game. I've been playing it since like around the, its launch. I think maybe I started playing like a week after this game came out. I have almost every character in the game. I've only spent $20 at one purchase, and that was on the two-year... They did a big event where they put in Super Saiyan Blue Goku, Super Saiyan Blue Vegeta, and Golden Frieza um, from the Resurrection F movie. And around that time, there's like a bunch of stuff going on. I was like, I have gotten so much out of this game. I'm This is the only time I think I've ever put money into a free-to-play game. And I've never felt like the need to have to put any more money into the game. I didn't really feel the need to put it in there because I would have gotten those characters eventually anyways. But I was like, fuck it. Like, I've gotten so much out of this you deserve to have some money for all the entertainment I've gotten from this game. Um, and since then, like, just by playing the game regularly, being smart about how I use the resources I get from the game and kind of, like, maximizing what I'm doing with it, it's very easy to get most of the characters in the game through just normal roulettes. And that's awesome, because I have tried out a number of different gacha games over the years, and none of them have had that quality. All of them, 
after about probably the first two to three hours of playing it, you immediately see where the knives stick in. You immediately see where this is where they're trying to fucking like, they get the whales, they get the people who are going to spend like a hundred dollars on this game and then get addicted to it or jump out. Um, and at that point I always jump out of that game before I feel tempted to spend money and Dragon Ball Legends. I've just been playing continuously um, and been really enjoying it. It also has in this like renaissance of Dragon Ball media um, in terms of like video games, it has, I think the most interesting story um, original story of any one of these games, which is not something I normally would have expected. It's all set in this tournament of time thing where they just pull in characters from all across the scope of Dragon Ball. So you encounter like Bulma from the very beginning of, of Dragon Ball. She's one of the main characters in the story. Um, and then also Beerus is there and Goku from Dragon Ball Super is there. Um, but the main character of the story mode is an original character named Shallot, who is designed by Toriyama, um, who is a Saiyan who has amnesia. He's probably from like the distant past of the Saiyan planet based on, or like probably pre-planet Vegeta Saiyan history, um, based on like inferences you can make. Um, and the story mode is about Shallot kind of growing up and it like loosely fits onto the arc structure of Dragon Ball Z in the sense of like one of the first characters you fight is Raditz and that kind of thing. But compared to Xenoverse, which is another game that tries this kind of structure, Legends is much more successful at playing around with the story and the characters. Um, it, for instance, one really smart choice they make is once you get to the Saiyan Saga stuff, um, Nappa and Vegeta kind of take Shallot under their wing and help train Shallot as a fellow Saiyan. And then eventually you, they, he builds up that relationship with Nappa and Vegeta. Eventually you fight Frieza. The trigger for Shallot to become a Super Saiyan, which was a really cool moment because it changes your character that you can use in the game um, and makes him very different, was this basically a different version of the scene where Vegeta dies from the Namek Saga. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole show. And that being the spark of your, your mentor who has been helping you through this whole long section of the story dying is what puts Shallot over the edge. Um, which that was a really cool choice. When you get to the Android Saga, Shalit is tasked with protecting Android 17 and 18. So you're basically going along with them in Android 16 in like their pink van um, as they're just sort of traveling around and having wacky adventures. Eventually, obviously, they get absorbed by Cell and the loss of your friends, uh, the androids that you've been buddies with for a long time is what makes Shalit uh, Super Saiyan 2. So they find interesting ways to use the characters in some of the plotting um, broadly of Dragon Ball Z, uh, but they but because it's centered around this original character Shallot, who's who grows and changes and matures over the course of the story of the story, um, makes it feel like a much much more rewarding experience as a Dragon Ball fan than any other original narrative I've ever seen in a Dragon Ball game, and that culminates in what I think was the last piece of story content released in 2019, which was the section in between the Cell stuff and the Boo stuff. Which is a totally original story of just Shallot encountering Caulifla. Caulifla is looking for Kale, and Shallot and Caulifla just go around fucking shit up trying to find Kale, and they run into all these like wacky scenarios where they like run into Chi Chi from the World Martial Arts Tournament who's trying to find Goku, and you kind of try to help her find Goku while you're also looking for Kale. And it's just this like ridiculous madcap adventure um, that adds a lot of texture to Shallot as a character because he and Caulifla have very similar characterizations as far as Saiyans go. And it was just like, I'm always really excited every time a new story thing drops for this game because they have done such a good job of making it feel like it's its own thing while using the pieces of Dragon Ball you love, which I don't think I can think of a single Dragon Ball thing 
um, that has been successful at that, that is outside the original manga or series, that is like actually peeking, taking all these pieces and putting them together in a way that is um, really entertaining. Um, so yeah, a couple of last pieces to say about Dragon Ball Legends. It has a couple of other awards. One is the Outstanding Achievement in Goku's Award for having 31 Gokus. There are currently 31 <laughs> Gokus in this game. Um, because they That's just great. so for instance they just released um, Goku Super Saiyan God Goku from the Dragon Ball Super Broly movie so there's a Super Saiyan God Goku from the, his original appearance but his moveset is totally different because the characters only have like four or five things that they do that are like distinct to that specific character so all the stuff he has in this version that they just put out on this new Super Saiyan God Goku are all things that he does very specifically. Some of them like frame perfect recreations of the animations from Super Broly. So it's a lot of that kind of stuff of like, there's probably like 10 different Super Saiyan 1 Gokus. One's from like the Broly movie, who his special move is he does the big punch that kills Broly. One is like, I like one is Goku with the heart virus and every attack he does drains his health. Um, so there's lots of really creative uses of the characters like that. So we're now at 31 Gokus and I have 29 of them. There are only two Gokus in the game I don't have, which is vexing me. Um, one of them is Goku from the Super Android 13 movie, who has the big spirit bomb thing he does in that movie. And then one is a really rare version of the character that's from the Frieza fight where he goes Super Saiyan. Um, those are the only two Gokus I don't have, and eventually I will have them. For a very long time, I had every Goku in the game, and I took great pride in having every single Goku, because this is also a game... That, with the exception of the next game on my list, um, is the game that I have encountered most students at um, the high school I work at um, that I can have conversations with because they play it. Sometimes they're playing it in the middle of class, um, which is always a, like, man, I get it, but could you please listen to what I'm saying um, and play Dragon Ball Legends later? But it is a game that has penetrated into the youth, Jonathan. It, the, the youth like Dragon Ball, and they're playing Dragon Ball Legends um and and i don't I, and i'm constantly gripped with either pride or shame over the fact that i am way better at this game than any of the students that i teach i don't know how i feel about the expression penetrated into the youth yeah well, because that sounds bad um but this game sounds awesome i have heard you talk about it before and i i am finally sean i just while you were talking i downloaded it onto my phone cool so i yeah. can i will try to give this a try because it sounds like i would love it if you love it this much I have a whole fucking Dragon Ball shelf out there. I should yeah. probably try this game. Because yeah. I, I had not heard you talk about the story. And that, like, that's what you just sold me on. It's like, that sounds really cool. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to hear, since I've been playing the game piecemeal since it came out, I am curious what the experience is like for someone getting into it now. Where when I was playing it, it was like, Super Saiyan 1 Goku was like, oh my god, holy shit, look at this character. And now it's like... I mean, I God knows, there's easily must be over, like, probably 200 characters in the game at this point. Like, a lot of them are just, here's, like, fodder Cyberman or whatever that you're never going to use. But there's, it's been going for a while. Last award to give Dragon Ball Legends, because this is a, a historical award I have given. Um, I gave it to Dragon Ball's Universe. I gave it to Dragon Ball Fighters. Dragon Ball Legends is this year's recipient of the most Kamehameha Award. Um, <laughs> because it's got, it's... It's got a lot of fucking Kamehamehas because it turns out there are a lot of characters in Dragon Ball that use Kamehamehas. And if you have 31 Gokus, you can... Not every Goku has a Kamehameha. Most Gokus do. Um, but you can imagine the number of Gohans, Krillins, Yamchas, uh, Master Roshis. There's a couple of Master Roshis in the game at this point, And so on and so forth. 
there's a lot of Kamehameha's in the game. Um, including, if you want, you can have Shallot, and you, you can customize his special move with different special moves you've unlocked through your other characters. So you can give him... I think there are three different Super Kamehameha's that you can give Shallot that all have slightly different animations and effects. So Dragon Ball Legends is, is easily for me. Um, it's the best Dragon Ball game, like, ongoing. It's, it's the best one from 2019, because the only other one that I played was Super Dragon Ball Heroes, and I didn't like that very much. Um, so... This is, is 2019's proud recipient of the most Kamehameha Award. Well, I'm glad you didn't give that to Death Stranding. That would have been weird. No. Um, how many times do you think Masako Nozawa has said the word Kamehameha in her life? Do you think it's over a million? Oh, it's got to be, right? Because it's, it's, yeah. it, it's a new one for like every fucking video game. Um, it's, there's a t- couple of different versions I know for sure in Dragon Ball Legends. They don't just use the same clip for it. Um, there's a number of different ones in Kakarot. I mean, how many times has she had to redo, like, the Kamehameha Clash from the Saiyan Saga? You know, like, that's right. got to be, like, several dozen just on that. Not just Kamehameha's in general. Like, that one Kamehameha, the Kaioken times four one, there's got to be, yeah, maybe even a hundred times she's done that one Kamehameha over and over. Because I'm just wondering, like, if you, because you could probably, if you were really nerdy, do a database and find, like, every recording. But then every one of those recordings probably had a couple different takes in the booth. Then you would have all the ones that like maybe got deleted or didn't weren't used. All and the then ones just, at like, like conventions con- and stuff conventions, like that. Yep. Yeah, where people ask her to do Kamehameha. Where like if you see clips of Masako Nozawa from stuff like that, where she's doing panels, it comes up every single time. Like I don't, I can't imagine there's been a single convention Masako Nozawa has ever done, or like panel talk or anything like that, where she has not done at least one Kamehameha. Plus, all the times I can only imagine if I was the voice of Goku. Like, if I was Matsuko Nozawa or if I was Sean Schimmel, <laughs> I'd be going around just saying Kamehameha all fucking day. Like, that's just, that's yes. my life. Making breakfast, Kamehameha. Like, that's just what you do. I just, you know, I want to, I, I feel like we need to put, like, Matsuko Nozawa in one corner. How many times has she said Kamehameha? And Mayumi Tanaka in another corner. How many times has she had to go, Gamu, Gamu, no? Yeah. Something or other. And, like, Matsuko Nozawa has a 15-year head start there. But I, that's got to be competitive. Yeah, I also just realized something I wasn't even thinking about. I was only thinking of Goku Kamehamehas. What about all the Gohan Kamehamehas? Not as many as and Goku. And all the Goten Kamehamehas. Yeah, there's quite a few mm-hmm. there, you know? So it's, yes. yeah, that's a... That's a Masuka, so the true Lifetime Achievement Award recipient of the most Kamehameha Award <laughs> clearly and indisputably must go then to Masuka Nozawa. Yes. As we have now concluded. Yes. All right. My number nine, Sean, is also technically DLC, although it's really much more its own game, and that is Shovel Knight, King of Cards by Yacht Club Games. No, this is the fourth full Shovel Knight campaign uh, and the final one in the original Shovel Knight because they are now finally done with the game. Um, And it is technically DLC in that if you already own Shovel Knight, you got it for free in the game. But it really should be understood as its own game, which most of the Shovel Knight campaigns have been. There was the original Shovel Knight, which has since been rechristened Shovel of Hope, and that was the original game. 
Then they did their first extra character, which was Plague Knight for Plague of Shadows. And that one is more of like it's Plague Knight in the original levels. The levels have been subtly altered, but it's mostly a new character in the levels. And it's super fun and you get a new story and all of that too with it. But then when they got to Spectre Knight, which was Spectre of Torment back in 2017, um, they really decided, fuck it, we're just going to make a new game. And Spectre of Torment is, it's, it's the same kind of general aesthetic, but it is a, it's fully new levels, fully new map. It's a new game. And Spectre of Torment is brilliant, and that is still my favorite Shovel Knight thing. Spectre of Torment, just story, playset, levels, was my favorite piece of Shovel Knight. But King of Cards now comes pretty close, because King of Cards is by far the most ambitious one they've done. It has three full world maps in the style of basically uh, Super Mario 3, so... Um, three worlds that are very reminiscent of of Mario 3 in terms of the number of levels and where they are. It's got way more levels than the other Shovel Knight games, and they're all shorter, so it's a little more piecemeal. Um, and King Knight has by far... Like, all the Shovel Knight characters have very different movesets, and they're very different, unique characters. But King Knight kind of has the most ambitious in that he's sort of a take on Wario from the Wario Land games. If, if like, you think Shovel Knight was sort of like uh, Scrooge McDuck in DuckTales or something like that. Um, he's much more like Wario, King Knight is, because King Knight's main move is you press the attack button and he does this shoulder bash. And the way the shoulder... And that's your main way of jumping and moving and everything because he does the shoulder bash and he moves up into the air and he then can do a spin and drop on someone and then jump off of them. And once he's hit someone, you can do another shoulder bash in the air. And if the level is designed for it and if you're good enough at it, you can stay in the air pretty long and there's a lot of crazy things you can do with it and it takes a little bit of learning like it's kind of like plague knight is this way a little bit too where plague knight you kind of have to learn and it's not quite intuitive but once you learn it it's super fun and i love plague knight and uh king knight is the same way he takes a little bit to learn but once you learn him boy is he fascinating and they create some really great levels around king knight because it is such a different weird move set um it made me very much want nintendo to make another wario land game someday but while we're waiting for that we have what's probably in many ways better than most of the wario land games is is king of cards because it is just it's everything you love about shovel knight but with all new levels and an all new play style on all new maps and all of that is brilliant and then you also get, obviously, a new story. Shovel Knight's writing is always fun and funny. Spectre of Torment sort of went on a more sincere side, where Spectre of Torment has a pretty dark, character-driven story, and I think is the best narrative they've done. Uh, King Knight goes a little bit more back to original Shovel Knight kind of funny, and King Knight is a very funny character, and all the dialogue is very tongue-in-cheek, but it's very well-written. And the whole story in this one is that he wants to become the king of cards. There's a card game called Joustus, which you do play in the game. I'll talk about that in a second. And he wants to become the king of the Joustus tournament that is going on. And so you're going around and basically strong-arming all the Joustus judges into giving you preferential treatment by fighting them. And along the way, you have this airship. And everyone you sort of meet and defeat in the game comes and joins you on your airship. So as you play the game, your airship gets more full of cool, colorful characters and things you can do on the airship with them. Um, and then, of course, you have the card game Joustus, which comes up in the story a couple of times. Each of the world maps has a Joustus house where you go. And there are a bunch of champions you have to beat to get all the medals in that house. And Joustus is a weird little card game that is... Um, more like a puzzle game because it's basically this grid and there are a number of spaces and there are 
two or three gems and whoever once all the spaces are covered in cards the game is over and when it's over whoever has more cards on gems wins and your cards have different like directional inputs and it's basically you and an opponent sort of puzzling out who can get the best placement so that when the game ends you have the most gems and it is surprisingly deep and strategic it can get really tough at times i like how the game implements it where it like it does not interrupt platforming levels like you go play justice sort of on your own time you do have to play some of it to beat the game but it's just there for you to go play um it's great. It's really cool. I don't know if there's a ton more to say about Shovel Knight at this point. You know how great the graphics are. It is a stunningly beautiful 8-bit styled game. You know how good the music is. Jake Kaufman has been doing the music for this game since 2014. It's always great. I wish King of Cards had, if I had any criticism, I think it's got less new music than the other expansions. But it still has some new music that's very, very good. And the old music, I can't complain. It still rocks. It's still awesome. And I just love that Yacht Club Games has fully followed through. They, I think at some point, if they had said to their Kickstarter backers, you know, it's been five years, I don't know if we're going to finish all these campaigns, I think people would have been like, that's okay, you made a really good game, we are, we're loving it, it's fine. But nope, they finished every goddamn one of those campaigns. Shovel Knight is now four full games, plus Shovel Knight Showdown, which is the fighting game expansion, which is like Shovel Knight Smash Bros, and that's also really fun. And it is, I think, a $40 game now. It is 40 of the best dollars money, uh, $40 of the best game money can buy right now. And King of Cards really only cements that. It's, it's at number nine because it's honestly very hard for me to know where to place it because it is the fourth Shovel Knight game. And it is its own thing, but it's also within the main game. Um, so it was kind of hard to place against some of these others. But, you know, certainly some of the best times I've had with, with uh, games this year was in, in Shovel Knight once again. And I'm so glad Yacht Club has, has had the success they've had. And now that this book is closed, I'm really curious to see what they do next. Because they've spent like five or six years with Shovel Knight. And I think it's time to see where else they can, they can spread their wings. Because this is clearly one of the most talented groups of indie developers out there. Yeah, definitely. And it was always really interesting. There's one of the most interesting chapters in the Blood, Sweat, and Pixels book by Jason Schreier. Where they talk about yeah. like that Kickstarter element and promising all these add-ons and then realizing like, shit, this is going to be a lot of work um, because they wanted to make them right. They didn't want to just, here's like a Plague Knight is just a like reskin of the exact same thing you already did with like a slightly different twist on it. They're like making, they I mean, they, it seems like they basically made like Shovel Knight 2, 3, 4, and 5 already. Um, they did. They yeah. did basically. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I would almost think of like buying this game now like buying one of the Mega Man collections. Right. You know, you're getting a bunch of games in one and it's a jolly old time. So uh, raise a glass of mug to King Knight for Shovel Knight King of Cards. That was my number nine. Sean, let's move on to number eight. All right. My number eight game of the year goes to a little game. Maybe no, probably not a lot of people bought it. I don't think anyone's ever heard of this one before. Uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare. indie hit uh from this year <laughs> um yeah it's been a long time since i gave a shit about a call of duty game not since 
Advanced Warfare, the one that unfortunately is remembered as the Kevin Spacey one, um, because Kevin Spacey sure wasn't in that video game. Um, uh, what about Infinite Warfare? Oh, yes. No, yeah. Well, in terms of multiplayer. Yeah. So Infinite Warfare oh, okay. had a great campaign. Here's a, okay, this is, let's get this out of the way first. The first award that Call of Duty Modern Warfare gets is the most politics in a quote-unquote apolitical video game award um, for the campaign story being bad. The Like, there's kind of no way to get around it. The story, I mean, the storytelling itself is fine. It's not as if, like, they're like the, they're bad at creating the character of Captain Price for this game. It's more that just the, like, perspective, the politics, the style, um, which feels, like, weirdly outdated. It's, it's got a little bit too much 24 in there mixed in with the Hurt Locker kind of stuff. Like, that stuff is kind of outdated and is bad, and so the story just becomes obnoxious. Um... It does have some really great level design in the campaign. So I think if you're like 14 and you don't give a shit about the rest of that stuff, there's some really good levels in there. Um, but, but the story for Call of Duty Modern Warfare is very grating. Had it not been, this game would be considerably higher because I love the multiplayer in this game. Um, and I haven't talked about it much, mostly because most of the multiplayer I played in this game was while you were in Japan. Um, so it's not really come up. Um, so yeah, the last time I was into the multiplayer for Call of Duty was Advanced Warfare, which was like 2014. Infinite Warfare, like all-time great campaign. Um, less said about the multiplayer in that game, the better. Uh, but, but Modern Warfare is truly a like kind of back-to-basics approach um, that kind of pairs down a lot of the cruft that had built up on Call of Duty as a franchise over the years, while also um, really kind of like redesigning a lot of the sort of like basic fundamental things of the game, like how it feels to move, um, like the speed of aiming down sight, which is much slower in this game than it's been in the last few Call of Duties. It really gets like a better sense of weight back in there, which was more a component of some of the earlier Infinity Ward games like Call of Duty 2, Modern Warfare 1, and Modern Warfare 2 all had this kind of wavier feel to it um, where the weapons had impact to them. Um, you had to be a little bit more deliberate with your aiming. Uh, and then since then, particularly the Treyarch games, which I do like Treyarch's um, sort of more modern Call of Duty stuff, fine. Um, what of it I've played, like I played the campaign of Black Ops 2 and some of that, um, and Black Ops 1. But they're so arcadey, they're so snappy that they're just like, they, they don't create as memorable experiences um, as they could. And a lot of the memorable experiences for me in Call of Duty multiplayer come around more to me like kind of outsmarting. Um, and out strategizing my opponents rather than just it being boy I got that headshot a lot faster because the time to kill in Call of Duty is extremely short like you die very very quickly you can kill enemies very very quickly that's true of this game as well but because you um, you have a little bit more defensive options because they've kind of created a light cover mechanic for the game where you can kind of post up on pieces of cover um, that kind of help give you vantage points over areas of the battlefield. The fact that the maps are much more complicated. So they've mostly done away with the three-lane approach, which has dominated Call of Duty multiplayer since, like, Black Ops 1, I think, where every single Call of Duty map is basically a slightly reskinned version of what is effectively three different hallways, which are cut with a couple of interconnecting hallways between them. But though that map design was good if you want kind of this mindless run-forward kill as many people as you can and get killed very quickly, respawn, rinse and repeat Call of Duty thing that they, that had become popular for a long time. Advanced Warfare had a lot of interesting movement mechanics that allowed you to do cool, crazy things that a lot of the hardcore audience didn't like because it kind of broke some of the flow of the game that I liked because it was goofy and fun. 
Um, Modern Warfare doesn't have any of those kind of goofier elements to it, but what it does have is you being able to hear um, because it has very distinctive audio that an enemy is coming around the corner and like, you know, lure them into an area where you're going to have um, like a good line of sight on them. It allows you to get out of situations if you're engaging enemies from longer distances. That is a lot harder to do in other Call of Duty games because it's so much takes more time to aim down sight. So a lot of these sort of like very basic adjustments that they've made to this game ultimately makes the uh, multiplayer feel much more tactical than it has in a long time. It feels way more similar to the multiplayer in Modern Warfare Remastered than it does in any Call of Duty since um, about 2013 or so. Uh, so all that stuff is great. The game is gorgeous. Like, it is such a good-looking game, particularly the campaign. The audio design is, like, best in class. Um, I'm pretty sure it won Best Audio Design at the Game Awards, which was to be, like, one of the most, like, easiest awards to give to a game ever because I think Modern Warfare probably has the best sound design I've heard in any video game made to date. Like, it is really remarkable. Um, the, the weapon sounds are so, like, meaty. Um, they're very distinctive. You can tell which gun someone is using based on the sound that it's making. Footsteps make very distinct noises, which is really useful for the tactics. But just in general, like the rustle of clothes and like your sleeves as you're like turning around the corner or moving your aim and stuff like that. All those little subtle audio elements really help the full presentation of this game make it feel like we like accidentally got like the next gen Call of Duty game one year early is sort of what it feels like. Um, a couple of the other awards it gets for all the stuff I just said, it gets the man I really missed this award for bringing me back some damn fine Call of Duty multiplayer because Call of Duty has never been my favorite multiplayer game. That's historically been Halo, but I have really loved some good Call of Duty multiplayer in the past, and it just has felt like a like homecoming in a weird way of being able to come back to this and get into those kinds of pace, um, that kind of mindset I got in with old Call of Duty games. Um, it is also very fun to talk to some of my students about it because this is the game that by far the most students at school are playing um and so that's a fun fun element of it um but the other award i give to call of duty modern warfare a very a one near and dear to my heart is the resident evil 4 presents the goddamn that fucking reload animation um and that award goes to the car 98k so how i ended up being like a, yeah this is a pretty good call of duty 2 i fucking love this multiplayer um is they added in a new class of weapon called the marksman rifle which is basically in between an assault rifle and a sniper rifle. And one of those is a, this like lever action carbine that's like a fucking Red Dead Redemption 2 gun. Um, and that one was really fun. I enjoyed that a lot. But then eventually um, I got leveled up enough where I unlocked the Car 98K, which is a bolt action, a Russian bolt action rifle from like 1898. Um, it's in, I know it from Call of Duty 2 because it's a World War II era rifles. It was one of the main guns in, in the Russian campaign. In Call of Duty 2. And so it's a bolt action rifle that is has a little bit faster firing rate and stuff like that than a sniper rifle. So it's not necessarily meant for you to be like posted up at one end of the map and kill someone on the other side. It's in that sort of medium range. And it's definitely not like the best gun in the game. Like the best gun in the game is probably like the M4 assault rifle or one of the submachine guns. Um, because again, this is bolt action. So you fire a shot and then you have to play an animation to cycle the bolt before you could fire a second shot. So it's very slow firing, high damage weapon. Um, but playing with a slow firing, high damage weapon forced me to play the game way more tactically because I can't rely anywhere near as much on Twitch reflexes, which as a 27 year old that is like slowly decaying into dust, 
my ability to do have twitch reflexes is not what it is when 10 years ago or like what some like my students can do probably like i've not played with any of them because that would feel weird but like the stories that they talk about with playing call of duty i'm like yeah that's what i did when i was in high school and i cannot play that way anymore i can't just run in a room with a submachine gun and just like win that fight when there's three dudes in there just because my reflexes are really sharp that's just i can't quite play that way anymore so the car 98k is a really satisfying weapon that I got. Even though it's a worse weapon than the guns I was using previously, I got much better at the game once I started using it because it just forced me to play smarter. Um, but the other reason I played it is the fucking reload animation is so satisfying. And the last time I played a game that had a reload animation like this, because it's reminiscent of this animation, is the bold action rifle from Resident Evil 4, which has like a, an all-time great... Um, just like very tactile good just like clicks and clacks of you shoving in this like five round um, magazine into the top of it popping out this little like metal bit cycling in the, the the bullet like it makes me feel bad about myself sometimes that I take such tactile satisfaction in the mechanical operation of this death weapon that is awful but also it's really fucking satisfying and and if you're playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare and you've not used that gun it's it's so much more fun for me to play that game that way. And the reason why I stopped playing Modern Warfare multiplayer is just because I maxed out that gun and there was nothing I could else I could unlock with it. <laughs> I just I I like played through most of that game's multiplayer just with the card in 98k and then I got to the max of it and I'm like, well, I'm done because I can't play this game with another weapon because it's just not as much fun. Um so I had a good solid month basically of playing Modern Warfare, which is it's a great time, and then I can happily put it away. And they put out some new maps and stuff like that, so maybe I'll come back to it. They're putting out new weapons. Maybe they'll put out another gun that fills that role in the game for me that the Car 98K did. But Modern Warfare, it's very good, and I'm happy that Call of Duty could be good again um, because I, it, it's, it's a very fun franchise when it's not up its own ass about its bullshit. I, I think that should be a back-of-the-box quote. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, my number eight game of the year is a game I have, it, I had a complicated journey with. It's the game, a uh, new game this year I by far played the most of um, because I played about 90 hours of this game. And by the end, I was really unsure whether I liked it or not. But looking back on it, it definitely deserved a place at the table for this top 10. And that is Fire Emblem Three Houses. <laughs> Because I think, you know, I think that the point I landed on, and we had a long discussion on the podcast about mm -hmm. this at some point, so I won't belabor the point, is that I think in how much it expands Fire Emblem, it kind of misses the forest for the trees, or maybe it misses the trees for the forest. It, it Whatever it does is it kind of misses the heart of the franchise, which is, I think, this, the basic tactical gameplay, the maps, the fighting, the, the heart of what the franchise is, the strategy game gets buried under a lot of other stuff that is always good. This game is very, you know, extraordinarily well-produced. It's got phenomenal writing, phenomenal voice acting, beautiful music, great graphics. 
The, you know, Garrig Mach is a really cool place. It is obviously a very ambitious expansion of what Fire Emblem is. It's a hugely ambitious game in that it is four campaigns, basically. It's four routes that you can play that are extremely different from one another. Um, and I think in all of that, there's a lot of good stuff, but I think it is less than the sum of its parts. And ultimately, I got pretty frustrated by the fact that I think more than anything, like on a story level, for all the good stuff that is in this story, and I think moment to moment, this is frequently the best written Fire Emblem game, but it never fully amounts to anything just because you have four routes. No one route tells you a complete story, really. No one route provides you with sort of the answers to the big mysteries they lay out there. No one route feels like it sort of fully finishes the character arcs. You have to play multiple routes to get all of that. And I think it's it's a lot like Fire Emblem Fates in that way. It just becomes too diffuse. And I think the best stories in Fire Emblem tend to be... Like, I think the best one ever is Fire Emblem Echoes, the Gaiden remake. But I would put Awakening up there as well. And those are ones that are just close-ended. They're not trying to set up sequels. They're not building on anything else. It's just a story with a beginning, middle, end. And it's very strong. And I think Fire Emblem Three Houses really loses that. And, you know, I got pretty frustrated at the end because I also think just within all of that, some of the stuff in the combat gets sloppy. And I think especially in the latter half of the game, some of the maps, like in the first half of the game, the maps are too easy. In the second half, sometimes they're very good and inspired. And sometimes I think they're just straight up bad. The last one of the... Um, oh, I forget what... It's the, it's the route where you side against Edelgard is a terrible map to end that game and I got so frustrated I deleted all my save files except the one I had saved to do a new game plus so I can do that at some point um but yeah I so all of that frustrated me but I did play 90 hours of this game I spent a full month over the summer playing it I clearly enjoyed it it has almost certainly the best overall cast of characters if you just consider that there are three full houses and people love characters from all three, and they're all good casts, and they all have stories and stuff on the side. Um, you know, obviously great artwork and voice acting and character designs. Um, there is so much fun day-to-day -day stuff with them. Um, even if I think the maps are sometimes subpar, this is still Fire Emblem. It is still pretty much best in class for this kind of tactical role-playing game. And, you know, the basics of it are still obviously very, very fun to me. It still has amazing music and graphics. And I think some of the stuff they did of, like, uh, pairing with Koei Tecmo to have the battlefields look more like Fire Emblem Muso and have big armies on the field, that's still very, very cool that they did that. There's a lot of really good stuff in this. There's, you know, I would not de-recommend this game. If you want to play a Fire Emblem game on Switch, this is the one that's out there, and it's obviously very, very good. If you're new to the series, I would not necessarily recommend this to be this one you start with for some of the reasons I've mentioned. Um, but it's obviously a very good game. I think some people would have it higher than me. Some people might have it even lower um, if they're even more of a purist than I am about some of these things. You know, I we're going to talk about Pokemon Shield later, just as a spoiler. Obviously, that's on my list. Um, and that's one where I argued that Pokemon Shield sort of feels like a less radical reinvention, but I think is smarter about actually tweaking the heart of the series. And I think that's true. I think Three Houses is more of an expansion at the end than it is a reinvention. And I would really like to see them pair back and, and try to get back to basics and find ways to reinvent that isn't just sort of layering on top. But... It is still a very good game. 
um, that has a lot worth recommending. And at some point, I still want to go do the other two routes. And they just released this really cool DLC where they've added a fourth house and it's a full side story. And I have heard nothing but great things about that. So I have not played that DLC yet. I will probably play it very soon and I'm very excited to get back into it. And who knows, maybe it'll be good enough to be, if, if 2020 winds up having a thin year, it'll be on top 10 next year too. Um, so yeah, I have complicated thoughts on this, but at the end of the day, especially in a thin year, no reason it couldn't be on my top 10. So that's my number eight. Interesting. Yeah, I was very curious whether or not this game would make it because I feel like most people had generally the experience you had where it felt like right when that game came out people were really hot and heavy with it and I heard a lot about it and then after uh, like a month or so when more people got to the end of that game it was a lot of like yeah that was good and we like the characters and we'll make like memes about the characters which is most of my exposure to three houses just like random twitter memes with like fire emblem people that I don't understand because I didn't play the game um but yeah most of like the intense feelings about this game died off uh pretty quickly because you know and i think the people who loved it most tend to be i don't want to generalize but it seemed like it was more casual players who probably don't play on classic mode care less about they're not there so much for the tactical rpg side they're there for the characters and story and that there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you're playing this game for that's totally valid but it seemed like those were the people who were most hooked and, you know, I don't feel like I'm owed anything. There have been plenty of Fire Emblem games. I'm not complaining. But I do think that if if the core, the core is the gameplay, the core is the tactical RPG, and that is less solid here, and that just means that over time it's, it's not going to be as fiercely beloved because it doesn't have those things driving you forward. Where, like, mm-hmm. Fire Emblem Awakening was a sensation because it struck this great balance of having these great characters and story and it was a super rock-solid tactical RPG. And the more you played that, the more you cared about the characters and story because they're so interwoven and they can die on you and all this. Um, and, you know, Three Houses doesn't quite get that balance is right. So we'll see where the series goes from here. It's certainly cool that they took this opportunity being on a home console to really rethink the series. Um, and I hope it's, you know, it's a good launching pad for whatever they do next. Awesome. Number seven. All right, so my number seven game of the year. I think we're mostly past the games that like I need to, to talk about for 10 minutes because we haven't really talked about them before. My number seven is a game that we've talked quite a bit about on this podcast. It is Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, whatever pace you're supposed to say that title at with the weird fucking colon. Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Um, uh, Sean, yeah. my number seven game of the year is also Star Wars Jedi Fallen Yeah, we Order. did it! Again, we never are exposed to each other's lists before we do the podcast, but we always, typically we have at least one, and I guess this year we have at least two um, of us putting games at the exact same placement. So awesome, we get to talk about Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order at the same time. (laughs) Um, I know, Sean, when I was making my list and I typed the title out, it physically hurt me to put the fucking, to just write the word Star Wars Jedi colon fallen order it is by far the worst thing about this game is the placement of that goddamn colon yeah that's yeah the colon situation is bad 
Um, but but other, but the game is very good. Um, the first award I give it um, is less about this game specifically, but more something that I'm thinking about for trends in video games is it's the Sign of Things to Come award for getting all that good Dark Souls into AAA game. Yes. Because there have been hints at it for a long time of like mostly the combat of Dark Souls trickling in here and there. Maybe there's like a slightly bonfire-esque concept in a more AAA game. But generally speaking, it's been fairly light on the, where the influences come in. Um, and this is the first time I felt like we've gotten um, like a true AAA version, basically, of a Dark Souls game that has the sort of like broader accessibility, the like more um, you know clear story and character stuff. Um, it, it's a much more sanded down experience compared to a Dark Souls. But that's kind of what I want. I want the higher production values. I want like the ridiculous, like you know, big cutscenes with big character moments. Um, I, I want it to feel like the, that kind of experience. Um, and that's what Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order gave me. And that was like, it, it was like I could play a Dark Souls like game, but not have a heart attack every five hours from like a massive <laughs> boss fight or something. You know? Indeed. Um... Jedi Fallen Order is, is great. I think I just have to go back to one of the first things I said about the game, which is that if they had consciously tried to make a game for Jonathan Lack more, mm -hmm. I don't think they could have in terms of a Star Wars game. Because the games they took were, they took Uncharted, they took Dark Souls, and they took Metroid Prime, and they put them in a blender with a lightsaber. They put a kyber crystal in there, and, mm -hmm. and they shot this game out. And, you know, on the one hand, the biggest downside of Jedi Fallen Order, and the reason why I think it's at number seven, is it brings very little new to the table. Yeah. It is a game that is much more derivative than it is original. But, on the plus side, it's doing a lot of kind of tried and true things in a blend that I don't think I've ever seen before, like this specific blend of things going around. Um, and it does all of those things very, very well. And so you get this specific blend of its structure is basically Metroid Prime 3, which is a bunch of mini sort of Metroidvania-style maps, um, which also makes it feel Dark Soulsy. And Dark Soulsy doing the shortcut thing, which is one of Dark Souls' major innovations. Um, and then you have a progression system that is a lot like Dark Souls and Sekiro. And you have a battle system that is like Dark Souls and Sekiro. And you have these big events and areas that feel sort of like Uncharted. And so it's all these things that just I eat the fuck up when I get them in a video game. And, you know, you give me a big fucking map to go explore and have to come back to and backtrack and open up new powers and shit. I love that. It is like catnip to me. Plus you do it with lightsabers and I can customize my lightsaber and I can find a million lightsaber parts and just build the lightsaber, which again, they still just need to release as an iPhone game. The, uh, the lightsaber customization in this game is so fun on its own. And I get to feel like I'm a Jedi. Yes, please. Yes, please. It, they did it so well. I'm so happy Respawn got to do this and it is a rock solid game. Story is less than great. But fuck it, that's not what I was there for. This is the kind of Star Wars shit I want in my video game, and I was there for it. Yeah, so it also gets my It's About Damn Time award for EA finally making a good goddamn Star Wars game. Because holy shit, it took so long. But yeah, it, like, the Star Wars-ness um, like, permeates every piece of this game in a way that's very satisfying. Like, there's stuff around, like, the middle of the story that I wish was better, but I think there's a lot of really good stuff that get in towards the end. That's really satisfying. I think the, like, Order 66 flashback, the way they, like, reference elements or use actors from the Clone Wars 
Um, it, it, it creates this like very coherent Star Wars experience that fits in with the um, Star Wars expanded media of the modern era that I really enjoy, which is Clone Wars and Rebels. And so stuff like going to the planet of Dathomir um, and seeing that location and some of the things like the zombie witches there um, that are things that were from Clone Wars arcs and having them represented to a video game. It's a kind of like savviness in like intermedia communication and representation that Star Wars like very rarely had even in the old days, but has like never had in a satisfying way in the Disney era that has just felt so like enamored with trying to capture some sort of nostalgia of the original trilogy. It's never felt like competent at actually balancing the different projects that are ongoing to, to create a cohesive representation of star wars that's not just filleting empire strikes back which is basically where they are most of the time um and so this game gets to feel like its own thing and it feels like it very realistically takes place in the time period between three and four um that it's supposed to take place in by referencing the material that is on the earlier side and the after side like the most the nearest material which is clone wars and rebels and that communication and sense of brand identity um, is something that you like I thought would be a pro of the Disney era of Star Wars when they threw out the old EU that that would be something we would get a lot more of and we've gotten almost none of it um, and so this game is like this vision into a possibility for Star Wars that like with the Mandalorian now also kind of feeling like it's in that blend and the Mandalorian feeling like it exists alongside like it feels like it exists in the same ethos of Star Wars that Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order does and Clone Wars and Rebels like, this is kind of what I hope um, we get. I don't have a lot of hope that any of the, like, movies are going to do that. But if, like, the TV shows, maybe some of, like, the books and stuff like that um, that I haven't gotten into that much, and then the games, if that's a mode that they can get into with Star Wars, that would be awesome. Because it's something that, like, really does enhance this game a lot. Um, which leads me to my final award to give to Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, which is the... <laughs> award for best lightsaber stuff um because man when we haven't had a star wars game that did lightsaber stuff for like seven or like longer than that like nine years or something at this point since um force unleashed 2 which also that game wasn't good so force unleashed 1 which is kind of okay which was the last at least kind of okay game that did this stuff um it just feels so good to have a fucking lightsaber in a video game and then for it to be represented so well with the most in-depth lightsaber customization of any Star Wars game certainly I've ever played. Some of the most satisfying lightsaber combat is not quite up there with Jedi Knight 2, Jedi Outcast, and Jedi Academy, but within the like realm of combat style that they picked for this game, it fits really well um, with the lightsaber. The lightsaber feels incredibly powerful. Um, there's like surprising depth in the combat, particularly near the end of the game when you have a lot of powers. You have the double-bladed lightsaber. Um, and then just like what are some really spectacular, really fun boss fights um, that generally speaking, you know, this is a handy counterpoint to Death Stranding of here's a game that like can do fucking boss fights well. It is fun to fight the second sister. The second sister is cool. Lightsaber fights are cool. Um, and you can, and they just really nail it. Some of that tech they have of making those lightsaber clashes in gameplay feel very like um, real with the way that like the characters animate um, for like real blocks and stuff like that, and they don't fudge it. Um, unlike another game on my list that is a much better game than this, but does have to very fudge that kind of stuff a lot. This game gets some of those elements so right with what is the most important thing for the game to get right, which is that lightsaber. Yes, and. It is one of a couple games on my list this year, I feel like, where this is great, 
I also like it. I don't have my awards, Sean, but if I had one, it would be God, I can't wait for the sequel because this is clearly such a good foundation. I can't wait for the next one. I hope it opens with a cutscene where Cal Kestis chokes on a peanut and dies. And then the girl on who's the girl? What's her name? Oh, I the death and the night sister. I don't remember her name. Yeah, so it starts with an M. But I don't yeah, remember. but she she picks up the lightsaber and then she's our hero and we can just move on because Cal Kestis is fine. But I don't really care about him. Um, and she's a really cool character. So yeah. there is so much, and I don't really they don't really need to kill him, but they do need to let us play as the night sister because she was fucking rad. Yeah, and I would I, cannot... I would really like a dual protagonist setup because <laughs> yes. I think that would be cool for the sequel. Yeah, yes, and you know respawn. Really, we we have to give them credit, I think, for having really cemented themselves as one of the best Western developers in the business. Like, they have had... it Commercially, they've had a rough uh, generation because they've had some difficulties. But critically, I mean, Respawn has had this generation, Titanfall, Titanfall 2, Apex Legends, and Jedi Fallen Order. That is an incredible rap sheet for one developer for one console generation. And I think Jedi Fallen Order, really the cherry on top of proving... Okay, we're more than shooters. We're more than multiplayer. We can do this too. God, sky's the limit for these guys, right? I yeah, mean, they've proven themselves as like a really effective now two-team studio. Um, yes. You know, the Titanfall people made Apex, um, and Jedi Fallen Order was, was Stig's team that had been hard at work on this game for a long time. Um, yeah, and that's like really cool because they are definitely one of the best like new developers of this generation. Um obviously built out of like the ashes of old infinity ward um but but a very clear um great studio from this generation of consoles um that like yeah that you know titanfall one was sort of a like it felt like like a very good game of them kind of finding themselves but titanfall two great fucking campaign great fucking multiplayer apex legends is very good i wish i had more time in my life just so i could play that game more because i did have a lot of fun with it and then now this a really cool melee focused dark souls inspired fucking star wars game yeah i am very excited to see what they do next yes um so yeah jedi fallen order if you haven't played it yet you know it let's just say this sean if you are someone who only follows the star wars movies and after rise of skywalker you were feeling really down in the dumps go watch mandalorian yep and then go play jedi fallen order in whatever order and um, you will feel really good about Star Wars because where I'm sitting from, Rise of Skywalker is just sort of bemusing to me because all the Star Wars stuff I wanted to be good is really good. And I will take Jedi Fallen Order over shitty fucking movie any day of the week. Yeah. And Clone Wars starts up again in like a week and I'm very yeah. excited. Got another trailer and it looks good. It's amazing, Sean, that we can say a movie as disastrously bad as Rise of Skywalker made it to theaters and yet Star Wars is in a pretty good place. Do you love the fact that the Sonic the Hedgehog movie is better than Star Wars Episode Nine? Like, what, I, what I universe do. did we stumble into? Oh boy, yeah. Right. Well, you know, the the Sonic the Hedgehog movie they gave him the time to to fix it and make it good. So that's how it goes. So I guess it's my number six next. Sure, yeah, that works. Because because we went seven and then I was with you on that seven. Okay, yeah, my number six. You're going to have to bear with me as I explain how this is eligible for this list. Okay, sure. But I'm happy I was able to do the mental gymnastics to make it eligible for this list. Because this is a game we are going to have so much fun talking about. It's one of two From Software games we're talking about today. Because um, number, number six hmm. is Metal Wolf Chaos XD. <laughs> Thank you. 
Metal Wolf the, Chaos. So, if you... the, so, so this this is the game that originally never came out over here on the original Xbox. That's a mech game where you play as the president, correct? Yeah. Let me tell you yeah. all about it. If that huh. sentence Sean just said confused you, let me go over it. Metal Wolf Chaos, not XD, but just Chaos, was a game that came out on the Xbox in 2004 by From Software. And this is... 2004 is the year Hidetaka Miyazaki was hired at FromSoft. So this is still the pre-Miyazaki era of FromSoft when they were best known for Armored Core and they made all these mech games. And um, what happened is at this time, so 2004, the original Xbox is still new and Microsoft really is trying to make, I guess they still are, but Microsoft was trying to make inroads in Japan. And back then that didn't sound so crazy, right? Um, and so they thought, well, let's find a very Japanese studio to make us a game for the Xbox. And they hired FromSoft and said, make us a mech game. And FromSoft, being a bunch of little bastards, decided, well, if Americans are giving us money, let's make relentless fun of the Americans in our video game. And they made a mech game called Metal Wolf Chaos, in which you play as the 47th president of the United States, Michael Wilson, who, following a violent coup d'etat by his vice president, Richard Hawk gets in a big mech called the Metal Wolf and goes around the United States liberating cities from the iron grip of the coup d'etat forces. And it is silly. It is over the top. It is fucking crazy. We'll talk about all that in a minute. Because the game is so fucking zany, it never made it outside of Japan. They planned on getting it outside of Japan, but it was Japan only in 2004 on the Xbox And the reason it is eligible for our list is that it did not come to the U.S. until 2019 when the good folks at Devolver Digital did an enhanced port for the PS4, Xbox One, and PC. I played it on PS4 as Metal Wolf Chaos XD. And I figure my logic is, Sean, if something like, you know, Dragon Quest XI was a 2016 game in Japan, but it was on our 2017 top 10 list. Same thing here, it's just the difference is 2004 to 2019. It's a foreign oh, game. I, that... I I think it one hundred percent. You are correct. I think that this is absolutely eligible. Um, yes. I think by the rules that we have always used on this podcast, which are vague and can be changed whenever the fuck we want. Um, <laughs> like I I think it's it makes more sense for you to do Metal Wolf Chaos XD. I mean, we haven't talked about the video game yet because I'm curious. I I'm surprised that this is higher than something like a Shovel Knight. Um, because I'm here. I'm interested to hear you talk about this game. Um, now. Um, but regardless of that element, it makes more sense using that logic for it to be included on the list than me putting fucking Dragon Ball Legends, which is just a vague, like, this game has just been going on, and it is almost a different game now that it was at launch, but that's just through, like, incremental updates, um, in, like, a year two of release. So, yes, I think you are, you're safe in picking the game in terms of a rule, uh, perspective. I'm interested in, from the quality perspective, because I have not really played Metal Wolf Chaos, but I have seen Metal Wolf Chaos played. Um, and I'm, I, I've never had the impression that it would be a, like, number six game of the year type material. Because it's fucking crazy. Like, first and foremost, the writing in this game is, it is absolute 100% smearing shit on the walls in a padded cell lunacy. It is lunatic, and I love it, and it is knowingly lunatic. Like, the people at FromSoft, like, took their happy pills and made a crazy game, but, like... It is wild. Sean, here is the opening crawl of Metal Wolf Chaos. This game opens with the words, By the end of the first quarter of the 21st century, freedom was dead in America. 
And if that does not resonate with you in the year of our Lord 2019, I don't know what does. It was like, Sean, I booted up this game. I saw those words. Freedom was dead in America. And I'm like, oh, this isn't speculative fiction. This is just where we are, I guess. Yeah, you, you, um, you, you're you set a little bit too far in the distant future video game. Like, bring it back yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Like, it, by, like, the second decade of the 21st century, freedom was dead in America. Beginning with a large-scale military coup d'etat that erupted in various cities throughout the entire throughout the nation, the rebels seized power in all the central institutions of government. The entire nation appeared to have fallen completely into the hands of the coup d'etat forces. However, one final hope in opposing the coup d'etat forces remained, the final hope being the U.S. president himself. Michael Wilson, the 47th president of the United States, equipped with a special mobile armored ops suit developed in secret by the military, boldly waged his own, in quotes, personal war alone to take back America's freedom. That is how the game starts. In the first level, you bust out of the White House in your Metal Wolf suit because the vice president's forces are pursuing you, and it ends with you getting on Air Force One with your secretary, Jody, and from the Metal Wolf suit, yelling out the back, shaking the Metal Wolf's fist, yelling, Richard! And that is the beginning of this game. And the game is you flying around. There's a map of the United States, and every level is a different city and a different mission like Houston and Phoenix and uh, San Francisco. And you go to Alcatraz Bay at one point to shut down the Alcatraz cannon. And you are flying around the United States fighting Richard Hawke's coup d'etat forces so you can liberate the United States. And it is truly insane, the dialogue in this game, because it is important to know this game was written and recorded in English even in its Japanese release. Like the Japanese release had Japanese subtitles, but the dialogue has always been in English. Yeah, so that's a really important thing to understand about this game, is that even though it was never released over here, it only has an English-language dub, which was made by From Software in Japan. So yes. and you, you know can how... already guess at the quality of that English-language dub based on the circumstances in which it came about. <laughs> because, Sean, I think, as like anime and game fans, one of our favorite things is every so often when you get Japanese creatives writing in English, you get some crazy shit. Well, Mm -hmm. this is an entire video game that is that crazy shit. And it is also them, like, just putting the heat to American, like, military exceptionalism. It is a... It is very silly, but it is a brutally silly satire of, like, American militarism. And it is... It is so pointed, Sean. I I kept a little journal of lines as I was playing the game of lines of dialogue I just have to quote on this podcast. Here's a little taste of some of what is in Metal Wolf Chaos XD. I think this is in the San Francisco level. When you land Metal Wolf, the President Michael Wilson yells, No, 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 this is on the Alcatraz level because you're going to have, you have to go smash the Alcatraz cannon. So he lands and says, I'll smash it faster than a Florida recount. Uh, again, remember this was 2004. He says, I'll never give up as long as the America inside my heart is still alive. The first of many lines that sound like they could be out of a Donald Trump State of the Union. Um, you have stuff like, so there is a journalist from the propaganda network DNN that is flying around and is like commentating through levels because the propagandists are trying to say that Metal Wolf is causing all the chaos, not the coup d'etat forces. And he's annoying you. And Jody, you're, you're the, the voice in your ear, the woman at one point yells to you, you should embed that journalist 
in the ground, <laughs> which is a great line. Yeah, um, Jody, Jody from like the because I I think I've probably seen most of this game be played in video form um, on the internet. Jody to me is the true star of the game. Um, because oh, she's she great. Gets, yeah, she gets most of the dialogue, and and her delivery is like pitch perfect '90s like Sega arcade game delivery like she sounds like she's a fucking house of dead character it's like yes. every word is in enunciated very specifically and emphasized way too much and so her sentences take probably about 50 percent longer to say than they should um and so her the jokes land in like seven different ways because of the very stilted delivery they're given like the excessively stilted delivery Oh, it's so good. And, like, she always calls you Mr. President. And at, when you, like, die in the level, she'll go, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President. It's so weird. She has so, she, at the end of every, or when you start every mission, she goes, good luck and Godspeed, Mr. President. Um, a couple more choice lines. The Phoenix level is great because it's Phoenix, Arizona, but it's done as like an old style old west town makes absolutely no goddamn sense everything else is like vaguely like what the town would look like i have been to phoenix arizona it is not an old style old west town but you are fighting three other mech suits in that one so you land and michael wilson says this is like starring in john ford's my darling clementine want to find out who gets to play wyatt earp <laughs> She's one of my favorites. Um, when you first fight Richard Hawk in the game, Michael Wilson yells, suck on my mission punch. And Richard Hawk goes, eat my flame of justice. Um, there's a recurring thing where Michael Wilson says like he's going to do something. And the reason is because I'm the president of the United States of America. My favorite line is he says, believe in your own justice. I won't lose to that false prophet. And the reason is because I'm the president of the United States of America. Um, oh god there's so many other good ones um, let's see there is a there are a lot of like text sequences like between levels that tell you what's going on and there's this whole thing about Richard Hawk taking a bunch of people from Florida and selling them into white slavery and they phrase it as I shit you not this line is in the game Sean Hawk's eugenic wet dream <laughs> it's it's amazing mm. um uh, and just like just to give you another good idea in the Liberty Island level which is near the end of the game you are defending the Statue of Liberty against a giant tank and at the end of the level Metal Wolf lifts the tank up and swings it around and throws it in the ocean while yelling how do you like me now which is also what he yells whenever you unleash a super attack this game is fucking bonkers it is so funny i think especially when you think of it in the context of 2004 this would have been like mid-iraq war like what they're making fun of it is just like Mwah! it is so perfect it's amazing how much of the dumb rhetoric really does sound like trump's awful speech writing when he like actually cleans himself up and gives a real speech and it's really bad it's so funny and it is also a really good game. Like, I'm not going to claim it's the most brilliant game on this list, but it is a stupid amount of fun to play. It it kind of feels like the ideal way to play this game would be in, like, a giant arcade cabinet. Like, one of those where you go sit inside the, like, arcade booth and there's a big screen and, like, you probably pick up two guns and fire them. That's kind of what it feels like. Because the way it is, is your Metal Wolf has a gun in each hand. And so right trigger is your right gun, left trigger is your left gun. And then you can switch which gun you have because in each arm you can have four guns. And so you bring into each level with 
with you eight guns and in between levels you can buy and develop and improve your guns and it's just hilarious like you're just going into bear like the goal is to go in as fully fucking loaded as possible and just like bring in like a gun with 1200 rounds and all this shit and like you run out of one assault rifle and you switch to your other assault rifle and you're just laying waste to everything the levels are sort of at their best they're these sort of big arenas in a town or something where you have a goal like go smash all of the enemy installations or some of them are more timed where like there's a toxic gas releasing and you have to go destroy all the toxic gas before it like gets out and those can be very stressful it's a it's a good challenge sometimes they take you a couple of times to get through there's some boss fights that are pretty fun and it is just ridiculous rampage wreckage it's kind of mindless but i really enjoyed it and while you're playing you get all of this insane writing that you would only get from a Japanese developer who is taking dumb Americans money and making fun of them while they do it and it is the greatest prank anyone's ever pulled and I fucking love it I will admit I have not quite beaten this game yet because it takes a 2004 difficulty spike at the end which I think sometimes we talk about difficulty spikes today and I think we forget Difficulty spikes are not a thing anymore the way they once were, especially in like early 3D games. This game is like a certain difficulty and then it's the anti-penultimate level, which is Liberty Island, is just this massive, giant uptick in difficulty where like if you've just played all the levels through once and upgraded your guns as much as you could through one playthrough, you just, you cannot beat that level. You don't have enough firepower. So I basically had to go play every level again, grinding for money and some levels multiple times until I could get enough firepower to beat that fucking level. And now I am in on the last level with Richard Hawk and I'm going to have to go grind some more. And I was hoping to beat this in time for this podcast, but just, um, it's, it gets to the end. You kind of have to be grindy. I'm okay not having quite beaten this because the fun in it is not necessarily seeing the completion of the story. It is just playing this crazy game. It is very 2004 era Xbox PS2 in its graphics and sound design, but I kind of love that. Um, It is just like, as someone who has not played a ton of mecha games, but obviously loves mecha stuff, um, it's it's very fun to see this and like I don't feel like we get a lot of mecha games anymore and no. this one is is really cool and I love just getting your fucking guns out I usually have an assault rifle in one hand and a bazooka in the other and going around blowing shit up is a great fucking time and yeah this game is nuts it also has just a rad as shit soundtrack I probably played some of it here because I'm going to be editing in songs for each of these games um just this game is awesome. I'm so glad that it's accessible now. It's I actually got it um, a couple weeks ago. GameStop had a deal of the day where it was nine dollars physical, so it was very cheap for me. But I think at full price, it's only thirty bucks. So mm. find a sale or just I think it's worth thirty bucks. But pick this game up. You won't believe your eyes. It's crazy and it's also very fun. Interesting. I did you when you said you had an eclectic list. I yeah. didn't, I wasn't expecting Metal Wolf Chaos XD to come up. Um, yep because and it was i will admit it was very hard to rank i think the reason it is where it is is because there is literally nothing else like it and i have played technically better games this year yes probably shovel knight king of cards is a better like game overall but you know it didn't kind of make my jaw drop to the floor with lines like hawk's eugenics wet dream and then i go into a level and like 
you know, the way you save civilians who are in POW camps is there's just a cage they're in and you have to fire at the cage with a light ammo until it blows up and they yell out, they run out going, yay. And then Jody, the voice in your ear, will tell you if it was a scientist in the cage or a musician who had been contracted, who had been like pulled in as a POW to play music. And then when you rescue the musicians, you get BGM tracks in the sound select screen. This game is crazy. I love it. I don't know. Okay, I don't know how to follow up from Battle Wolf Chaos. <laughs> that was the goal. <laughs> My number six game of the year is Control. game released in this year <laughs> that is a good <laughs> video game um so yeah so control i talked about it a lot on the podcast when i played it um back in august this game fucking kicks ass um so it gets a number of different awards the first award is the mm, yeah give me that lore baby award for just having just the best um most diverse weird fucking lore pickups it is a game that every time I picked up some random piece of paper off the ground, I would immediately pause the game and read it because it would tell me some crazy shit that some like haunted rubber ducky did to an agent of the um, control bureau or the, the federal bureau of control. Um, or like the guy who has to stare at a refrigerator or if he looks away from it, it will kill him. Um, all kinds of wacky shit that happens like the time that the federal bureau of control had to dismantle an entire plane to like get one screw or I forget what the thing was they had to get. But this like one guy is basically like memo just talking about how hard it is to like with a team of like five people just to take a whole jumbo jet plane and dismember it um, piece by piece. There's just a lot of um, really fascinating, intricate, well thought out world detail that is baked into every single thread of this game, whether it's the main characters, um, whether it's just the purely the environment of the oldest house, this bizarre um, building in the middle of Manhattan that nobody can see unless you know that it's there and that can shift and transform um, while you're inside of it. Or it is the explicit exp expository lore dumps they give you in these little tiny pickups um, that range from like fascinating, um, like like deep elements of the story to just like weird little kind of trivial funny asides. Um, but the entire conception of the setting of control, which is this world where um, objects which are archetypal, meaning things that that occupy this this space in like the public consciousness and culture that is kind of privileged in an archetypal fashion, like a rubber ducky, which is something that everybody understands, like a Bakelite 1950s telephone that is like the archetypal ideal of what you think of when you think of the word telephone. Um, all those things are imbued with a, a like specific power because they occupy this archetypal place in our collective unconscious. It's very sort of Jungian in that way. Um, and that setting gives them all these really fun tools to play with. And so the story... And in what's going on in just the little side quests you stumble into dealing with these objects of power are so fascinating and quirky in this very particular Remedy way. Um, Remedy being the developer that is so much fun. 
Um, the in the whole in stretch of the game where you start finding out what's really going on with the hiss, the main villain of the game, and particularly Jesse Faden, your main character's backstory, and the wacky fucking shit that happened when she was a kid. That is like basically you getting like you reading single pages of these like basically like diary things. They're like if you ripped up like the craziest Stephen King horror novel you've ever found and you ripped it into pieces and you just threw it all over the place and someone just picked it up one page at a time and read it and it's just like these kids just like stumbling into portals into alternate dimensions where they get turned into like their faces get turned into dog faces and shit and it's like the most just out there nonsense um and getting that like weird Stephen King gives you Lord of the Flies um in like snapshots thing that they give you in that whole big section at the end of the game where you understand Jesse's backstory. Um, all that stuff in the story and setting um, with the lore is really, really effective. Um, and it is one of like the big things that pulled me through that game and makes me very excited for um, the DLC in the future. It also gets the Smash It Up Good Baby Award for Most Destructible <laughs> Environments because I cannot stress enough how fucking amazing the destructible environments are in Control. Um, so all the gameplay is you using like your telekinetic powers. Um, primarily you have a gun as well, but that's more for like the gun is there to like do some damage and fill the time while your powers are recharging. You're figuring out what to do with them. Um, so when you're like picking up fucking toilets and fling them across the room into someone's face and they go bouncing backwards and smash into this like tiled um, wall and the tile starts like ripping apart and you see like the rebar and the concrete that gets dented behind it. Like, the very, like, material-specific destruction and deformation of the environment is one of the most technically impressive things I've ever seen in a game. Um, the, like, most impressive stuff is anything that's, like, got, that, like, balsa wood kind of quality to it, like bathroom-stalled doors and things like that that just splinter in this very satisfying, realistic way. Um, so when you end a combat encounter, you leave this room just utterly trashed in the most, like, Rockstar having a bender at a fucking hotel room style, just lamps are all over the place. The floor is just into like literally tiles shoved into pieces and piled up all over the place. Trees that in like the atrium ripped apart. Um, tables and chairs split in half and flung all over the place. Um, papers just strewn all over the everywhere. Like every time you like dodge through a desk, um, just you just completely destroy what must have been someone's like five hundred page fucking like damage report or like tax returns on some something they had been working on for a month and then now it's just you know scattered everywhere to the four corners of this room um that sort of very visceral destructive physical quality to the combat in the game in the environments you move through um it is not necessarily the best combat in any game i've ever played but it is so fun particularly when you get your levitation power about halfway through the game and so you are just floating above, above everybody, ripping out chunks of the floor and throwing them and just, like, wrecking shit. Um, it is not just a good story in good world, but it also an extremely fun, um, very sort of kinetic physics-based action game. That is the kind of game, I talked about this on the podcast um, when I talked about this game in depth, that is the kind of game that we just don't get a lot of anymore, that it feels like that few years after Half-Life 2, where Half-Life 2 revolutionized physics and video games, and everyone's like, how do we do cool shit with physics? Now we just kind of take video game physics for granted. Control is like, how can you do the most fun shit with video game physics in 2019? Um, and that's how they designed their combat. Um, it gets a couple of other awards as well. One is the X-Files Percent's Best Smoky FBI Detector Director Award. 
which goes to the character Zechariah Trench, played by the guy that played Max Payne in the Max Payne games, um, who just is this old fucking again it's basically like what if Mulder turned bad and became the director of the FBI and he just sits in a room and smokes and you, and like the lights are turned off except for one like blue light that shines through the smoke and he says cryptic film noir bullshit all the time and I love him to death um, there's also Dr. Casper Darling who is the other character that both Zachariah Trench and Casper Darling all their stuff is actual like video of the actors um so casper darling is the like mad scientist that creates most of the stuff that plagues you in the game um and his story is fascinating as you get snippets of what happened to him and like this psychological breakdown he starts to have as he realizes the consequences of what has been unleashed on the, the bureau um and some of the last moments you see of that character are like actually really dramatically compelling and it's a really great performance um you also get this great sequence where jesse is sort of in like her own psyche and her own subconscious and she sees this weird like old 80s like banged up vhs tape video of dr casper darling doing um this like 80s power hit song type thing and it's like this ridiculous music video and it is pitch fucking perfect it's so well done um all of that kind of extraneous material like the threshold kids which is a like black humor kids puppet show thing that you find videos of um all that stuff is like so well designed and so well put together in this like kind of multimedia presentation package they give you um but then the last uh award it gets is the best playable james bond intro uh award for the ashtray maze so there's a section near the end of the game called the ashtray maze um where it's it's basically if why the reason i say james bond intro is as you're moving through the ashtray maze, you get this like big ridiculous song that starts playing that like it was made specifically for control. So all the lyrics kind of apply to the game. And then the geometry of the room just shifts dramatically as you're going through this combat sequence. And it's this great, like sort of like classic fifties hotel kind of aesthetic of the room. And so the carpet is that very 50s hotel carpet with like little like wooden desks with little lamps on them on um, the wallpaper this like red wallpaper that's very 50s style um and the and it's like this like infinite maze contained within itself that as you move through it walls open up and like just giant like sections of the floor create come up and create pillars that block your path and you go around and like the your perspective shifts almost like in an inception style way um it's a truly like remarkable demonstration of the mastery this game has over the environment um which is kind of really the oldest house is the main star of the game in so many ways and how it kind of brings the story and the gameplay together and the ashtray maze is there like here we go um it's this very rock steady style like we're just going to do the zaniest shit we can think of with the tools available to us in a video game that would be basically impossible to do in any other kind of media and achieve the same effect um, and, and it actually, one of the things that reminds me of thinking of Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is some of the most creative stuff they did in the Titanfall 2 campaign with just really deforming and moving the environment in this disorienting but, like, beautiful dance um, kind of way that just delivers what is, like, to me, one of the most memorable gameplay experiences I've had all year. Um, so Control has been cool to see, like, this game be this kind of rising star of the year that started out as kind of, like, sleeper hit that, like, when we got into the game awards and stuff like that, it got IGN's game of the year for 2019, which was a big surprise to me. Um, I feel like in another year earlier, um, you know, several years ago, like five years ago or something, a game like control would have only been a sleeper hit and never would have gotten a lot of like outside 
acclaim and I would feel like like a solitary voice praising this game because it hits my specific interests around X-Files, Twin Peaks, and physics-based gameplay. But now it's getting like this wider acclaim that is so much fun to see. I'm very excited to see what Remedy does with the DLC um, for Control in the future because it really is a truly remarkable game. And I think, um, in my opinion, the best game that studio has made to date. Awesome. That's definitely one I wish I had played. I think I would like it. So yeah. maybe one day, but the world is too busy. Um, all right, so we're, we're halfway down. So it's time for our number fives, right? Yes. Okay. So let's do my number five, which is Astral Chain. Switch exclusive by Platinum Games, and just one of the most kind of delightful out-of-left-field treats. Uh, not out-of-left-field in the sense of, like, it was surprising that it came out and was good, because Platinum Games makes good stuff, but that, you know, uh, you know, just getting, like, fully new IPs, nothing else behind it. It's, it's a totally new game. Not a ton of those that you get a lot these days, and it's fun when a you know developer like Platinum, who certainly has plenty of franchises to be going around, they could be doing... I mean, we know they are making Bayonetta 3 at some point. They We could have been getting near Automata 2 or something if Yoko Taro wanted to do that. Um, and instead, and this is the near Automata team, is the team at Platinum that made this game, um, kind of took a lot of what they had learned and decided to make something new for Switch. And what we get in Astral Chain is a game about two young police officers who get with this weird unit where they are capturing monsters from another dimension in a little device on their arms and they're using it to fight monsters in the real world. Look, it's a lot. You can go look up the story online. The The upside is you get this anime-as-fuck art style and anime-as-fuck story um, where it often does just kind of feel like you're doing this cool, like, playable 3D CG anime running around this, like, you know, sort of Neo-Tokyo sort of thing. And fighting all the monsters from these extra-dimensional rifts. The fight system is incredibly creative, as you would expect from Platinum Games, where the actual, you know, chain of the title that you use to bind your... I forget what they call the, like, beasts. They have a whole, like, name in it. But you have these different type monsters that you get from the other dimension. Eventually you have, I think, five or six total. You have, like, a beast type and a sword type and several other types. Um, and they all do different cool things, but all of them have this chain connected to you. And a big part of the game is literally, like, with the right stick, drawing the chain in a certain way to, like, bind enemies together and then doing attacks with them. And it is just incredibly dynamic and fluid. And it's never, like, the hardest game in the world. I, You know, you could probably make it harder. I was playing on sort of the standard difficulty that they recommend you play. Um, and I know there are higher difficulties, especially for a new game plus. But it is just very dynamic and fun. And it is flashy as hell. Heck, this is one of those games on the Nintendo Switch where I just kind of my jaw drops because I can't believe it's running on the Switch. Like, especially this felt like the most of the Switch games this year feeling like the Switch punching above its weight because it 
looks amazing. There is so much going on visually, and yet it's a rock-solid performer. Like, it, it always looks good. It does not have significant frame dips. It's just a good-looking, good-running game, and there are games that were less demanding this year that ran less well. Platinum really optimized this, and I assume probably opened some new doors for other developers on the Nintendo Switch, because this game looks like it could be on the PlayStation 4 or something. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous-looking game. Rad-as-fuck soundtrack. Um, the story is not the greatest thing in the world, but it's pretty entertaining. And there are some things I absolutely love about it. If like this game is on this list, if for no other reason than the character, uh, Patty, the, the dog mascot of a big dog in a mascot suit who goes around doing things. And it's actually a girl in the precinct who's voiced by Cassandra Lee Morris, who did Morgana in Persona 5, the the English dub. And she just, that was easily my favorite vocal performance in an English cast this year was Cassandra Lee Morris as that character, because she is so fucking funny in those sequences where you're running around the police station and doing stuff with her as the dog mascot. I love all of that, you know, Again, not the greatest like overall story in the world, but it moves at a good clip. It's fun to play. Um, I, I love like its overall sense of pace where each chapter, it's a little repetitive, but I think it's repetitive in a good way where it's got a structure of you're in the station, you have some sort of side quests to do in the station that don't necessarily involve combat. You go out into the main investigation, you do detective work, eventually you kind of get a big combat section. Combat sections also involve a lot of platforming because you can use your different monsters on your astral chain for all sorts of different um, sort of movement puzzles and platforming puzzles, and those are really fun to see play out. Um, and ultimately you'll get something really huge and flashy at the end. And in the second half of the game, it really breaks up into some really interesting new areas and new investigations that you're doing. And the story takes some turns that I think are pretty interesting and bold. And like the game ends on more of a, not a down note, but like it kind of goes places that I didn't fully expect it to go. And overall, I just think it's a super solid, fully original game and it's one every Switch owner should give a try. It's, I think, a really special game on the Nintendo Switch and shows, how, I think, how healthy that system's lineup is, that you can get new stuff like this, you know, funded and promoted by Nintendo. It was on their, you know, uh, Nintendo Game Vouchers program this year. I think it sold pretty well from everything I saw. It was, you know, near the top of the charts for a while. Um, just a really special game, and it's the kind of thing where if Platinum wants to make a sequel, I will be there day one. It's I'm sure they could make a great sequel out of this, and if this is it and it's just a cool one-off, I like it that way as well. It feels like this is this is not a case like Jedi Fallen Order where like I feel like I need to see the sequel because there's so much for them to build on. Um, it just feels like this is the game they wanted to make. It's a pretty uncompromised version of what they wanted to make. And if it winds up being a one-off, it'll be a really memorable one-off that'll probably at some point be remembered as kind of a cult classic. And I'm glad I got to be there at the beginning to, to be there and play it and, and, you know, help give it some love because it's a special little game. Awesome. I'm always happy for Platinum to be on these lists. Yep. And really interested to see where they go next because we know they're working on Bayonetta 3. There was that other game whose name I forget that was announced for PS4 and Xbox. Babylon's Babylon's Fall. Fall. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't heard any more about that, so I don't know where that's going. And then who knows where Yoko Taro is going next, because he did Nier Automata with Platinum. I don't know if he'll do his next game with Platinum, but we want to, you know, he might be in another dimension right now or something. Who knows? I mean, Vanquish is coming out on modern platforms soon, so. I'm very excited about that. That game is very good. 
Yeah, that's that's going to be coming out. I I think it's only available for pre-order in the bundle with Bayonetta, but I think when it comes out, you'll be able to buy it separately, which is good because I already have Bayonetta on Switch, so mm-hmm. I'm excited to give that game a try. But yeah, so that's Platinum getting their second shout-out of the day as my number five game of the year. Sean, what's your number five game of the year? My number five game of the year, a game I love and is very near and dear to my heart, is Dragon Quest Builders 2. <laughs> hard one for me to place um because i didn't finish it it's it's i've i really don't like to put games on my list that i don't finish i try not to do it um but i did play probably like 90 hours of this game or something ridiculous jesus yeah so i played the shit out of dragon quest builders 2 the only reason why i didn't finish it was because i i mean i got to the third island i was very very far into it and i played it over the summer and then the summer ended and i had to and I got a job very suddenly, and it, Dragon Quest Builders 2 was a game that did not fit well in the time I had to play video games, because I feel like you have to kind of invest a lot in it um, to get a lot out of it. Um, but So it gets my I Wish I Had Infinite Time Award, because God, I desperately want to play this game and like be able to sort of like sit with it and have a lot of time to play it. Um, and and my, I'm hoping maybe once I finish Yakuza 3, there'll be a little bit of time to me to go back to Dragon Quest Builders 2 for a bit before new stuff starts coming out. Um, but I played the ever-living shit out of Dragon Quest Builders 2 over the summer um, because it is such a well-designed game. But it, it also gets a my most heartfelt award for warming the cockles of my heart. It is just such a nice, pleasant game um, in, in a year that has, you know, or not just a year, but like in a market that is so like dominated by very violent games and i really like very violent games um you know we'll get to our first one our number one game of the year which is very very violent and is all about violence dragon quest builders 2 is a game that's all about community um and that's what kind of really separates it from other games like it um and even elevates it from the, the you know i did play a huge amount of dragon quest builders 1 um, but but what of what I did play of that game is that Builders 2 really finds this compelling way where you go into these towns that are in disarray and you build up a community with them. Um, and some of the, the stuff they did of like making it so that the villagers could eventually start building big projects on their own and you provided them resources and things like that. The side quests you do for them really made it feel like even though there was this kind of repetitive structure to the game where you went to the island, you bet the people, built up the island, eventually you got a big project, and then all the people joined together to help you build the project. Um, that sense of like coming to learn what was plaguing this community, how they're affected by um, the children of Hargon, um, who are the sort of main villains of the game as holdovers from Dragon Quest Two, the original Dragon Quest Two. Um, and, and then slowly fixing that and then empowering them. And I think that's the most powerful thing about it is it's very much a game that feels like you're enacting that old saying of give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, give a, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime, is that you, you, you're not just building stuff for these people. You're teaching these people how to build and create self-sustaining communities on their own. And that sense of building community is so powerful, such a powerful theme and core message for a game to have. Um, and Dragon Quest Builders 2 is a game that's so well designed to deliver that message. 
Um, and it's something that sets it apart from like a Death Stranding, where Death Stranding has a lot of similar ideas in terms of thematics, but is very bad, I think, at generally expressing those through gameplay or through store like you know pre-written and guided story experiences. Dragon Quest Builders 2 bakes that thematic experience into every single thing you do in the game. And the relationships you build with characters feel so much more meaningful because they're so tied to what you're doing, the rooms you're building. And, you know, the reason why, even though, you know, I didn't finish the game, but I probably spent almost as much time, Jonathan, as you did playing it. Because I knew you finished it, correct? Yes. Yeah. And you spent more time. It took me about 60 hours. Yeah. Like, the reason why that is is because I just got very obsessed with building things very specifically and like trying to make the best things I could on both aesthetically. And then also the game was very good at rewarding you um, for designing different kinds of rooms and and giving you different benefits um, for that. So then especially once I got back to my main, the sort of center Island where you could build whatever you want um, and you're given all these missions of like what to build in those areas, I spent a huge amount of time, doing that and building up my like farms and designing everything exactly the way I wanted because I wasn't constrained anymore by the like small narrow plot of land you're given in each of the mission islands um, and that was so much fun and then going to the little adventure islands and completing the challenges there so you would get infinite of specific kinds of resources that was a really cool idea that then eventually once you have like infinite wood and shit like that I would just like build 999 chairs or however many chairs would stack into one slot so it's like well now I never need to build another chair in my fucking life in this game because I just have infinite resources um, and mats to build what I want um, and so it is a game that like it's a significant time investment but it there's it was so rewarding for the time you spend in it um, and so if you are someone who enjoys those kinds of Minecraft style building games, um, but wants something that is a game that like recognizes and plays with you instead of just being the sort of like tool, um, that you engage with, but a game that gives you that kind of feedback, um, and plays with you. Dragon Quest Builders 2, I think is masterful at that. And I, and I really hope I can find some time either, you know, in the next few weeks maybe, or some, or, you know, over the summer when I have a lot more free time again, to really dig back into this game because I do love it so much. Um, and to express my love, I also give it its third award, which is the most toilets award because I sure built a lot of very nice fucking toilets in that game. And that moment of when you build a toilet for your villagers and they've never had a toilet in their life and they just go and run over and line up outside the toilet. You're like, Oh God, here's like 30 people standing outside this toilet here. Let me build you like 10 toilets over here and build like elaborate like stacking them up on each other with stairs and shit um like the the <laughs> like in the the efficiency and in infrastructure in maximizing space um was also very fun with this game so all that is just it, it creates what is to me like a very not entirely unique obviously it is a sequel to Dragon Quest Builders but it is such a sharp refinement of the things I saw from the little I played of Builders 1 to create what is this like really well considered very thoroughly understood thought through masterpiece of game design in a genre that is like extremely popular in its few instances in which it's played with but a genre that overall in the space of gaming is very underexplored and builders 2 feels like this indicator of there's so much we could do with these kinds of mechanics that people are just either you know running away from because Minecraft is scary and how like enduring its popularity is, or all we're doing is cheaply cashing in on Minecraft. Here's Dragon Quest Builders 2 saying, here's this other direction we could go with the same concepts. 
and make a game that is truly astounding. Absolutely. Uh, we might talk about this game more in a little bit. Yeah. For now, Sean, all I'll say is you should, if you can find the time, you should play the rest of the game because what you have yet to play is absolutely worth it and the game's home stretch is fittingly special for a game this special. Yeah. I mean, I think about Dragon Quest Builders 2 a lot, so it's like fresh in my memory so I can go back to it whenever. Like I've been I very intentionally be like at least like every couple of days I'll have a straight thought about Dragon Quest Builders 2 just to keep myself in the headspace so I don't get into that weird spot where I feel like compelled to have to start the game over from the beginning because that would be hell. I That would be hell. Yes, but it's it's there, it's waiting for me. And at some point, I will find some time to go back and finish that game. Also, because the third island is very interesting and very different. It's very cool, yes. Yeah. Um, my number four, moving on to our number fours, is Pokemon Shield. this one earlier pokemon shield is wonderful it is by far the most i've played a pokemon since gen 3 with ruby and sapphire um you know pokemon obviously has been in our lives since we were very very young um i have bought and played every generation's pokemon i have not beaten every single one it kind of winds up being like every other one i find interesting but I definitely have poured the most time into Pokemon Shield. And if I had infinite time, I think I would still be playing it and pouring more time into it. Because I'm about maybe, you know, 75 Pokemon away from finishing the Pokedex. And, and I was felt very inspired to do that in this game. Um, Pokemon Shield is wonderful. And I think, you know, I mentioned earlier comparing it to Fire Emblem Three Houses. And I would go back to that comparison I made before where I think... Obviously, Pokemon Shield somehow became a victim of the culture wars this year. And you had people on Twitter getting very, very angry about a game they had never played. And finally, it came out. And no, it did not have every single Pokemon ever made in it because they did not lock all the Game Freak employees in a salt mine and make them work dawn to dusk and, and like whip their backs to do that for you because, you know, they're not inhuman monsters. I mean, they did um, that anyways to make the video games. Probably. That's, that's how video games work. Yes, but they didn't do it more than that. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, no, it does not have every Pokemon ever made in it. What it does have is a really beautiful world to explore. It has, I think, without a doubt, the best soundtrack Pokemon has ever had. And the most, like, Sega Dreamcast-style soundtrack that is not on the Sega Dreamcast I've ever heard. I fucking adore the soundtrack to Pokemon Shield. It is rad. It has a better sense of scale and place than I think Pokemon has ever had in a video game. It has a story that is, I'm not going to say the best in Pokemon because it's not, but it's one that will sneak up on you. And in the final act, particularly after the first credits, when you, the game is very much not over when you see the credits, um, some really good character stuff. There's a character named Hop who I think is one of the best characters in a video game this year because he starts as like the prototypical just friend who is your 
you know, nominal rival and I think turns into something kind of more interesting over the course of the game. And it also has the best Pokemoning, for lack of a better term, which is what is the appeal of the Pokemon games? It is going around, having an adventure, catching and raising a bunch of Pokemon and bringing them into battle and then going and catching and raising more Pokemon. And Pokemon Shield refines that side of the game better than any other Pokemon game. It, you know, there are always things we could wish for more of, like like letting us do more than four moves or maybe more than six party members. And while they haven't adjusted those absolute core things, I think doing things like letting you have your PC box with you wherever you are, making the experience share automatic and even for your Pokemon throughout the entire game. It's not something you have to worry about. Giving you things where you can level up extra Pokemon on the side, like in your PC box, where you have these missions you can go send your Pokemon on. Um, Having the wild area, where you go out and you can just find dozens and dozens of new Pokemon and just catch to your heart's content, kind of whenever you want to go do that in the game. Really, like, following up on something I think X and Y did very well, of really making sure there's a constant, steady stream of new Pokemon as you go through the game, um, and you, you find on every route, it's not just Geodude after Geodude after Geodude, which was a real rut the Pokemon series had gotten into, I think, before the 3DS years, and S.H.I.E.L.D. really capitalizes on the fix for that, um... And then having just a great roster of Pokemon where you have a lot of the best Pokemon from across the generations and the new Pokemon are, I think, easily the best best and most imaginative and sometimes craziest crop of new po- Pokemon you've had since Generation 2 or 3, where I think the new Pokemon in generations past that, some are good, some are bad, some are the ice cream cone Pokemon, but in Pokemon's Shield you really have a a really top-notch group of new Pokemon who feel like they are not retreads of what we've had in the past. They're not the exact Pokemon Ken Sugimori would have designed back in 1999, but they feel like good Pokemon for this moment, for a big 3D game. You know, my favorite one, probably just on a design ethic, is Corviknight, which is the big metal fucking bird Pokemon, which looks like a Dark Souls villain, became a Pokemon. I love that one. Um, the starters are not the best starters in a Pokemon game, but I am a fan of Score Bunny and his subsequent evolutions. Um, not the best, again, we've had in recent years. Pokemon X and Y had the one that turns into Greninja, which is obviously an all-timer, um, but still very good. And overall, I just, you know, I was not on the hate train of Pokemon because I'm not insane and I'm not an adult who acts like a fucking toddler on the internet. But I definitely was not expecting Pokemon Shield to be as good as it was or that I would spend, I forget what my final clock was, but, you know, upwards of 50 hours playing this game and really getting thorough with it. And, you know, Nintendo announced a couple weeks ago that they were going to be doing this big DLC pack. So there's going to be one expansion over the summer and there's going to be one expansion in the fall where they are adding hundreds of old Pokemon back to the game. So for people who want to bring in their Pokemon, they'll have all of those. They're going to have new areas. They're going to have new campaign in there. Um, Basically, instead of doing the, you know, Pokemon Yellow or Crystal or Black 2 and White 2 or something like that, they're doing it as DLC this time. And that sounds really exciting and smart to me because instead of having to start from scratch, you'll be able to continue this journey in the Galar region And that really excites me, and I think this is the most enthusiastic I've felt about a core Pokemon game in a long time, even though there have been ones like X and Y that I really liked. Um, I was taken aback, and it's some of the most fun I had with a game this year. Perfect for the Nintendo Switch. Um, 
obviously a big hit, so you probably don't need me to tell you all about it. If you have a Switch, you've probably played this game, and if not, you should. It's very, very good. But I'm just, I, I feel very happy, kind of like you did, Sean, talking about Modern Warfare, and like having that again, it's like, yeah, I have this again. It feels like it's been updated. It feels like they caught up. I'm glad I was able to play and enjoy a Pokemon game in 2019 as much as I did. Um, definitely a special thing. I'm happy it's at my number four slot. All they need to do is put Scyther in it, and then we're good. So yes, they, they need to get Scyther and Scizor. I'm sure he is, yeah. I mean, Scizor, I could take or leave, whatever. I don't need an iron fucking Scyther. Like another... Oh, but he's red and cool. I like Scizor. But you're right. I mean, Scyther is the OG. Yeah, yeah. Scyther is the one. Scizor is like a could. Like, if they put Scyther into Smash Brothers, which maybe they should do, Scizor would be a nice color swap. Um, but Scyther's, Scyther's my boy. Awesome. Well, what's your number four? All right, my number four, a game that was the culmination to a long video game journey for me over this year. It's Devil May Cry 5. So Devil May Cry 5, the fifth Devil May Cry game, well, the technically really the sixth Devil May Cry game if you count um, the Ninja Theory War, yeah, the Ninja Theory 1. Um, th- one of the most fun experiences I had with video games this year was just playing through all these games. I mean, you know, except for Devil May Cry 2. I kind of had fun playing that just to be able to talk about it on the podcast because that game does suck. Its reputation is deserved. Um, but 1, 3, and then 4 are all really, really great games. Um, but Devil May Cry 5, I think, is the best. Uh, it just is this culmination of what that team was working through with those games, developing those combat systems even more, introducing other playable characters like Nero in 4, and then like really fleshing Nero out a lot in 5. Um, and then, you know, the the just sort of core combat design that is fundamentally what they were doing with Devil May Cry 3. I mean, it holds a lot of things from 1, but 3 is where they really kind of nailed that combat system. And just refining it, refining it, refining it, adding more dynamics to the combat so that Devil May Cry 5 isn't some, like, big change-up for the series. Um, Instead, it is, like, sort of returned to form in some ways. Not to say that, like, I really like DMC, Devil May Cry, um, but that one is a very different kind of action game. Devil May Cry 5 just is in its own lane and knows what it is and knows what it's doing, and it's extremely good at that. The action is incredibly satisfying, very complex. There's a lot you can do with it. Um, like, I am far from a master at the like combat in A Devil May Cry. It's extremely deep. Um, but it, it does, so it does get my, the game's so nice, I played it twice award um, because it is a game that I played through and then immediately played through on the heart of difficulty. I'd like to go back at some point and play it through on one more difficulty up again because the difficulty in Devil May Cry really changes the experience of the game. Like, it is it is a game that it kind of feels like if you only played it through once, you didn't kind of fully play the game because the first playthrough feels like a tutorial in many ways for the second playthrough where you have access to basically all the abilities in the game. If you Any ability that you unlocked in the first playthrough within game currency you have in your second playthrough, and they just, you know, start throwing in way more complicated enemy setups, um, you have to really know your shit to be able to play the game well on those multiple playthroughs. 
I also played a lot of the Bloody Palace mode, which is basically a wave-based survival mode that is extremely fun and just allows you to kind of dump in as any of the three playable characters and just go hog wild and fight a bunch of enemies. Um, it has also a shockingly good story. Like the story in Devil May Cry games are never amazing, but they do make really kind of um, fun characters that stand out really well, that have very distinct personalities. Um, and it is a really fun culmination of Dante, Nero, um, and then Virgil, who is Dante's brother, who's a major character in Devil May Cry 3, plays a significant role in 5 as well. Um, and so the kind of culmination of those three characters' stories, um, some big character reveals that are things that, if you paid attention to Devil May Cry 4, you probably knew they were going to do eventually, but they finally kind of play some cards that they had set up in that game, and just because they had you know didn't make Devil May Cry 5 for a long time they were just like hanging for people that were fans of the franchise all throughout I can only imagine how painful it was to wait that long for this game to come out and kind of like drop the other shoe on some of those reveals um, that were set up in 4 and it is just like a thoroughly satisfying incredibly refined exceptionally polished gorgeous game like it looks utterly fantastic with some of the best animation in any game you'll find um, so it gets my raddest game award for being unquestionably the raddest game. Any game that stars Dante is the raddest game because Dante is the raddest video game character. He is so fucking cool. Um, and one thing that makes him so fucking cool is um, the Cavalier motorcycle, which gets my I can't believe this is a weapon and it is so fucking cool award because the Cavalier motorcycle is a weapon you unlock for Dante. That is a motorcycle that you can ride around on um, like as part of your moveset that also splits into halves in these like two big kind of like club-looking things where the wheels are at the end and they spin when you hit your enemy. So every time you do an attack with the Cavalier motorcycle, you basically do this big swing, connect with the enemy, and then it just like hits the enemy like 10 to 20 times in a row because the wheel's spinning. So you just hit the enemy and like... This is a game that has really good hit stops on its attack, which if you don't know what a hit stop is, it's basically an action game when you hit an enemy and it like freezes for like a half a second or something to kind of really sell that impact. Fighting games do it a lot. Um, so you just get this like duck, 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 duck effect as the club just slowly goes through them, hits them multiple times. Like the hit effect pops up, the sound effect goes, the fucking motorcycle wheels are revved up and spinning. Um, and then you can do all these ridiculous fucking air juggles where you hop onto the motorcycle part of it, flip them up in the air, jump up with them, hit them multiple times with the, um, just the mace version of it, knock them back down to the ground, land on the ground, turn back to the motorcycle and run them over. Um, it is just the most creative, ridiculous fucking weapon I have ever seen in a video game. Um, and it is so supremely satisfying in all of Dante's moveset. Um, because the other playable characters are fun, but Dante's the real star. He's the one that has just, he's like a broken character, um, because he's like impossible to play because he has a million different things he can do at any given time. Um, they give him just some really fascinating stuff with, he has a nunchuck weapon that's kind of a return from three, but they change up a lot because it can transform into a staff. Like at any given moment with Dante, you can do, you can cycle through, I think four different melee weapons, four different ranged weapons, the motorcycle and the nunchuck have multiple different modes. Actually, the fucking gauntlets that are your like punch and kicks have multiple different modes. It is it has to be hands down the most complicated um, and deep melee system I have ever seen in any video game to date. Um, and I am not particularly good at it, but it is so fun um, and so rewarding to play that game and dig deeper and deeper and deeper into these just 
like what feel like legendary action game mechanics that are like best in class for character action there's kind of nothing in this genre that i have played that that kind of touches what devil may cry three four and then now five do um and then the last element of note for me with this game is the soundtrack kicks fucking ass the soundtrack is so good and it gets um the sickest song award goes to devil trigger by casey and ali edwards which is the battle theme for nero um it's this full lyrical song and it just fucking shreds it is so good i listen to this song all the time the whole soundtrack is on spotify um it is phenomenally good the um shop music version of devil trigger is also very good because it's a very like it's it's basically the equivalent of um the shop music from persona 3 that's that like kind of like almost like semi doo-wop version of the when moon's reaching out to stars or whatever that song's called the open world one they do a similar thing with the shop music for this game with devil trigger um and the best part of devil trigger to me are the like is the ridiculous like emo poetry lyrics combined with the culmination at the end of the chorus which is them shouting the word devil trigger which is especially good because devil trigger is the name of a mechanic in the video game where your devil trigger is when you transform into a powered up state um where you look like a devil and why it's so good that they give the song to nero is that nero at the beginning of the story has his demon arm ripped out so he can't actually use his devil trigger for most of the game he has like a robot arm replaced when you get to the end of the game he regenerates his arm and then he regains his devil trigger and then you play through the whole game again if you do the harder difficulty one and you have that devil trigger ability all the way through the game um and it's such a cool way to like reimagine that character but i do want to give a dramatic reading jonathan of the lyrics to the song because i love them so much it's the most emo poetry bullshit so i'm going to go start for it yes i'm going to start with the second chorus because i think that's my or the second verse which is my favorite culminating in the chorus which again i have to emphasize devil trigger is literally just the name of a mechanic in the game so the usage of that lyric is just mwah, perfect embracing the darkness that's within me no hiding in the shadows anymore when the wickedness consumes me nothing can save you and there's no way out i'm a wildfire you won't tame igniting my temper can't put out my flame there's no way to contain this storm swelling inside me i'm a bomb you can't defuse might just accept you're gonna lose can't turn down i refuse to hold back anymore all these voices inside my head blinding my sight in a curtain of red frustration is getting bigger bang 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 pull my devil trigger sean if you had read that cold to me and asked me was that something i found written in a student's notebook at school or is that from a video game I would have been stumped because that totally sounds like you could have like been like all your students have like quiet study time and you're walking around looking and you see someone like writing in blood on their notebook and you're like, oh God, I need this. This kid needs to go to the counselor right now. <laughs> yeah, it is. They, they get it. The people who wrote that lyrics, they know exactly the tone and mode that Devil May Cry operates in with this kind of story stuff because um, it's a lot of emo bullshit played very straight, but in a way that you get that everyone knows that it's very fun. Um, I should also say one other thing about Devil May Cry 5 um, that is amazing. If you haven't seen them, um, you get these from like the digital deluxe edition of the game, but you can also just find them on YouTube if you want to watch some. Um, the cutscenes in the game are fantastic. They are so well directed. 
Um, but it, creating the cutscenes, they created all these pre-viz um, things that are basically like people from the development team basically in a little warehouse that are like shooting mock versions of the cutscenes so they know like how camera placement is going to work and stuff like that. So it's all these like middle-aged Japanese people just standing around in like terrible versions of the costume that probably put like $10 to put together just like with like a cardboard cutout of the side of a van for like a cutscene where the camera's outside the side of the van looking in through a window. Um, there's like action figure sequences for like spinning the action figure through the air to like model this like big action sequence that would happen. Um, it's, it's really, it's very funny to just watch on its own. And if you buy the digital X edition of the game, you can play through the game and all the cutscenes that they have the previous versions for, they just replace it with the previous version. So you'll be playing the gameplay and then get a (laughs) cutscene where it's just some like 40 year old dude in a red coat. Who's quote unquote Dante delivering what is like a, a earlier version of the script, which is also fascinating. If you know Japanese, because obviously they're saying the script in Japanese, the, the Japanese script they're using in the previs and the Japanese script they use in the Japanese dub of the game, which I think the English dub is better because it was designed for the English dub, but the Japanese dub is also very good. Um, like it's fascinating to see some of the like subtle script differences as it developed it's such a cool thing and i highly recommend people if you've played devil may cry 5 and haven't checked that out maybe you didn't get the version of the game that gives you that um to check that stuff out at least on youtube because it's the kind of thing that i wish a lot more video games do because it is it gives you so much insight into how do they create these very elaborate complex but really really well put together cutscenes. Um, and they do it the way you do it. If you're making an actual movie, you storyboard it, you pre-visit, you kind of put it together in a rough form, and then you go out and make the actual thing. Um, and giving you that behind-the-scenes look, um, it, it's the, the it's one of those things that shows you how much love and care went into this whole production. That they would give you some of that stuff because um, Devil May Cry Five is this game that feels like this love letter to fans of the franchise of bringing this franchise back that people thought was probably kind of dead because we hadn't seen a new game since 2013. The 2013 game was a weird game made by another studio that was good in its own right, but there was a lot of backlash from the fans for obvious reasons. Um, And so Devil May Cry 5 kind of feels like a miracle game that came out of nowhere. Um, It's so good. It's just top to bottom. I love that game to death. Um, And I'm very, very happy um, to call myself a Devil May Cry fan as someone who began the year 2019 never having played a Devil May Cry game and have now ended, or I guess other than I had played DMC, but had now ended the year 2019 um, having played through all the mainline Devil May Cry games and have enjoyed all of them except for two. Yes. I, I am, I've had a lot of fun listening to you talk about your journey with this series over the year and I definitely want to take that journey at some point myself too, so this is all very exciting. Um, we have three left, Sean. Yes. And I have no idea. I have, I know exactly what two of yours are. I don't know what the third is. So I'm excited to find out. I know exactly what all three of mine are. Um, oh, well, that, that yes. would make sense. <laughs> I know, I know for sure what two of yours are. And I would have to sit here and think longer than I want to about what your third would be. So we should just move on. You wouldn't guess it because Probably my not. number three, my number three is one we have never mentioned on this podcast. Okay. My number three is Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. Fascinating. Yes, you have never... I had no idea that you played this game at all. 
I played it in between the last time we recorded and now. Okay. Um, so for those who don't know what it is, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night is the most successful game in the history of Kickstarter. Um, Koji Igarashi, who was the lead producer on Castlevania basically through the 90s and 2000s, he was the director of Symphony of the Night most famously, but was the main Castlevania guy for a long time at Konami. Um, he and most of the Castlevania crew left Konami when it became clear all they would be doing was making pachinko games, probably. Um, and I think Igarashi wanted to do more than that. And years ago, like, when was the Kickstarter? It was in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and they raised more than $5.5 million, um, which at the time was the record. I don't know if it still is for a video game. Um, and it took years to make. Finally came out this year in 2019. The whole idea with Bloodstained is that it would be a sort of successor to Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Um, Igarashi obviously headed the production. It had music by Michiru Yamane, who is the composer for basically all the Castlevania games from Symphony of the Night on. So, and a lot of the other Castlevania people worked on it. Um, It's, you know, sort of a Castlevania game in everything but name and lore because it can't use the Castlevania license. Um, But it is a proper, you know, Metroidvania style Symphony of the Night game. And the thing is, I haven't played most of those Castlevania games. I have never played Symphony of the Night to completion. I've played a little bit of it. Um, And obviously I know a lot about it through the grapevine. I don't know how you would do this and not know a lot about Symphony of the Night. Um, I really played it. And this is where I have to give props to actually Xbox Game Pass, which I had for the first time this year. And when I was downloading some games from it, Sean, I was looking through their list and this was on Xbox Game Pass. And I had no idea and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I, I had heard about this game, and I just kind of downloaded it on a whim. And then when it came time, we were talking about doing this episode, Sean, of our top 10 games of 2019. I felt like I didn't have quite enough. I was looking through some of the different games I hadn't played from 2019 that you know maybe I, I already had. And I remembered I had this on Xbox, and I still had Game Pass. And I'm like, well, I should give that game a try, because I really like Metroid-style games. And, you know, at least the people who, like, were into Bloodstained sounded like they liked it. Um, And I was hooked immediately. Bloodstained Ritual of the Night is a really, really, really good version of what it is. It is not an innovative version of what it is, particularly. Like, this is not a game that, like, takes, you know, sort of the 90s game design of Symphony of the Night and, like, hugely upends it and redoes it. It is pretty, like, 90s-ass castlevania or or super metroid like down to the fact that it uses the like identical same mapping system from super metroid which i think symphony of the night just then took like the next year Mm -hmm. um which is the blue map where you go up and like it's the map where everything is white outline in blue upper right corner of the screen and save rooms are in red like it is identical to super metroid they have not updated that um it does have quite a few other game mechanics that were in some of the other later portable castlevania games that igarashi did although they had never been done in a big console game like this and i think some of the sort of backwards looking elements of it would be more of a hit as would be some of the technical issues um that i could talk about in a little bit if it weren't for the fact that the game is just so thoroughly well-designed. Like, I am someone who, as I talked about earlier with Jedi Fallen Order, when I see the sort of Metroid... I, we call it Metroidvania. It's the Metroid thing. Vania didn't invent it. I, Symphony of the Night is great, but, but it's a Metroid thing. Um, when you do the Metroid thing well, there are very, very, very few things in this world that I love more and will be more receptive to. I love that. I love getting a big, cool map 
and going through and exploring it and uncovering things and finding a place where, oh, I can't get through here. What do I need to find to do that? And then, you know, 10 hours later in the game, you get this power and you remember, oh, right, there was that wall back there. I should go take a look. And Bloodstained Ritual of the Night does it about as well as I've ever seen a game do it. I would say the, like, absolute top for me is Dark Souls and Metroid Prime 1. And then there's, like, a tier below that with maybe, like, Super Metroid and Prime 3 or something. And I would say Ritual of the Night is probably in that, like, 1A tier. Where, you know, maybe not the absolute cream of the crop. It's not Dark Souls 1. It's not Metroid Prime 1. But it's very much up there, particularly for 2D games. It is just this, you know, gig- one, it's like gigantic. I've never seen a 2D Metroidvania anywhere near this big. Um, the game takes probably at least 20 hours to play. Um, so it's a lot to unlock and go through. But it is an absolute joy to do because, one, like I said, it is just very well designed. It, I feel like a lot of games, particularly when they're sequels or follow-ups, they wind up becoming sort of more linear and flattened out. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I love a Metroid Prime 2. You know, um, Metroid Samus Returns was a little bit like that a couple years ago. And that can still be really good. But there's something about Ritual of the Night feels like really authentically 90s in that way and kind of uncompromising. And it's this big area. There are places that will lock you out. There are things that will not make sense. There are moments where you probably are going to need to look up a guide. And I'm okay with that because frankly, part of the fun of these games is once in a while getting stuck and then realizing there was some cryptic ass bullshit that you didn't catch. But then when you, you know what I mean, Sean? Like when you figure out the cryptic ass, ass bullshit, you kind of laugh and it's it's part of the fun of these games. You know, when they're so accessible that you never need to look up a guide, there's almost something a little disappointing about it. Um, like Dark Souls 2 is a good example of that. I don't think I had to guide fucking anything in Dark Souls 2. It like kind of gave you everything. Um, and I don't necessarily want that. Sometimes I want the cryptic ass bullshit. And I think Castlevania, or, uh, Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, does not overdo that. But I think it has the right sprinkling of that throughout the game. And on top of that... It is one of the most fucking gorgeous games I have ever seen. This game kind of needs to be seen, not just on video, but played to be believed. The art direction is absolutely superb. It is ornate. It is imaginative. It is basically kind of like Symphony of the Night. It's a big castle you have to explore, but it really breaks out of the kind of Castlevania traditional art design where it's just a castle and some castle grounds you're going through. Because you start on a pirate ship, You have the town around the castle, and then the castle itself is giant and sprawling and has areas in between certain parts of the castle, and there's so many different varieties of spaces you go to. Uh, And for the most part, it does the thing that I think a Metroid or a Dark Souls do, where I believe in the continuity of the world. Like, it makes sense that this area is next to this area is next to this area. Near the end of the game, it fudges it a little bit, where I start to think like, I'm not sure how this would exist next to this thing, but the game has like kind of, I'm so bought into it at that point. I think it's okay for them to cheese it a little bit. And the the places they make are still so fucking cool. Like one of them is this big area that kind of reminds me of Sekiro where um, it's all like old style Japan where you're like going through temples and you're seeing sort of Shinto Buddhist shrine, um, the, the big like red gates and there's big Buddhist statues around and it doesn't quite make sense with the rest of the design of the game, but it is so cool. You really don't care. Um, And it is absolutely graphically fucking gorgeous. Like, it's a 2D, you know, 2.5D game. So it's a side-scroller. But the backgrounds just 
basically look like they extend into infinity like there's so many layers to it and so much dimensionality i have so much fun just looking at the backgrounds like one way i would kind of maybe on a a level hit this game is that they there's no run button it's very 90s and that your character has one movement speed and you'll be doing a lot of like doing the back jump or doing the slide to go a little bit faster um that also makes me think of like in ocarina of time when you're like always constantly rolling to get a little more speed it's that sort of like very 90s thing and that would normally annoy me, except the time you're going slowly is time to just look at the backgrounds and see all the cool shit you're looking at, and it's awesome. The only other game like this that has done that this well, or near this well, is Metroid Samus Returns, which was on the 3DS, um, and that one also had the added benefit of the 3D really pulled you in, but even without a literal 3D effect, this game just looks gorgeous. Um, it runs pretty well. Unless you're playing on Switch, I did not play this game on Switch, but I've seen like the Digital Foundry analysis. I would probably urge you to avoid the Switch version. I think it was too much. They, they maybe bit off more than they could chew with that one. But on the other platforms, it's totally fine. I played it on Xbox One S, and other than there are some frame rate hiccups near the end, and it's where you would expect it. It's when there's a ton of crazy shit going on on screen, so it's not like it's out of the blue. Um, my understanding is that the PS4 Pro version is the most solid if you're wondering which system to get it on and you have a choice. Um, but it's also just in Game Pass, so if you have an Xbox, kind of a no-brainer to play it there. Um, you know, it's it's such a gorgeous game. The music is fantastic. It's not the the best like Castlevania adjacent score I've heard, but it is. It's it's that composer, the person who did Symphony of the Night. You can tell um, parts of it were clearly recorded orchestrally, and it's very lush and creative. So it's a great sound design. And the thing that surprised me most about it is the combat is fantastic. It is. For a game like this, like a 2D sort of Metroid style thing, the only game I've played that has combat nearly this fun is is Samus Returns on the 3DS and this one might even have that one one upped because Miriam your main character has the whole thing is that she is a shard binder which she is this person who was experimented on as a child to like bring in all these magical shards into her being and so she's kind of fucked up from that but she also gets you get these shards as you play the game from different monsters and they incorporate new powers and you have four shard slots plus your normal weapons and equipment and stuff. And in in one sense, the game maybe has too much of that stuff because there are literally dozens of these shards you find. And in one playthrough, you're never going to use every single one of them. But it also gives you a ton of variety to find different play styles and different powers you like. And the powers are pretty flashy and cool. And often you can find really useful builds. And, you know, one criticism on a game design level I would have is I think other than like the final boss who is a little too much of a difficulty spike, the game is pretty easy on normal mode and the game, that's the only difficulty you have when you start. A second playthrough, you can notch it up to hard or expert, but you have to play through it normal once. And I did kind of wish at various points that the game was a little harder because there are so many combat options, it doesn't really push you to use all of them. But you can still do a new game plus and have all of that stuff. Um... And all of the powers, there are so many cool ones, there's so many inventive ones. If you have trouble with a boss fight, it's the kind of thing where you go back outside, you rejigger a bunch of your equipment and a bunch of your shards, and you might find a way right off the bat that, like, okay, this clicks, and now I can go back in and play. But just the moment-to-moment of exploring the castle, filling in your map, fighting all the monsters, using your shard powers, finding shortcuts... It is absolute bliss if you like this kind of game. It is so well done. There are drawbacks. Like I said, sometimes it's a little technically rough. It clearly had limited production values on like cutscenes and dialogue and stuff like that. And like the ending is 
not nearly as flashy or rewarding as you might want in terms of like the story resolution, but the story is not really the attraction of this game. The attraction is filling in that big old fucking map. And when you fill in that big old fucking map, it is very satisfying. And this one was a real surprise for me and very much like kind of fulfilled what Phil Spencer has said many times about Xbox Game Pass and that he wants it to be like this, you know, repository of stuff where you might not know what to play and you go look and you find a new favorite. And that was kind of what it was like for me. So it's actually got me thinking that that Game Pass has something really good going on there with just in that sense of finding something I probably would not have tried otherwise. And I'm really happy I did. I, I cannot recommend this game highly enough if you like a good, you know, Metroidvania 2D kind of experience. It's it's the goods, as they say. Very cool. Yeah, like Bloodstained was on my radar and I've thought about playing it. Sometimes it was it was on my list of like, hmm, maybe I should check this out when I had those couple of weeks to like catch up on stuff and then it's like well but dragon ball z kakarot and then yakuza and then uh video it's like for most people this is an incredibly slow period of the year for video games for me i i all of a sudden i have what yakuza three four five six i got four video games to play obviously i'm not going to play them all in a row but yeah bloodstained is one i thought about because i'm sure i would like it a lot because i really like symphony a lot yeah it's it's cool and it's gorgeous and uh I hope to see that team, you know, maybe do some more stuff. I know at some point this year we're going to get the DLC, free DLC, where they're adding the second playable character, who I didn't know was DLC. I got to the end of the game and I assumed it was just going to unlock, because there's very obviously, there's a character named Zangetsu, who's a swordsman, that is like super obviously the second playable character. But I guess in the rush to finish this game, they saved that for DLC, which is fine. It'll yeah. give me an excuse to come back and play it again. Um, I'm glad they're, they're doing it. Um, but yeah, Bloodstained, two thumbs up. That was my number three. Sean, let's see what your number three is. All right. My number three game. Oh, I love this game so much. It's Judgment, also known as Judge Eyes. Shinigami no Yui Gun uh, is its release title in Japan, and then for whatever reason they sanded it down to just Judgment, um, even though Judge Eyes is such a good fucking name, especially for a game where you play as a character that's investigating a serial killer that gouges out people's eyeballs. Judge Eyes is very good. Um, so Judgment is, you know, I talked about this game a lot when I played it um, earlier this year. It is the, the well, uh, Yakuza 7 has just come out. Before Yakuza 7, it was the most recent game by the Ryuga Gotoku Studio, also known as the Yakuza Studio over here. Um, it is, you know, basically the same kind of game as a Yakuza game, um, but with a whole separate cast of characters. It stars Yagami, um, who is a disgraced lawyer turned into a private detective, played by um, beloved Japanese actor Kimura Takuya. Um, and he goes on a big investigation um, it, starting with a Yakuza, um, random Yakuza guy that is murdered in the streets and his eyes are gouged out. He's, he's the third person to have been murdered in that way. 
Um, Yagami gets kind of pulled into the investigation because it seems to have connections to a case that he had when he was a lawyer where he got a uh, um, his client um, innocent a verdict of innocent um, in a murder trial, which is extremely rare, rare in Japan. Um, most cases, you are found guilty or you plead to guilty. Um, so it's like 99% or something of all uh, cases, in Japan, like criminal trials in Japan, um, the uh, defendant is found guilty. So you get this person off. And then shortly after that, seemingly his client murdered his girlfriend um, in his apartment. And so then immediately that guy went to jail um, and Yagami was disgraced and he was disgraced with himself and by everybody else. So he became a private detective. So all those kinds of events kind of swirl together and then seem to be caught up in a larger conspiracy in the best in like as all great film noir fiction becomes. It's really about like government bureaucracy at some point and like government corruption. And so you start kind of understanding um, like the the real forces at play that have caused these crimes to be committed, the traumas inflicted on these communities are really committed by um, the people of power in society who are manipulating things behind the scenes and seemingly do not have any repercussions for doing so. Um, so it is a really great story, especially once you get to the ending section of the game. The whole ending, like I'd say about 10 hours in particular, is just dynamite stuff because one really smart choice they make is that only about two-thirds of the game is you trying to figure out who's responsible for this stuff. Because since it's a conspiracy, there's, like, layers of different people who are, like, the culprits of what's going on. Because here's, like, the guy who's doing the murders, but the guy doing the murders is not necessarily the guy who, who's creating the reasons why the murders are being committed and stuff like that. So about two-thirds of the game are committed to you unraveling this web of conspiracy. But, like, the last third or so is about okay, you figured it out. You you know, you might not have evidence you could present to a court, but you and your like team of friends that are helping you investigate have figured out what's going on. What the fuck do you do about it? Because what's going on involves people that like reaches up to some of the highest levels in the Japanese government. So how do you hold these people accountable for what has happened? How do you bring justice to the victims? Um, how do you protect people who are currently um, at, at harm? Um, because these events are ongoing and the reasons why these murders are being committed has not been solved um, and you aren't really in a position to solve that. And so that part of the story is where everything kind of clicks into place and where Yagami is really kind of tested and his resolve is tested um, and, and his ingenuity and all those kinds of things are tested to kind of bring these people to justice. And the final sequence where you face off with the person who is the mole, the mole being the sort of name given to the serial killer who's gouging out people's eyes, um, that whole sequence um, and how it brings all the characters together in this big action climax um, is so spectacular. Um, the emotional content there is just really powerful. Um, Kimura Takuya does an incredible job of Yagami of playing the character very kind of understated for most of the time um, in a very kind of funny, like he's a funny character a lot of the time because he's kind of the straight man um, sort of figure in the story and he's surrounded by like people like Kaito-san who are kind of goofballs. Um, but then when things get serious and personal for him, uh, Kimura Takuya finds a lot of like emotional depth to portray for the character. And that is um, really on display in the whole ending sequence. And so it's a phenomenal story, um, really fun gameplay. The combat's a lot of fun. It's the kind of things you'd expect from the Yakuza studio. Um, they do a really good job of implementing small um, alternative gameplay elements that show you like the detective element of the game as well. 
But at its core, it is the same kind of game as Yakuza games. So if for whatever reason you play those games and do not like those, I don't think Judgment will change your mind. Um, but if you're someone like me that loves the Yakuza games enough to have committed yourself to play all of them, um, this game is um, an absolute treat. So in terms of some of the awards I give it, I give it one best opening credit sequence. Um, so after the kind of prologue section of the game, you get treated to this 90-second opening credits thing that's basically like an opening credit sequence for like a J-drama kind of show or like an anime. Um, and it plays this great song, Arpeggio, by the, by the band Alexandros. Um, and it's just great, like, um, Yagami sitting in this, like, blank white room um, and, like, dissolving into smoke. And it, like, goes through all the different cast of characters and their, like, credits come up on screen. It's very slick, very smooth. Um, but it also gets the best end credit sequence because honestly, the end credits of the game is what hit me the absolute hardest, not in a way that was like, oh, this is so like sad or dramatic or whatever, but in a, this, I love this game and it's cast of characters so much. Um, cause this also gets my Kimutaku presents best characters to the cast of judgment. Um, because the end credits of the game is this great thing where it's basically this still shot um, in Yagami's apartment, that's kind of like we're also his office where he like interviews clients um, that want to hire him as a private detective. Everything's been resolved, like the city is back to normal, so that means business back to normal. The average day for Yagami and his partner Kaito um, is not we're solving elaborate government conspiracies and, and like uncovering a serial killer. Their average business is being hired by like some middle aged Japanese lady to go find her cat that is missing. Um, so there's no dialogue in what is probably like a seven minute sequence while the credits are playing and you just have this, the cameras just sitting in the middle of his office staring out um, at it. And you just see um, this great physical comedy of Yagami and Kaito and eventually a lot of the other cast get pulled into this thing where they're like running in and out of the room. Eventually they come in and like they, they have a client and then they go and they leave and they come back with a cat and the cat like escapes out the window and they have to try to get the cat back in. Um, and it's this like unraveling sequence of physical comedy played without dialogue at all. And watching that sequence, it hit me really hard how much I just adore every single character in this game. And every time a new character would come into the scene, like Mafuyu, um, Yagami's sort of love interest character, it just like, it, they, I just had the kind of like with the Dragon Quest Builders 2 like the game has such a warm feeling to me even though some of the subject matter in the game is extremely dark once it gets into like the darkest parts of the story the characters are so human um, which is something that the Yakuza studio is so good at like what I'm doing right now in Yakuza 3 is playing as Kiryu running an orphanage um, and helping out the orphans that he's taking care of because the studio understands that like the heart of these stories is the human characters i mean that these are people who are like your your main cast of characters are these like really kind caring people that are going out of their ways to try to help the world and make the world a better place um which is fundamentally the kinds of characters that the studio is interested in for their protagonists and it's just like very wholesome feeling um it's the kind of thing you don't get in a lot of games and the best part is that that feeling is again kind of like dragon quest builders 2 it's created through so much of the gameplay because yes you have combat in these games but honestly, most of your time in this game is just running around talking to people and having conversations and solving people's problems. And a lot of, like, sometimes it boils down to you, like, kicking some dude's face in. That's a lot of fun. And sometimes it's just about you saying the right thing to the right person at the right time, being someone who cares, who's willing to help um, a stranger who's in need. And that's the kind of story that this is, and that's the kind of cast of character that it is. Um, and, and it is just so... 
incredibly well done and the kind of thing that feels very rare in the world of video games especially for a game like this it's this big game that's like 60 hours long or whatever if you want to do everything um which also leads me to my final award i give to judgment which is the honey i'm home award which goes to kamarocho kamarocho being the best setting in any video game because it is the main district in tokyo a fictionalized district in tokyo where all these games take place sometimes you go to other places in yakuza 3 i'm in okinawa right now but i know i'm eventually going to come back to kamarocho because that's the heart of this whole franchise and in many ways of the studio because this isn't technically a yakuza game kiryu does not show up in this game anywhere um but it is this one like living district of the city that they come back to each and every time and for most other video games i think that would be a tedious thing like if the next if grand theft auto 6 was set in los santos again i would call bullshit and be like why you know when grant when crackdown 2 this is a real example when crackdown 2 was set in the same map as crackdown 1 it completely killed that game for me because so much of that game was about finding like hidden areas in the map and jumping over big buildings and stuff in these games this district feels like a real place and i know everything in it like the back of my hand i do not need to refer to a mini map to go find the fucking convenience store or go to the pawn shop to like sell some items or you know go to like hang out at karaoke and sing karaoke um or anything like that like i know exactly what's going on i know where everything is and then the subtle shifts that do happen in the city i haven't played yakuza 6 but i know that judgment takes place after yakuza 6 and and sections of the city have changed because time has passed things happened buildings got burned um something happened some section of the city got burned in yakuza 6 i don't know how that happened i'm excited to find out what it is but like you see the effect of all these events on the city as you go through and it's one of the most remarkable achievements in video games um to me is is this like stable place this one setting that this this studio has been revisiting periodically since 2005 with yakuza 1 on the ps2 we're now on the ps4 the dragon engine like they've gone through two whole new engines of games through multiple different game consoles kamurocho is the same fundamental place it's the same basic map and every time i play one of these games it feels so rewarding to revisit that place and to feel like it is this home that i'm coming back to um and and judgment is not a game that is hampered by them reusing assets from yakuza 6 and yakuza kiwami 2 and building the setting it is a game that is so handily bolstered by feeling like it exists in this lived-in place and we're just seeing another character's perspective another character's story in this much larger tableau of the city that there are you know hundreds of thousands of people moving through this place um and you're just one of them and so this whole franchise and in the this whole studio and the games that they produce i think are truly singular and judgment um is to me the second best of the ones i've played so far only behind yakuza zero awesome and i am very excited for yakuza 7 later this year yes because it's basically a reboot and i will be able to play that one and it has a turn-based rpg system yeah i'm so excited for it jonathan do you know what the narrative justification for the turn-based combat is no i haven't heard this the the new protagonist ichiban kasuga is a massive dragon quest fan so the reason why he (laughs) perceives the world as turn-based combat is because he grew up as a dragon quest fan and that is the narrative justification for the change in combat for yakuza 7 because that studio is a fucking genius 
I will 100% be playing that game the moment it comes out. And luckily, like, we'll be able to talk about that because I will not have had to play presumably zero through six because it's a new protagonist and everything. Um, I'm very excited. I love also that the English title, they've called it Yakuza Like a Dragon to to bring in the Japanese title, which all of these games are technically called Like a Dragon. So it's cool. Anyway, and I want to play Judgment at some point, too. So anyway. Number two. Number two is interesting this year, Sean, because our number ones we've mentioned are not in doubt. You may yeah. have guessed the game by now, maybe not. So really for me, Sean, it felt like number two was kind of my new number one this year in that games, that's the one games we're jockeying for that position, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I thought about it for a while. And then the other day, I just kind of popped in several games that were in contention for number two into the system that they play on. And I thought about them and when this one came up I just felt this warmth this warm glow in my heart and I was like it's you it's always been you my number two game of the year is Dragon Quest Builders 2 on here as high as it is both for perfectly deserving as a game but also kind of in recognition of dragon quest builders one which i did not play the year it came out so i didn't get to put it on a top 10 and if i had it would have been very high because dragon quest builders one is also great and and you know in recommending this series to people i would say if you only have time for one game play two but if you can make the time i would play one and then two because one is a really special game in its own right with a special story and gameplay mechanics and i think two kind of for me part of why i enjoy it so much is for how it builds on that first game you know you don't have to have played one by any means but i i think there's something to it would be tough to go back and play one after playing two and i think one is worth enjoying on its own merits but Dragon Quest Builders 2 is something special. I think it is the platonic ideal of what we talk about when we play a game and say, man, I can't wait for that sequel. I feel like the game we're waiting for is a Dragon Quest Builders 2, where you take this just pool of raw potential and you snap everything into focus. Dragon Quest Builders 2 has so many enhancements, small and large, and things that, like, it fixes problems that this entire building genre has had. Like, oh, it kind of sucks to be switching between all these tools, why don't we just map your sword to one button? And why don't we just map your tools to one button? And then everything else, all your building materials, those are not like in a pool with all your tools. And that's a very smart choice. What if we have all the people in your town? Oh, what if they could actually go build stuff for you? And then we can make that into part of the story, but also like it's a practical thing that kind of makes the game more accessible to play and more fun. Oh, that's a great idea. Um, you know, what if we added like swimming and underwater stuff, but made it good? Oh, that'd be really cool. And they do all of that on top of telling a fantastic JRPG story because these are building Minecraft games, but they are also very much JRPGs in their own right. And Dragon Quest Builders 2 tells a truly special story about the children of Hargon and this young builder who befriends a guy named Malroth, who, because of his name, you can probably guess, has some kind of secret. But Malroth doesn't want to have a secret. He just wants to be your best friend. 
and he wants to go around with you building stuff. Well, he'll smash stuff and you'll build stuff. And he just wants to be a good guy. And that mystery will sustain the game and down the home stretch absolutely 100% deliver on the emotions you want it to deliver on. Um, and you will meet so many characters over the course of the game. I think the best sustained act of Dragon Quest Builders 2 is the first act on the first island you go to where you do all the farming. And that's true of Dragon Quest Builders 1 as well, and I think part of it is just the novelty of seeing the cycle go for the first time, even if the later chapters are very good, and they are very good in Builders 1 and 2. They can never quite capture that novelty again. Um, but that first chapter is just something truly magical, and you have characters like the um, the magician who comes to your town and starts off as a bad guy but becomes your friend and ultimately sacrifices himself so you can keep building things, and that just touched my fucking heart. And then you have the second town where you have all the miners who just want to build a bar for themselves and you help them build the best goddamn bar you can. And you have the third island where you are sort of uh, a twist on a lot of what you do in Dragon Quest Builders 1. You are helping them defend and build up this castle. Uh, I won't spoil what the fourth island is, but it's quite cool as well. You have a middle part where you get sent to a prison island and that whole stretch is one of my favorite things in either Dragon Quest Builders games because it's so creative at using the building basics of this series I guess we can call it a series now there's two games to create something like utterly different than anything else in the series um it is this truly remarkable blend of Minecraft style open world building and narrative driven storytelling it's one of the best JRPG stories I've seen outside of the big hitters like Persona and and Dragon Quest and and some of the better Final Fantasies um, and that's amazing. Like, I think I enjoyed this game in a slightly different way than you did, Sean, because I did not put 90 hours in just randomly building stuff. Like, just the act of, like, going off on your own and building a ton of stuff. I find that fun, but I find kind of the, the narrative through line and meeting characters and getting all your characters together, that was really the draw for me, and that's why I played it the way I did. And part of the magic of the game is it accommodates both those play styles, and that's what's great, is that, like, if you want to kind of fall off the deep end of building everything you can... Oh, this game is great for that. Mm -hmm. I think it's better than Minecraft for that because you can make such cool-looking Akira Toriyama shit and all that. But if you also just want a great story where the mechanics really support the themes of that story, look no further than Dragon Quest Builders 2. It's as good as at that as any game I've ever played. Um, you know, not this is not true in the sense of like Minecraft is literally dead. But I have never seen a game so thoroughly take another game's genre, stomp on its neck and shoot it in the head as Dragon Quest Builders does to Minecraft. Because I find Minecraft like impossible to play after playing Dragon Quest Builders because I've seen a truly just vastly superior, more imaginative, more heartfelt version of it. And it's really hard to see Minecraft in anything but an outdated light now. And that's really incredible considering that's not what Dragon Quest is. This is a weird franchise extension. But man, what a wonderful thing it is. What a wonderful series they have built. Um, I love the aspect that Dragon Quest Builders 1 is a spinoff of Dragon Quest 1 and Dragon Quest Builders 2 is a spinoff of Dragon Quest 2. And it makes me very excited for Dragon Quest Builders 3 if and when that gets made because presumably that would be a spinoff of Dragon Quest 3 which is one of the best and richest games in that series. Um, I really hope there's more of these. I don't know how well the second game sold. My sense was that it was maybe down a little from the first one. But it's a special series worth continuing and if they make more I will be there day one 
I, I feel like from the last couple of years, Dragon Quest Builders is one of those games I would recommend to literally anyone. You yeah. know, there are a lot of game recommendations that are conditional. I would not say everybody should go play Dark Souls because you have to kind of know what you're getting into. Everyone should play Dragon Quest if for no other reason than discovering the sheer magic of building a toilet for your citizens, watching them all poop, collecting their poop, and then going and fertilizing all your crops to make more food so that they can eat and poop again. And then you build a better toilet so that you get more yes. poop so that you, you can fertilize even better. Yep. Absolutely. Dragon Quest Builders 2, second best game of the year. Amen, brother. It's very fucking good. All right. So that leads me to my number two. Um, and honestly, you know, my number one I was a game I, you know, was pretty well cemented. Um, but my number two gave it a pretty damn good run for its money. My number two game of the year is Outer Wilds. Not the Outer Worlds, just to no. be clear. No, so yeah, so that's, so first award, just to like get this out of the way, my first award is, this game was in development since 2012, for fuck's sake, I mean seriously, what are the chances award for Outer Wilds and Outer Worlds releasing two months apart? Like, what the fuck? How did that, how does it even work? Because it's like, it's it's not even the like Armageddon Deep Impact thing, um, where it's like, oh, here's like two movies that released around the same time that have the same subject matter. It's hard to think of two video games that are more different than fucking Outer Wilds and Outer Worlds. They're very different video games. Um, they just happen to have almost identical names. Their names are off by a handful of letters, and that's it. And it's fucking obnoxious because Outer Wilds is easily one of the best games of the year. I'm not going to tell you that Outer Worlds is one of the worst games of the year because, you know, I tend not to go out to try to play actual, like, bad, bad video games. Outer Worlds is one of the more unremarkable games, for sure. Um... So of the games that have the outer woods of um, 2019, <laughs> Outer Wilds is definitely the superior of the two. Um, so Outer Worlds, you should pull, you know, that like an Edge of Tomorrow thing or whatever and change your name. Um, not because you sold poorly, I think you sold fine, but because you just don't deserve to be in the same conversation as Outer Wilds. Um, so, man, Outer Wilds, how the fuck do you even talk about this game? Um, so... I only really talked about it very briefly, I think, on the podcast, partially because you hadn't played it. Um, it was new enough that I didn't want to spoil anything because this is a game that is so much about discovery that I think it is a... I'm not a big spoilers guy. I think this is a game that can be spoiled. I was very happy that I went in knowing very little. Um, so if you're someone that wants to know as little about this game as possible, you've gotten to this point and not played it at all, um, and know basically nothing about it. All you need to know is that it is a game that is about exploring in space. Um, and, you know, I, it, it is a game that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I know that there are some people that don't like it. Like, there, it is definitely a... I, don't, I wouldn't say I love it or hate it, but it's definitely a game that either speaks to you a lot or doesn't necessarily. Um, so I'm not going to guarantee that everybody is going to love this game the way that, like, I think most people would love Dragon Quest Builders 2. Um, but if you do like this game... You're going to really, really like this game because this game is really fucking good. 
So with that being said, um, you should go play the game if you're interested in it at all. Past this point, I'm just going to talk frankly about Outer Wilds um, just because I haven't had an opportunity to actually do that on this podcast yet. Um, first thing I want to ask Jonathan is just for you, because you mentioned earlier you, you played a little bit of it. I'm curious what your impressions are and stuff like that before I talk about it. Well, it's weird because I have heard all the hype. I played it because there was all the hype. You know, people saying this is one of the best games ever made. And I don't doubt that. I didn't play enough of it to really see. I played probably two or three hours and I just didn't get it. Um, I thought it felt kind of janky and and unwieldy. And I, you know, was trying to get the ship around and go... Like, I liked the, the first area and it's charming. But then I went out and I, I could not, for the life of me, figure out some of the controls. Um, I couldn't quite tell what you were supposed to do. I died a couple times. There's, you know, I know there's a cycle kind of going on. And I just, I, I played it in one sitting, like I said, for two or three hours, and I never got anywhere, and I would keep dying because I kind of couldn't figure out how to play it, and I kind of got frustrated, and then it was a busy time of the year, and I didn't go back to it. So it's not like I, I hate this game and have a stance against it, it's just, it's something I tried, I didn't really understand what was going on, and I have not been back to it um, but, you know, given how much people love it, I would like to give it a try at some point. Yeah, and, and your experience is one I've definitely heard from other people that it feels like it is a game that, like, if it doesn't click for you very quickly, I think it's kind of hard for it to click with you. Um, because the controls are definitely unwieldy. Like, I'm not going to tell you that it's, like, a very precise game, because it is definitely not. Um, and I get why that is a turnoff to a lot of people. And it is also... Um, it can be extremely aimless because the game is completely open. Because um, so, basically what the structure of the game is, um, is it, it reminds me a lot of what um, Breath of the Wild does in terms of it is a game that has a completely flat structure. Um, there is no barrier um, for you to be able to do anything. Um, if you knew what to do, you could beat this game in 20 minutes. Um, if you like, I mean, I probably forgotten enough of the steps in detail that I couldn't do it right now, but if I took a second to refresh my memory, I could turn that game on right now and beat the game in 20 minutes or probably more about 30 minutes technically with like a little bit of extra stuff, um, past the first time loop. Um, but so that leads me to what my first award of the game is, which is GI Joe presents the now we know and knowing is half the battle award for most ingenious in-game progression. Because the best part about the game is that there's nothing in the game that impedes you other than your knowledge of how to navigate the space in what is going on in the world. Um, there's, you're not picking up grappling hooks. You're not unlocking abilities. There's no skill tree. There's nothing like that. All it is is you um, are a person who is on Timber Hearth, I think is what it's called, you're the home planet. You're like these little, what we call little alien dudes who invent um, sort of like very basic space travel in these like kitschy, weird like space uh, ships that are made out of like wood and kind of nailed together. Um, it's got a great kind of like built up from the ground aesthetic um, that's very kind of rustic that I like a lot. But it's like very rustic, weird space travel stuff. Um, and you're, you have discovered um, an ancient alien race. This is, has by far the best ancient alien story I've ever seen in any game, um, which, you know, video games have done it a lot. Nothing has done it better than Outer Wilds. 
Um, so the Nomai were a race of aliens that were in your solar system at one point, died off under mysterious circumstances, but left ruins behind. And very importantly, in those ruins, they left behind examples of writing. Um, and the Nomai writing is cool because it's like circular text, basically, that then other people would branch off of that text. So what that means is that once you get the translator at the very, very beginning of the game, when you encounter a piece of Know My Text on the wall, you can translate it, and then that usually unlocks this sort of like flowing conversation of these multiple characters participating, um, writing their shit down on these like tablets on the wall. And so you're slowly unraveling what happened to the Nomai um, as you're sort of discovering their characters, and it all has to do with this kind of big space project um, they were this very kind of like religious science oriented race that had this concept of the eye of the universe. The, how they ended up in your solar system is they detected a signal that they thought was from the eye of the universe. They got stranded in your solar system. And then now they're trying to sort of build together this like probe device that will discover the eye of the universe by sending out probes. But they would have to send out probes in random directions just deep into the universe to try to find it at random because they don't know where the signal is actually coming from. So they invent basically a time travel device that means that once the probe goes out, it sends its data back in time. That you very early on in the game, in like the first loop, basically, you discover and have to like run into this Nomai statue that hooks your consciousness into the time travel device. That means that your consciousness gets sent back in time every time you die. You happen to be dying every 25 minutes or so because the universe is also ending. So after 25 minutes, your star explodes, everybody dies, you die, but your consciousness is sent back in time with the knowledge of what you've discovered um, and with the sort of implied story. It's not like the game is not sort of like giving you a lot of like explicit directions, but the, the implied motive you have is to find out what the Nomai were doing, hopefully to end the destruction of the universe and stop the star from exploding, which that's all like you spend a lot of time piecing together that information. Um, and so you can basically, after the first cycle where you get the translate tablet, you get the hooked up, your consciousness is hooked up to this device, um, it, like accidentally, you're then just left completely to your own devices to explore, um, the solar system that's made up of a handful of different planets and moons. Um, and you're kind of guided a little bit by, there have been several other explorers from your race that are on most of the other planets and you have to end. So one thing you can do is go find them and they will give you more explicit directions on like, oh, there's this giant rune to like the east of the, on this planet. Maybe you can go investigate there. Um, there's also quantum rocks that are rocks that when you look at them, they are there. But if you turn around and you're not observing them, they will move somewhere else. Um, so there's like weird moving space um, that is controlled by your ability to observe them in this like very kind of basic quantum mechanics kind of thing. There's also a moon called the quantum moon that is the same thing that is only there when you're looking at it. And as soon as you look away, it disappears. And it's also covered in fog. So you can't land on it without figuring out some specific tricks. Um, that again is not like you get an item that allows you to land on the quantum moon. You understand you come to understand the physics of how the quantum moon operates and can manipulate that to such a way that allows you to land there and discover shit that's on there. So the thing that's so fun about this game is that it is the, by far, in my opinion, the most true realization of exploration as a primary game mechanic. Um, and it is the kind of thing that, like, 
I think a lot of people had the kind of experience I had with Outer Wilds with Breath of the Wild, and Breath of the Wild never quite did it for me. And some of those elements are there, but it just didn't kind of quite grab my imagination. Outer Wilds grabbed my imagination very quickly, partially because one of the first things I did was explore Timberhearth, your main planet, and you discover a couple things. One, you discover a quantum shard there, and so you just find this big, weird, floating obelisk thing that every time you turn around, it has moved, but, like, the rest of the room has moved, too. So it's like you're standing in a forest, and you're looking at a rock, and you turn around, and all of a sudden there's a tree behind you that was not there because everything in this room is moving as you're perspective on the room shifts and it's freaky as shit this is a game that like is like has low-key horror elements with this kind of like cosmic horror quality with the way that the quantum stuff works that's really good and then i found a dark bramble seed because there's a planet called the dark bramble that is taken over by this like weird like big like gnarled thorny branches basically and, and they're like giant angler fish there that are scary that will eat your ship um and if you shoot your you have a probe you can launch if you launch your probe into the dark bramble seed it pops out the other end at dark bramble that's like you know out in space and you can take pictures and see what's there and i was like this is fucking crazy what the fuck is this giant evil fish monster over there um so very quickly my imagination was hooked by all these weird things that are in the game and then wanting to understand how it worked and how you uncover it um, and, and that's kind of the journey of the game is you just going wherever you want. So some people might go to the Ash Twins that are two plant, like binary planets orbiting each other that there's sand that flows from the gravitational pull of one to the other like an hourglass, um, which is a really beautiful idea. There's one planet that has a black hole at its heart that is collapsing. There's one planet that is a um, gas, not, it's not a gas giant, but it's a, it's a planet with like immense gravity that has an eternal storm happening at it um, that has like jellyfish in its heart under the ocean. Um, the, there's dark bramble and there's then also a um, the thing called the interloper that is a comet that um, comes in that is slowly melting as it gets closer to the sun. Um, and so all these different astral bodies have different mysteries for you to solve that then point you to what's going on at the other planets through a rumor map in the game that kind of tracks what you've seen and then it will kind of give you hints of, okay, this is the Ash Twin project. This is all the stuff you learned when you were there. Oh, but maybe there's the, here's this thing that you don't quite understand about. Maybe you should investigate this and you will maybe find that answer on Dark Bramble or somewhere else. And you're sort of slowly piecing together all these bits of information that eventually, once it all comes together, you understand here's a series of events I need to trigger that will, that will basically give me access to the eye of the universe. Um, and then that is how you get to the end of the game. This leads me to one of my other awards, which is the Yoshiyuki Tomino Presents Best 2001 A Space Odyssey Homage, which goes to the ending of Outer Wilds, because the ending of this game is fucking nuts, and it's great. Um, it is a complete ridiculous head trip. Um, not in the way that like it's literally aping 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's not like this game ends with a solar baby. Um, but it has the similar ethos that 2001 has in terms of like very mind-bendy, weird logic um, that sort of feels like you are getting access to something that is beyond human comprehension as you approach the eye of the universe, um, as the universe itself is dying and you're having this sort of like pseudo-religious, like hallucinatory experience as a character um, as you get there. And it's really remarkably well done. Um, it's, it's for a game that is like, for 99% of it, completely open. Um, it's so cool how effective this one really directed experience is at the end that is very focused. Like here's your like, seven minute head trip that leads you to the end of the game that 
like delivers in this very kind of like broad way that you have to do a lot of interpretation with about like feelings around the end of life, the end of the universe, mortality, like the inevitability of death, like those things that you're kind of working through as you go in this like death loop where no matter what you do, every 25 minutes, the sun explodes and you die. Um, and, you know, you're not necessarily, you're not Master Chief. You're not going to be able to save the universe from the heat death of the universe as the stars twinkle out in the night sky. Um, and so you kind of have to come to terms with what the what these events mean for you um, as a person. And it, it's the ending is remarkably effective. Um, a couple of other awards I give it. The Science is Fun Award. Um, this just goes to the general idea of the game, which is it is a game that is like interested in science and like the scientific method. The way you progress in the game is by experimentation and accumulation of knowledge um, through your experiments. And so it feels very authentic in that way. The movement of the game is extremely clunky, but I like that it's extremely clunky because it is a dumbed down, but like still pretty solid representation of like orbital physics. And so it is very much a game that when you are in like deep space, if you accelerate in one direction, you will just continue to head at that direction at the same velocity forever. And you will just go deep out into space until the fucking loop happens again. Um, this is a game that like, if you get a little bit too close to the sun, you are fucked because the sun has a strong gravitational pull and you will fucking die. Um, it is, you know, and you have a jetpack on. And so each of the planets and moons you go to have different gravitational values, right? Because they're different masses of bodies. So if you're on Giants Deep, the really heavy gravity planet, like your jetpack, you can barely get off the ground. If you're on the moon orbiting Timber Hearth, you can jump and like, you can almost jump out of orbit. If you use your um, jetpack, you can literally jump from the surface of the moon and break yourself out of um, gravitational pull of the moon. And that's very fun to do. Um, there's lots of fun, wacky mishaps you can have where if your spaceship gets damaged, like you or your fucking, um, cockpit will eject out and you're just floating dead in space. You just have to wait for like five minutes or whatever for the sun to explode. Cause it's like, well, shit, like I'm out of fuel. The only, the only fuel I can use now is my oxygen. If I want to have a die faster that way, I can just spend all my oxygen just jetting out in the deep of space by really fucked up. When I crashed into that meteor, I should have been paying more attention to where my ship was going. And then, you know, now I'm just floating dead in space. Like it's fucking gravity. Um, and it's just, that like, definitely happened to me when I was playing yeah. this. And I that's wanted, like, that was, yeah. And that's yeah. something that I think like early on maybe can be frustrating if you don't know what else you're doing or you don't have like a lot of motivation to go look for things because you haven't picked up enough threads yet. But once you're like deep into the heart of that experience, there's something so real about the way the game works physically. Like everything in the game has a very physical quality to it because it is paying attention to fundamental physics in ways that like the vast majority of games that have this kind of setting just don't give a shit about. You know, Destiny doesn't give you different jumps based on the gravitational, you know, mass of the planet that you're on, which I don't necessarily want it to because that would, the game I don't think would be as fun. It would be weird if they tried to do that. But there are lots of, like, games that have space shooting seg segments to them that's like, you know, like Halo Reach or something that this is just a plane. Yeah, it's technically in space, but there's nothing about the physics of what's happening here that, like, delivers me this this sensation that I'm fighting something in zero-G. If I'm shooting a gun in space, I want that gun to shoot me backwards, which is something, one of the reasons, like, Infinite Warfare, is it has a very light version of that. And Outer Wilds is not, like, a space simulator game, but it is much closer to that than most video games you'll play that have this kind of setting. Um, and someone that 
does really love physics and astrophysics in like that kind of element in like astro bodies and the different way they can work um like that is such a fun element of the game is to get to like experience what it's like to just have this like very kitschy spacecraft and like you just being completely at the whims of gravity um but the game does give you lots of fun tools that you can use that make it easier to navigate the most critical one is you can match your velocity with any like orbiting body in space so if you're trying to approach a planet the first thing you want to do once you get close is match your velocity to it so that relative to the moon or whatever you are stationary so you're both moving in space at the exact same velocity um with like the same direction and everything um, and so there's just a button, I think it's A, that you can press if you're aiming at a space uh, astro body that allows you to match velocity. And that's really key. And so the game, once you master its movement, it just really feels like you're actually occupying this physical space and experiencing the fantasy of space travel while you're delving into this really rich, detailed, fascinating story about this race of people that treated science like a religion how that religion failed them, how they all died, and then what you have to do and what you have to come to terms with in the wake of these ghosts, basically, that you're living under. Um, it's got a great soundtrack. The soundtrack gets the best banjo award for Folksia soundtrack. So the main theme is this great banjo theme that's probably the one, Jonathan, you played at the start of the section for Outer Wilds. Um, but it also has some great dramatic music when you discover, like, a particularly shocking piece of information on, like, oh shit, this is what killed all the Nomai. Like the moment I, I stumbled on to the, I'd like, oh, this is the, their apocalypse. Like this is how that happened. And it completely changed my perspective on how a bunch of things worked. And the moment I discovered it, it was through a piece of writing that kind of put a couple pieces together for me. And it was accompanied with this like really solemn musical sting that like I was incredibly shocked at the game's like versatility and ability to, with how open it is, deliver those kinds of emotional beats very directly with what are more designed game elements like musical stings that I just would not normally expect this game to be able to do. Um, so Outer Wilds is, I think, like top down, one of the most remarkable accomplishments of like game design and specifically level design because the whole game is this like one open world of different planets together. Um, it's, it's maybe the best example of level design I've ever seen in a video game. Like the intricacy... And thoughtfulness with which um, it lays out its setting is mind-blowing. Like, it makes sense to me why this game started development in 2012 as a student project. And it took seven years um, for a very small team to actually finalize this game. Because the logistics of creating these spaces, having them function, allowing you to navigate them. Allowing you to navigate them in such a way that it can be take you maybe 15 minutes to figure out how to get into a room. Uh, or like a big like in, like a big like cavern or something that has all this shit in it. They're like, it took me 15 minutes to get here. I've got like five minutes before the sun explodes. How the fuck am I going to like? I'm never going to be able to learn all I need to learn from this room in the next five minutes. So the best solution then is, well, how can I get to this room faster? Let me spend these five minutes finding a better way to get here. And so those spaces are all designed to have passages and and like sort of hidden routes that you could maybe stumble upon if you're very lucky, but usually you'll only find them because it's much easier to find a way out of a room than it is to find a way into a room. Um, and so you finding these secret passages and like really creating this efficient pathway for you to move through those planets. 
like again with you having no real direction there's no concrete there's no fucking waypoint on your hud that's pointing you somewhere the most you get are vague hints from the handful of characters that you can talk to in the game um the fact that all that stuff just builds off of implied learning and in like player knowledge i don't fundamentally understand how they managed to do it um and do it so phenomenally well because there's almost no other games um, currently on the certainly on the market but maybe ever that have done it quite like this um so outer wilds it's only my number two um because my number one was set for me for a long time but outer wilds gave it a damn fucking good run for its money because this game is uh really something special awesome i will i will have to give it another try at some point i think because it it sounds like something you kind of have to play to understand Yes, yeah, it is It is a hard game to, to talk about in some ways because it is very unique. Yeah. All right, well, Sean, we have one game left. Yes. It's the same game. Uh-huh. We have not had the same number one since 2013, which is when we did The Last of Us as our number one. We have had different number ones every one of those times. It's a game we've been really excited to talk about. It's a game specifically but, I've been wanting to do a proper fucking podcast discussion on for like almost the whole year. This game was a very yeah. early release. So I think we should maybe end this episode here. And I think we should make this a two-parter. And maybe part two is just about number one. I think this game maybe deserves that. Do you think so, Sean? Fuck it. Why not? To be continued. Dun, dun, dun.